Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Hellas, your host. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on August 13th, 2022, the time right now at 8.46 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We have a free roll tonight, and it's a very special free roll. We mentioned it last week during the middle of the show. In case you are unaware, tonight's free roll is much larger than other free rolls we typically have. It is not the largest free roll in the history of the site, but it's pretty big. And this is the second year in a row we are doing this free roll. So if you are listening live, get in there. You have until 9, 10 p.m. Pacific time, which is 23 minutes from now, on the No Fraud Online Poker Room to get in and win a piece of this large prize pool. So it's $428. And this is for the Robert Gray second annual memorial free roll very very big prize pool we usually have about 50 bucks 75 bucks this is 428 bucks and this is thanks to primarily friends of robert gray who wanted to put on this free roll if you recall robert gray unfortunately passed away at the young age of 56 two years ago it was in august 2020 and he passed away of covid and as far as I know, Robert Gray did not have any major pre-existing conditions. He was just very unlucky to have been a victim of COVID at that age. And the reality of COVID in 2020 and 2021, for that matter, was that it was killing some very unlucky middle-aged people who just would get it and unfortunately not survive it. There's narratives that went around that, oh, you're only going to die in middle age if you're super obese or if you already have cancer or some other major condition. No, that was true that some of the people who died at middle age already had major problems, but there were a lot, such as Robert Gray, who did not. And in fact, I knew two other people who died of COVID in their 50s who also did not have major health problems, one who probably would have lived for 20 plus more years, maybe even more, if they had not passed away from COVID. And it's a good chance that would have been Robert Gray's situation as well. Robert Gray was well-liked in the Vegas poker community. He was known as A-Game Rob. He played a lot of cash games in Vegas. I played with him a few times myself. And he had some friends that really thought very highly of him. And they listened to this show so they put on a free roll in honor of him last year around the first anniversary of his death. And they're doing a second one. So this is around the second anniversary of his death. And uh, this free roll is $428, the prize pool. This was donated to by five people. Eric Benzamokin, who did not know Robert Gray, but is just always generous. And he heard the last show and that I was mentioning we were accepting donations. He actually gave the largest donation of $177, so thank you very much to him. We also got uh, three donations for $77 each, one from Jason Lippiner, one from Bill Granoff, and one from W2Jesus. These three guys all listen to this show, and I've actually met all of them in person, and uh, they were friends with Robert Gray. So thank you to them, and I'm sure uh, Robert would have appreciated this uh, free roll being held in his memory. I, I didn't really know him other than playing with him a few times, but these guys were good friends of his. And finally, Country978, who's a listener to the show, also gave $20. He did not know Robert Gray, but 
decided to contribute to the cause. So thank you to him. This is how the prizes will break out. $200 for first. Pretty nice prize for a free roll on a small live broadcast because we are a small live broadcast. We are much bigger podcast type broadcast where like 95 plus percent of the listeners are downloading it after the fact in the archives. But live, we don't have a huge listenership. So the free roll does not have a huge participation rate, especially because it's pretty late at night. Like it's almost midnight on the East Coast. So that's another reason the free roll participation rate has gone down. But 200 for first, 100 for second, 60 for third. And these are all bigger prizes than typically are given out for first place. So third place, $60. Fourth place is $35. That's still sometimes bigger than our first place prize. Fifth place is $22. And sixth place, $11. So we're actually paying six spots this week. We usually only pay three. This week, six spots, and the prize is much bigger than we typically have. Now, I've mentioned before that I'm kind of slow with paying, not because I'm broke. Well, maybe I am. You don't know. Maybe I am broke, and I'm just pretending not to be. The reason I don't pay very quickly is because it's a pain. However, because this is a large free roll, because it's a memorial free roll, I'm not going to make everyone wait months to get their payouts. So I'm going to do a big batch of payments sometime this week, including those who win money in this free roll and request it. If you do request it, you need to PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff. It's Dan Druff with a space in between. If you don't have a forum account and you've qualified some other way, then you can text me, 775-3728-355, or you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. All lowercase, exactly as it sounds, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. No periods, no spaces, no underscores, nothing like that. So that's uh, various ways you can get a hold of me to claim your prize if you win here. Make sure you understand the rules, which I just updated very slightly. Made it a little easier to qualify. But PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash FreeRoll, all lowercase, if you want to read the rules to qualify. And if you know one of the guys who donated to this free roll and they personally invited you to come play, then that's an exception for this week only, that if one of them invited you, one of the donors invited you to come play, then... As long as they tell me it's okay, it it will be okay if you play, even if you don't otherwise qualify. So I just want to leave this open to anyone who may have been a a friend of Robert or someone who uh, is close or semi-close with the guys who donated. I don't want to shut them out for this week since this is a memorial free roll and it's really not for me. It's taking place on my site, but it's not for me. So I want to give some leeway there. What we're not going to do is just pay out as randoms who show up who have no connection to the show or the site or to anyone who knew Robert and just play because we want the money to go to those who deserve to get the money. And that's always the case with free rolls here. So you still have until nine ten to get in. If you don't have an account on the no fraud online poker room, then you're out of luck because it has to be validated and I'm not going to be validating it in the next 15 minutes while I'm doing the show. But as long as you have an account there, you can play. If you want to call the show, as always, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. If you want to call the show and you want to call a different number, maybe the main number isn't working. 
You can call the Mount Charleston line. It's an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston. I'm happy to inform you that it did survive all the rain that came to the area recently. It is still working. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line, which is a separate line into the show. If you want to text the show, text our main number. Do not text the Mount Charleston line. That can't take text, but the main number can take text 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is never too late or too early to text me, 775-372-8355. If you text during the show, then I may read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning of the show not to do so. We have a call to listen line. It's a very simple thing. You just call up and listen to the show. It's not a way to talk to me, but it's a way to listen to the show. And it does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer or an app or the internet. No, 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 no. It's very old school. As long as you can call it, then you can listen to the show. It's a regular phone number, a regular U.S. phone number. It is free to anyone who can call U.S. numbers for free, except for those with T-Mobile, it will cost one cent a minute, which I don't get. T-Mobile greedily stuffs it in their pockets. I get nothing of that, but just wanted to state that for full disclosure. The phone number has recently changed, not since last week, but it changed about a week and a half ago. So throw away all other call-to-listen line numbers you may have stored. They're never coming back. The current call-to-listen line is 518-931-1189. 518-931-1189. Works just like the other ones you're used to. And it never buffers and it never freezes. You just call it and it plays and it works. It's not like other streaming media where you need a good connection or it may freeze, may buffer. No, no, no. I hate that stuff. I hate when I listen to stuff streaming and it freezes. It pisses me off. It stresses me out. So I designed something that never does that. The call to listen line. 518-931-1189. And you can use it as long as you like. And remember, when we're not on the air live, you can still use it. It'll play streaming reruns, which it just picks a random show from our more than 400 shows we've done in the last 10 plus years and plays it in full and then picks another and another and another till we come back live on the air. You can find those streaming reruns also by going to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com, which also lists all the phone numbers in case you forget one of them. Just go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com. And you will see everything right there, including a player to listen to the radio show, which works with every device. Calwatt, hello. Yeah, sorry if the sound quality isn't wonderful. I'm not on my rig. We will take what we can get. Glad to have you at this late hour. Are you playing the big free roll? I am. You can still get in. A guy's got to watch out for Calwatt. He uh, he plays well and runs well. It's a tough combination to beat. But occasionally, <laughs> occasionally, someone can suck out on him and uh, he doesn't win. I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I'll take it. Oh crap! I got to kill the Roomba, Druff. Uh-oh. <laughs> is it, it, is it coming to get I you? Kill the Roomba. Is the Roomba coming to get you, or just making noise? Can you hear it or not? Yeah, I, I can hear kind of. It's not terrible. It's a little bit of background noise. I've heard worse. There we go. All right. Well, Brandon appeared to be trying to get on, but now I can't reach him. So maybe we'll get Brandon. I thought he divorced us. Didn't he Didn't he say he's going to find a new set of friends or something? Trader Ruski, hello. What's happening, Josh? Hey, Kawat. How you doing, Trader Ruski? It's good to have both of you here. Uh, now, Trader Ruski, are you playing the free roll? I am. Okay, good. Well, 
there's a chat room. You guys can chat if you're listening to the live broadcast. And I will not be really answering you guys very much in the chat room because uh, I am doing the show and running everything. But it is there. You can talk to other people listening live. And I already gave you all the free roll info. So you guys still have eight minutes to get into that. Here is the agenda, and then we'll get going. Former teen actor Grayson Hunter Goss is accused of scamming poker player Ethan Yao, also known as Rampage, and uh, also a well-known YouTuber named Ludwig, and several others. And I meant to cover this back in June. In fact, I made a post about it on this site. It was my post, and then I never covered it on radio. It's just an oversight on my part. But the good news is we have some newer information that has just come out about the Ludwig stuff. So this is a good time to cover it all. That'll be our lead topic tonight uh, about Grayson Hunter Goss, who you may not have heard of because I assume most of you don't watch uh, or didn't watch 2010 teen shows. But uh, Grayson Hunter Goss was indeed uh, someone who was on one of them that was fairly known. Very uh, interesting story with him and the decline in his life. Then next we will have kind of a a lighter note, uh, kind of a more humorous story. A Las Vegas property manager, a very old one, by the way, is accused in court of requiring a struggling mom to sign a sex contract in order to move into her place. Isn't that marriage? I mean. Yeah, I guess it is kind of marriage in a way, but they weren't married. <laughs> there was no relationship between them. This is a, a prerequisite to being able to move into this place that the guy was managing. This wasn't even his property. He was uh, the property manager. So that's uh, pretty uh, obnoxious. But I actually have some portions of that contract I can read to you. I've really, really wanted to get the actual contract itself, which I think might be available because it's part of a lawsuit. Unfortunately, I did not get this by the time this show started, so I will not be able to read that in full. I really wanted to read that out here, but I'll read you parts of it, the parts I have access to. Political betting site Predict It is in hot water with the U.S. government. It was a legalized, like was, I guess, kind of still is, a legalized political betting site that I have used personally and profited with. And now they are in hot water with the government and they are likely to go down in February of 2023. So this is not the same as one of the illegal gambling sites going down where the government just finally catches up with them and busts them, you know, like some of those that happened to in uh, 2001 or 2011, I meant. It's not like that. This is a legalized site that the government was okay with, and now they're not okay with it. So we'll give you the full story on that one. I tell you, I profited from the uh, the 2020 election? Well, yeah, I'm not sure if you told me, but a lot of people did, including me. And that that was a very unusual one because you could actually bet on it after it was over. (laughs) You could actually bet against Trump winning when Trump already lost. That was a pretty... and that's what happened. So both, you know, Bart and Tuckman, I know both of them, they, they were both putting out there on Twitter. They're like, you know, they were taking bets all along. But then after the, the votes were counted and the election was declared, uh, I think Tuckman was the one who put out a tweet. He's like, oh, you know, I feel stupid doing this, but I'm going to do it if anyone still wants to bet. And I think he offered like 20 to one or something like that. Right. 
And I had a buddy of mine contact me saying, hey, you know, can you put in a good word for Tuckman? Tell him I'm okay to bet. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, do you, you really want to do that? So I talked to Tuckman, and he's just like, well, why don't you take the bet? Why don't you just do it? You know the guy. And I'm like, I don't, I don't really want to get into it. And then the next day I woke up. I'm like, you know what? Why don't I just do that? <laughs> so, so I made two grand from it. Wow. It all right. Wow. It was easy two grand. I will tell you guys what's going on with Predictit, and I think they have themselves to blame. Now, there's a few things I have to guess at there. I don't have all the facts, but I have a good idea what might be going on with them. Three poker players from Los Angeles were arrested in an idiotic scheme having nothing to do with poker or poker play. It had to do with table games in Las Vegas. They were bending cards there and thought that somehow they'd get away with that. So I'll tell you that story, and I'll tell you who the poker players were. Then we have another segment of Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. And I like to stick to things that are kind of current yet historical. So you've been reading about all the flooding in Las Vegas recently. So what better time than to talk about the frequent flooding of the Link parking structure, which you're probably seeing on the news all the time with water rushing through a parking structure. That's the structure I'm talking about. This dates back over 60 years the history of that. There is a history of that whole parking structure and of the flooding there. And I'll give you a hint. It's intentional. So that'll be our Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history segment, which is connected to the present. A Las Vegas man has been charged with defrauding bettors in a $8.5 million sports betting handicapping scheme. And you may say, oh, we've done that segment before. Well, we have, but not about him. This is another one. So... Tell you what's going on with that one. Boy, people are gullible with that stuff. Bellagio Security rescued a puppy trapped in a hot car in its garage. The puppy was trapped in the car for two hours while the degenerate owner of the dog was gambling in Bellagio. And uh, the dog did manage to survive, but wasn't doing all that great when the Bellagio Security uh, rescued it. So I'll tell you about that story. If you do ever win something big at the casino, do not flash your money everywhere. Do not show off that you have all this cash on you or it may not end well. We've had a number of these stories we've told on the show. We have another one this week from Florida. A guy who flashed $54,000 was then mugged. So we will talk about what happened there. This one has nothing to do with poker and gambling directly, but something I feel we should cover. I cover a lot of civil forfeiture topics on this show and government abuse, where they just take people's stuff illegally or, at the very least, immorally. Basically, government theft of property, which unfortunately is still happening in 2022 and does affect gamblers and poker players a lot. So it not only is something I feel strongly about, but it's something that I think affects our community as well. The FBI violated its own warrants it received involving a private safe deposit box business in Beverly Hills and seized all the contents of these boxes when they were not supposed to. So I'll tell you what's going on with that and the lawsuit pertaining to that. Finally, if you're in Pennsylvania or Michigan and you've wished to play on the same WSOP.com as everybody else, I have good news for you. You can. You can actually play on WSOP.com from Pennsylvania or Michigan and play with Nevada and New Jersey players. But hold on. This is until September, and 
it's only in certain tournaments and no cash games yet. But it's a good sign that'll be our final topic. We will not have a coronavirus segment this week. Then maybe we'll also have to start having a monkeypox segment soon as well. I'm guessing not, but uh, who knows? Maybe the world will get unlucky and we'll have to do that if uh, the way monkeypox is transmitting changes and starts hitting a more uh, wide segment of the population. At the moment, I'm not uh, particularly worried, and I'm not particularly worried for you guys either, unless there's something I don't know. So anyway, uh, we're going to get going here, and we're going to talk about Grayson Hunter Goss in a story that I overlooked somehow. That's amazing, Druff. That guy has two names that I find annoying. <laughs> Both Grayson and Hunter. That's just, true. I don't know. That's true. That, that is kind of a douchey name right there, and he's living up to it. So you guys all know the stories we hear about child actors, and frequently it doesn't end well. And even the ones that seem to be doing okay, like Ricky Schroeder, seem to get themselves in hot water later on. It just may not be good to be a child actor. Maybe at the time it's good, but then for the rest of your life it's not very good. Well, this is definitely a case of where it went bad for someone pretty quickly. Even though he was not a major actor, it has gone bad for him fast enough to where when he's... 23, he's already a complete mess. In case you're wondering who he is, you can look him up on IMDb, which is imdb.com. That stands for Internet Movie Database, but it also covers TV shows as well. His name is Grayson Hunter Goss, G-O-S-S. And as I said, this is not a major, major actor. So if you haven't heard of him, that makes sense. I had not heard of him. The last time he acted was in 2017. However... He was best known for a TV series called Shriek. Not Shrek, but Shriek. It's like Shrek with an I in it. S-H-R-I-E-K. And with a period after each letter. So I guess it was some kind of acronym. S-H-R-I-E-K was the TV series. And he played a character called uh, Dylan. It was on the Hub Network, which was a network aimed at uh, teenagers and this aired in uh, 2014. So that was where he was best known from. He was on uh, some other series. He was on another uh, teen series called Sophia the First. And he had a few small parts in other TV shows ranging from uh, 2010 through 2017. In and 20- not only have I not heard of either of those shows, I've never even heard of that network, Drew. Well, it makes sense. You know, you're an old guy. So I Yeah, but I mean, still, I, you would think I would have heard of it. I'd heard of the Hub Network. I never watched it, but I've heard of it. Trader I, I canceled it, cable TV a long time ago. That's probably so why. Is it like cable? Yeah. Random cable channel? Yeah, it's a random cable channel. Trader oh, Risky, have you heard of the Hub it. Network before? This is the first I'm hearing of it. Yeah, this is actually called Discovery Kids. So it was an offshoot of the Discovery Channel. Discovery Kids started in 1996. And then in 2010, it was renamed The Hub and then changed to Hub Network. And now it's presently called Discovery Family. So it's gone through a number of changes. And I guess there is no hub anymore. I guess now it's Discovery Family. But it's, it's all the same thing. And again, if you weren't the parent of a teenager at the time this was on, you, you may not have known this even existed. And I only knew about it because of being a cable customer and just kind of seeing the hub there. But I, I never bothered to watch it because it was grouped with the other kids and teen channels, which I have no interest in watching, being an old dude myself. 
So anyway, he was born in September 1998. So if you remember what I just said, his last part was in 2017. And he was only a, quote, party-goer in this. So he probably had a very, very small part. This is in something called The Mick, which is another TV series. He also is in something called Main Street Meets. <laughs> That's M-E-A-T-S, which sounds kind of dirty, sounds like a porn. And he played young Floyd, so presumably he, there must be, have been some older character, and he played the teen version of that character. But these were small... That's like a gay bar, man. <laughs> it might be Main Street Meets. That would be a good name of gay bar. I wonder if they they have a gay bar in like San Francisco or West Hollywood called Main Street Meets. I think it would do well. But I don't believe that was a gay program. I don't know much about it or anything about it. But still, if you think about the timeline here, he was done acting by age eighteen. By the time he had his nineteenth birthday. In September of 2017, he was done because he had already shot these other two things that he appeared in briefly earlier that year. So as of his 19th birthday, he did not have a role again. You can take a look at a picture of him in the thread that I created about him on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum on Poker Fraud Alert. It is called Former Teen Actor Grayson Hunter Goss Accused of Scamming Poker Player Ethan Yao. You can see a picture of him from back then, from his teen acting years. And you can see he kind of looks like what you'd picture a boy who is an actor on one of these team shows. He kind of looks like a a typical good-looking teenage boy, clean-cut teenage boy with dark hair. But if you look at that picture and you compare it to how he looks today, it's like a different guy. It's a world of difference. Not only does he look like 20 years older now, despite being like five, six years older, but it also doesn't look like the same person. So he must have really, really hit hard times. Meth is a hell of a drug, Ruff. Well, I've wondered what is doing this. So here's the truth about child and teen actors, is that most of them have a hard time getting roles in the adult world once they age out of the teen roles because there's far more competition. Far, far, far far more competition. Because think of all these people who try to pursue acting as a career as young adults. There's tons of them. There's far fewer that are kids or teenagers because they have to do this through their parents. Now, there's no shortage of teen and child actors. It's still a tough field to succeed in, but it's much easier still to succeed in that just due to the lesser competition. Also, n- not only lesser in number, but lesser in skill, where if you are a child or teen who can act decently, then often you're going to be better than most other people, whereas as an adult, you're going to be against a lot of very talented actors, and it's almost like a matter of luck or connections at that point. So for whatever reason, he just stopped getting roles completely after 2017. It might be because he aged quickly as far as his appearance. I don't know what he looked like in 2017, but maybe he was not looking like he was a good-looking teen anymore by the time he was 18. Maybe he had some kind of substance problem that caused that, or maybe just naturally he got to look old early. I can tell you, seeing his picture at age 23, he looks like he's at least 30, and not even like a good-looking 30-year-old. He, just, he looks like kind of a beat-up 30-year-old, and he's only 23. 
That's a far cry from what I see from that other picture. So it's possible that he just naturally aged out of being able to get these roles. And once he was 18, he wasn't very good-looking anymore. Maybe he just looked like an average guy in his 20s at age 18, and that's not going to get him roles on teen shows, and that may have been it for him. It also could have been other things. I don't know. But something caused a degradation, and something caused his roles to end. And when I say something, as I'm sure you've all noticed... The ability to play teenage roles doesn't end when you're 18. A lot of times you'll be watching a show of, quote, high school students, and everybody's like 25. So it's Let's much go more... Go back com- and look at Grease, the movie Grease. Yeah, that's that's a very good example of it. Oh, my God. It. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you go back and look at that, especially now because uh, Olivia Newton-John just died, so people are paying attention to Grease again. And you look, and she was almost 30 when she was in it. John Travolta was I actually like... I had for her when I was a kid, though. So. <laughs> John Travolta was actually not that far, though, from the age he was supposed to be. He was older. He's like early 20s. I think he's 23 or 24, but he was the closest one. The rest of them were just ancient, including uh, Olivia Newton-John. So Yeah, there was some Italian guy that was in there. I forget who he played, but he looked like he was like in his 30s, man. Yeah, Easy. Right, and one, one of the female characters uh, was also, the, the actor. The actress was in her mid-30s at the time. So, that, But it's not even just movies like Grease. Uh, a lot of TV shows at the time, the teenagers were not teenagers at all. And in fact, even at the beginning of the show's run, often we're not teenagers. So a guy who's 18 doesn't necessarily have to say, oh, man, I'm 18. I can't play high school students anymore. No, of course you can. As long as you look like not older than the rest of the other older people playing high school students, you're fine. Because remember, you don't have to look like a high school student. You have to look like you're not older than the other fake high school students who are also too old to be playing that role. So he just wasn't getting these jobs anymore. And... There could be various reasons for it, or it could just be that he just stopped getting roles. It does happen where actors just stop getting roles. Sometimes it's something they did. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes they just uh, aren't getting cast anymore. It's a very tough field. So then what did they do? It's, it's hard to look like you're a teenage kid when you're a meth addict, too. That, that could be a factor as well. Yes. So then what did they do? For whatever reason, if you can't get roles anymore, if you're a teen actor and you're thinking this is going to be your career, and then nobody wants to hire you, even for bit parts. What do you do? Well, I don't know exactly what he went to go do, but somehow he found his way into poker. And he had one leg up over most of us in that he can point to his past career, his fairly recent career, of being a teen actor in order to get people to trust him. And you might say, well, why would they trust him more because he's a teen actor? Well... If you think about it, someone who presents themselves as a successful actor who appeared on a semi-mainstream teen show as recently as 2014, you may think, okay, well, you know, it's a guy who was a kind of, you know, D-list actor but was still in a successful show, and now he's playing poker. Okay, cool, I trust him. It's easier to trust that person, if you don't think about it too hard, than just a regular 23-year-old who comes up to you and says, hey, can you stake me? So that's how he gets his foot in the door, and unfortunately, he has a long trail of alleged scams following him by this point. He's only 23 now. This is not a guy who's been scamming for 20 years. This is a guy who's 23, and these all seem to be recent and semi-recent things that have been done, and uh, there's various accounts on YouTube and on Twitter about his behavior, and unless all these people who are accusing him who didn't know each other previously, unless all of them got together and decided to tell lies about him 
to trash his reputation. Of, unless they all got together and said, you know what? We are going to focus on a 2014 teen actor who doesn't act anymore, and we're going to ruin his rep because we're just awful people and we just enjoy doing it. Unless they're all doing that, then this is probably true. So the first one that came to my attention is Ethan Yao, who goes by Rampage. Now, he was not the first victim, but uh, he's the first one who got my attention to the whole thing back in June. So Ethan Yao goes by Rampage. He has played before on Hustler Casino Live, and he's generally uh, well-liked. I I don't really know him, but I know of him. So this is what he posted on June 17th. But don't worry, this has a recent connection, too, in case you're thinking, okay, who cares about this thing from two months ago? Well, it's still going on, and there's uh, very recent accusations from someone better known than Ethan Rampage Yao. But let's focus on Rampage right now. He said, Unfortunate to report, I got scammed of a measly $1,000. A reminder never to give or lend people you don't know money. No matter who they are, what the amount is, so ridiculous. Now, by the way, as a quick postscript to that, despite this warning that you don't give money to those you don't know, Ethan Yao was in an Uber recently, and this older guy named William was the driver, and he got to talking about poker with William. And William actually talked him into staking him in a 1-3 cash game, and Ethan claims that he gave William an undisclosed amount of money to go play 1-3, and the guy just walked off and never played. (laughs) So Ethan did not learn his own lesson. But nevertheless, and that just happened. The whole thing with William just happened. But let's get back to the thing with Grayson between him and Rampage. But I, I will tell you guys, if any scammers are listening and you want uh, a mark, you want someone who is apparently uh, very willing to give out money to strangers who have a good story, then uh, find Ethan Yao. It looks like uh, he may fall for it a third time. But this is what he wrote. Unfortunate report, I got scammed of a measly $1,000. A reminder to never give or lend people you don't know money, no matter who they are or what the amount is. So ridiculous. And then he put at Grayson Hunter G, which is Grayson Hunter Goss uh, on Twitter, who, by the way, has almost 73,000 followers. So this is someone who is well-known enough to get that many followers. And he's not getting it mainly over this. It's not like everyone's following him because he's a scammer. They, he had a lot of followers prior to any kind of allegations against him being made public. So then Ethan posted screenshots of him messaging back and forth with uh, Grayson. And this is often what we're seeing these days, where someone's accused of scamming, and then we, it's always accompanied with like these shots of messages back and forth, whether it's text or Skype or Instagram or Facebook, whatever, or Twitter. And I've never seen one case where these screenshots later turn out to be fake. They could be, but I've never seen it in any time recently or semi-recently or any time in my memory, actually, that alleged scam evidence turns out to be fake regarding these screenshots. So keep that in mind. I met Justin Smith, and for historical accuracy, I'll have to check the dates, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe a month and change ago. What what, what am I hearing here? Oh, wait, hold on a second. We have uh, a new person here that just played (laughs) something that was, I was wondering if my computer's going nuts here, something that was kind of historical from our own community about uh, Justin Smith, Justin Wade Smith, who eventually did go to prison for scamming but not for the person who was uh, discussing it there. Brandon Drexel-Gerson, hello. 
I guess Brandon's a mute tonight. He's here. This may be Brandon's protest because we didn't uh, give him enough notice a few weeks ago to come on to the reunion show. So whatever, I'll, I'll let him sit here. He, he can be with us in spirit. So anyway, this is what Grayson Hunter Goss was texting with Ethan Yao Rampage. So Grayson wrote, do you have 1K of cash on you that I can get back to you in like four hours when my boy gets here? He's having to go back to our Airbnb and grab it after his tournament. If not, it's all good. This 125 PLO game is really good, ha. Huh? If not, don't even worry about it. So then Ethan responded, yeah, I have 1K, that's fine. Don't know, I'll be here an hour, to be honest. I'm at Green 239. Now, Green 239 is referring to his table at the World Series of Poker. This is during some event, and basically Ethan's saying, hey, I'm, I'm at this table. I may not be here very long. Probably he was short-stacked or something, but if you can get down here while I'm still at this table, I'll give you the 1K. So Grayson said back, okay, I'll come by. If you're not here, I'll just head down to where you are and get back to you. Thanks, my G. That's, that's you wanted 1K for 510 PLO? No, 125 PLO. One two five. That's still going to play pretty big. That's that not is, much yes. money for one two five PLO either. That is correct. I guess. I guess when you're uh, when you're busto and looking for action, you'll take what you can get. When, when you're chasing, when you're chasing. Yep. Now it, it must be a lot of those games. I, I don't know how it was playing at the series this year, but a lot of those one two five games are playing with a an, an agreed to straddle a lot of the times too. That's not much money at all, man. <laughs> yeah, that that could anyway. be gone in one hand very quickly. That's that's a great point. Anyway, he says thanks, my G. Now, right there, I would hate the guy. The second someone says thanks, my G, to me, that's when I'm not going to give him a thousand bucks. Nevertheless, his G, Rampage, agreed to give him a thousand. But I guess Grayson didn't get down there fast enough. I'm surprised he wasn't like zipping over there like Speedy Gonzalez. <laughs> but somehow it took him a little bit to get down there. He said, "You still in the tournament?" And then. Ethan said, yes, surprisingly, same table. And Grayson said back, ah, shit. He didn't get the thousand back. So we're seeing another group of texts here where Rampage says, I'm back at the table. Do your buddy come with a thousand? This was later here. And so remember, this, the backstory wasn't that Grayson was borrowing a thousand or getting staked a thousand. The backstory was that his buddy was supposed to bring him a thousand, but was taking too long to get there from the Airbnb, whatever. So he just needed the thousand, and his buddy's going to be there real soon to give it back to him, and then he could return it to Rampage. But then he just never came back with it. So that's why Rampage asked, Did your buddy come with a thousand? Just no answer. So then hours later, Rampage messaged him, You going to be at the Wynn or Venetian at all tomorrow? And then Grayson says back, Yes, sorry, my phone was dead. Where are you? Still on the strip? Let me know. So that's so typical of scammers that their phone is dead when they owe money and they don't respond. Oh, I'm sorry I didn't answer you about the money I owe. Uh, my phone was dead. But where are you? Still on the strip? Well, he was his, and he was, his, he was his G before he got the money. Then after, wasn't his G anymore. No, nah, he was more of his H at that point, I guess. So anyway, the reason he probably asked if he's still on the strip was then he would have an excuse if Rampage is not on the strip. It kind of makes it look like he wants to return the money. And then if he is still on the strip, then he can make up some excuse why he can't get there. So then Rampage says back, I'm off the strip, but I'll let you know when I head there tomorrow. And then Grayson put a heart in response to that. So then Grayson actually put the next day, I'm at Bally's right now. Now, I'm not sure what he would have done if Rampage was at Bally's as well. But then... Rampage said back, I'm playing at Venetian, then win tourney later. And then 
Grace and said, okay, I'll head that way. Well, that sounded like a good sign, right? Someone asked, are you at Bally? You say, no, I'm at, at Venetian. I'll be at Win later. Okay, I'll head that way where you are. Well, that sounds like you're going to get your money back, but he did not. So then just nothing. <laughs> then Rampage asked, did you make your way to Venetian? He said, no, sorry, I haven't yet. This is several hours later. Where are you? So Rampage says, Venetian. No answer. Five hours later, I'm sure Rampage is realizing he may have enrolled here. He says, I'll take some Bitcoin or ETH, LOL, meaning Ethereum. So he's starting to get very concerned he's not going to get his money and even trying to make it easier to be paid. Like, hey, we don't have to meet. You want to send me Bitcoin? You want to send Ethereum? He should have said, I'll take anything. You can send me Do- Dogecoin. <laughs> I'll even take the old uh, Terra Luna, which is worthless now. Just send me something. Well, no answer about the Bitcoin or Ethereum. Then he asked, I'm going to be at Bally's. Are you going to be... Give me the 1K or what? It's been a few days. I haven't heard from you. No answer. Several more days pass. He says, hello? It's been way too long. You're ghosting me right now about a measly 1K. Ha, 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 ha. So that was it. He stopped answering him. So that was on uh, June 17th. He finally decided to post all this. The scamming me for 1K. Ha, 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 ha comment that Rampage made to Grace and privately was on June 16th. So on June 17th, he realized that he's just not getting the money back, so he might as well just report it. So why did Rampage fall for this in the first place? He explained it. He said, unfortunate to say I fell victim to his little blue check mark and met him three times, each telling me he's lost 30k or more after poker and blackjack sessions. Didn't think 1k was enough to steal, but here we are. Please learn from my mistakes. Don't trust anyone you don't know, unless it's an older Uber driver who has a good story about loving poker. Oh, no, wait, wait, no that, that wasn't in there. And then Rampage also pointed out, apparently he runs a poker bros group, too. Pretty obvious not to work or play with him. Now, for those of you that don't know what poker bros is, that is a private poker app where people can run individual little poker rooms on there. And then they have agents who manage the money and all of that. It's a way to play poker for real money on this app that provides the game. So I've never trusted Poker Bros for several reasons. I would not recommend playing on there. Not only don't I think the games are secure, but also you have to trust those paying you out. And sometimes even those who are not starting off intending to rip you off end up ripping you off when, for example, they give someone who's a fish a ton of credit and they lose and then the fish doesn't pay then they have no money to pay you. So there's a lot of ways the whole Poker Bros model can go bad. So I would suggest... That's a good point to make make clear about Poker Bros is they do not handle any of the money. Yeah, they don't. So yeah. you have to depend on whatever little splinter club is happens to be using that app. Yeah, and he's saying that Grayson actually manages one of those little Poker Bros rooms. So obviously don't play on there or you're probably never getting paid, he's saying. I, I'm not in touch with it. I mean, I know all about Poker Bros and everything. I'm not in touch with that community, but there must be so many stories of like people that run games and then just run off with a with a bank and yeah, stuff, you know, That's there, there are there's right? people there's people running off. There's uh, allegations of collusion taking place where they don't ever investigate it. Maybe their friends are colluding, whatever. There are situations where the person running the Poker Bros game means well, but as I said, they give a big fish a lot of money to play on credit, and then the fish won't pay, and then they don't have the money to pay everybody. So there's so many different ways it can go bad. So people say, oh, i got to play Poker Bros. The games are so good. There's so many fish on there. It's like easy money. Why should I play the tough games on Bovada or live poker? Well, because you'll really get your money on Bovada or live poker. But uh, 
not on so poker. You're saying bros. they're not poker bros is not uh, FDIC insured, is what you're telling me? Uh, they're yeah, they're a little short of that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was uh, the initial report that Rampage put out, but of course, there's so much more. After Ethan called him out, Grayson decided to contact Rampage, which does happen, by the way. When you call out a scammer, they tend to respond. I've said many times on this show that scammers love secrets. They love silence. So you may think if you call out someone who scams you, you're never going to be paid because they're going to be angry and their reputation shot anyway, so why should they bother? Incorrect. When you call them out, then they feel they have to try to make it right so you can put out there, okay, he made it right, uh, we're all done. Because if you say nothing, they have no incentive to do anything for you. So you may think they just won't pay you if you say anything, but it's, it's rarely the case. Usually they won't pay you if you say nothing. So, of course, Rampage does get a response from Grayson. Unfortunately, he didn't get the $1,000. He just got a response. So he posted on June 18th, one day later, update from Grayson. I don't care about the $1,000. I care more about the numerous people messaging me about how they got scammed by the same person. And then this is where I got to see the picture of Grayson presently, because Grayson sent a picture of himself to Rampage to show something to him. So this is the screenshot. It says, Rampage, it's Grayson. I didn't scam you out of 1K. I legit got mugged on Tuesday, and they stole 12K cash, my phone, and my wallet. (laughs) What a coincidence. What a coincidence that a guy who borrowed 1K and was very non-responsive happened to get mugged right before he was about to pay you back, and they stole all his cash and his phone and his wallet. So that's convenient that uh, not only is his money gone that he couldn't pay you, that otherwise was going to go to you, but also his phone was gone. That's why he didn't answer you. Oh, well, that makes sense. He goes on to say, I know that might be hard for you to believe. Yeah, you think? But it's true. Also, I haven't been able to log into my Instagram because it's connected to my phone number. And then just to show, just to prove to Rampage that he was really mugged, did he post a police report? No. Did he post video footage of being mugged? No. I mean, at least he could have gone the Jesse Smollett route and gotten uh, two fake muggers to go after him. But no, he posted a picture of himself with red marks on his forehead. I guess that's supposed to mean he was mugged. It kind of looks like bruises, like bruises on his forehead. But that's it. It's not on his cheeks. But did, he, did he have a noose around his neck or anything? No, there was no noose, no bleach involved. But there, there were just some red marks on his forehead. But so, somehow the rest of him is not injured at all. Like his cheeks look perfect. His mouth looks perfect. His nose looks perfect. I, I guess these muggers kept hitting him repeatedly in the forehead and nothing else. And... He shows nothing else to prove that he was really mugged. Just look at my forehead. It's got, it's got these red marks. And he writes, if you can call me, I can try to explain everything so you can understand. Well, obviously, this picture means nothing. He could have done this to himself in order to spin this mugger's tail once he was called out. He could have coincidentally been hurt. Maybe he slipped and fell or whatever and then said, oh, perfect. I'll use this to claim I was mugged. Or... Who knows? It could have been one of many things, but being mugged is probably the least likely explanation of them all. If I had to guess, he just did it to himself, which would explain why it's just his forehead that has the bruises. He, I could picture, like, okay, I get a show I was mugged. How do I do it? Okay, I don't, I don't want to knock out my teeth. I don't want to break my own nose. We're going to hit on my face, 
that can probably take the most as far as being hit without causing permanent damage. Oh, my forehead. Oh, perfect. So then he hits his, for- his own forehead enough times to make these marks and takes a quick picture. So anyway, no one was believing this, of course. And in this picture, and you can take a look at this on the thread on Poker Fraud Alert, you can see he looks nothing like this good-looking teenager from 2014. It's like a different person. And he looks like he's 30 years old now. So not only has he aged, he just looks really rough. He looks just really like someone who's uh, having a very tough life, and he's only 23. So I think that picture itself speaks volumes, but not the volumes he was hoping it would speak. He was hoping it would prove he was mugged, which, of course, nobody bought. So then, by coincidence, Ethan ran into him the next day at Venetian. So Rampage posted... Bumped into him at Venetian on the same elevator. Awkward. Said he'd get it back and would square up past people he scammed. So at this point, Rampage had been uh, made aware by others that there were like YouTube videos out there from prior to all this alleging that Grayson had scammed them out of a lot of money. So Rampage wasn't the first victim. So at this point... The whole thing about being mugged, that story was out the window, and he happened to be in the same elevator as Ethan. And Ethan's like, okay, what are you going to pay me? And Grayson's like, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, I'm going to get it back to you, and everybody else I ripped off, I'm going to get it back to them too. So at this point, there was no more pretending like the mugging happened or that any of this was above board. At, at this point, according to Rampage, that he just owned up to it and says he'll make it right. Rampage pointed out, also, no money, but he's at a casino, LOL. So that was for the moment where it ended with Rampage. And obviously, Rampage did not get his 1K back. And to show you how much bad shape that Grayson was apparently in, you have a guy calling you out on Twitter. You have a guy who's fairly visible on Twitter calling you out, saying you scammed him out of 1K. If you have 1K, then you pay him back right away. Even if you are a scammer, the smartest thing to do is pay back that 1K, and then it'll look like it's all misunderstanding. If you cannot pay back that 1K after several days pass and several weeks pass, then clearly you are so busto you can't even afford that. Yeah, so he early, either donked it all off or smoked it. Yeah, I think he probably donked it all off. To me, it looks like this guy has a, a major gambling problem. Maybe a drug problem, too, but it looks like for sure he's got a gambling problem. Grayson was accused over a year earlier, in early 2021 of scamming two YouTubers involving the sale of an expensive camera where they claim that they paid for the camera and never received it. So let me uh, play you an excerpt, excerpt from this thing. It's, it's, it's uh, 41 minutes long. I'm not going to play anywhere near that. But starting from the 2212 mark, I'm going to play you part of this video, which is called... Uh, um. It's called Storytime Exposing the Disney Star Who Stole Thousands from Us, Grayson Goss. It's from a YouTuber named Kayla J, who has 129,000 subscribers. This video was posted on March 15th, 2021, and it's Kayla and some guy. I don't know who the guy is, but they're, they're talking about Grayson there for 41 minutes. I'm going to play you starting from the 2212 mark. You can listen to this. I can give you my aunt's cell. I said, she said, um, she can send them. If I, if you can send me my money right now, she'll send it back tomorrow. And he texts me back and he says, holy. 
I'm so sorry. I have to call my partner right now because we have a full setup and everything. Just kind of making up lies. He says he would have to transfer it out of the Bitcoin account and then to the bank and then to you. I'm going to call right now. So like it's he still seemed concerned, but he was still lying to me. So because um, mind you, the way he made it sound, he makes it sound like he's making so much money. Like you're building um, you're building um, a mansion in California for eight hundred thousand. And I don't it's care. In Texas. In, uh, yeah, in Texas. And so you've got all this money. <clears throat> Let's say let's say the rules were reversed. If I, if I had that kind of money and my friend messages me after sending me two thousand dollars for stocks, assuming that it was legit, which it wasn't, um, if I had that kind of money and my friend tells me she's pregnant and she's in the hospital bleeding, I'm sending her that two thousand immediately, whether it's coming out of my pocket or out of the money that she gave me. If I have no access to that money, I'm sending her two thousand regardless. Like if that's that's. I just cashed out thirty bones from Bitcoin. Yeah. And so I'm saying it's not I'm that hard. Get some money out of Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, you're still lying. And it- let me stop here. So this girl, I guess, was bleeding in the hospital, and she was pregnant, and she said she needed that 2000 back as soon as she can get it, and he's still making excuses. So she's saying that if, if you really have all the money like you're claiming, I guess he told her stories that he's building a mansion in Texas and spending 800000 on it, and uh, he's got all this Bitcoin, and this girl's not believing any of it because he can't even send her the 2000 that's owed to her from that camera equipment that was never sent. Uh, she's in an emergency now and they're supposedly friends and he's not sending back the 2000 it's and it makes you look like a bad person just because if somebody says that they're pregnant and they're having complications like god forbid i would send them their money back whether it's coming out of my pocket like i said or you're giving me my money back you know what i mean i said i'm i said i'm not on my dad's insurance like trying to see if he would really give me the money because i'm like making him think like i need the money yeah and um that's why i'm like leaning to the side so i can put him here um I said, I have no idea how much I'm about to have to pay. I guess this is a story. See, I didn't watch this whole thing either, but I guess she's probably telling a story to him that she's bleeding and pregnant and having complications to try to get him to send it, which I guess I give points for creativity here. I don't have any moral issue with lying to a scammer to get him to pay you back. Any means possible to get paid back aside from maybe like, really bad violence, <laughs> I think it's fine. If you, you can lie all you want, you can trick them all you want to, to get the money back. If you have to steal it back, steal it back. Whatever you have to do to get back money that was stolen from you, as far as tricking them, I'm all for. Uh, the problem is scammers don't have a heart. Scammers have already made peace with the fact that they are stealing from you, that they're doing something bad, and that they're heartless, and they don't give a crap about how they hurt you. So telling them you need the money back so badly because of medical bills or being in the hospital, they're not going to give a crap. That's what a normal person would care about. A serial scammer is not going to care. So I, I give them an A for effort here, but unfortunately, this is not going to impress him at all. And I was just that's like, totally true, um, Jeff. I texted we caught someone. And, um, oh, so what are you going to say? I, I said, that's totally true what you're saying about scammers and they don't give a shit about you because we, we actually caught someone cheating at our home game. And, uh, one of the... Uh, People who uh, who was there when we we caught the guy was like, oh man, I liked him, and then we had a, a police officer that played with us, and she was just like, well, he didn't like you, you know, like they, they he yeah exactly anyone who's going to scam you does not give two shits about you yeah so that's why like sob stories will never work with scammers scammers only respond to things that are going to cause them trouble so if they are worried about something they're worried about some consequence of what they did that is when they will respond not out of any sob story.
Let, let's go on here. Yep. Um, that you're sending it back. And she said she'll send you 3000 once I get my money back because I told her it was four and she wants to help put more money towards it. Like, I'm trying to see if maybe it, because he's money hungry, I said maybe if I tell him that somebody's going to send him more than what he originally gotten, maybe he'll send me my money back. And so he still doesn't do it. And he doesn't text me back that night. So you're okay with calling me at 11.30 p.m., but when I'm texting you at 10 p.m., about me in the hospital, it's like not a priority. Um, so then I texted him the next morning. I said, hey, do you know when you'll be able to send me that? He was just texting his kid. I'm, I'm trying to see what kind of person he is. I, I'm giving him a chance to do, do the right thing. Color. And he did, shows his true colors. His true color. And so he says, hey, I got off the phone with my partner and the money's locked for at least a month. There's your first problem. That's a lie. That's so common. That is such a common excuse about money being locked. If someone owes you money, and they claim the money is locked in some way, they claim they can't access it for more than like a day, then you're getting ripped off. I've heard of the money is locked scam so many times. That is such a common trick where someone says, I have a lot of money. I just can't access it right now. I, I can't withdraw it for this reason. I can in a few weeks, but I can't right now. I've never once found that actually to be true. Yes. Today, Spencer today, just, this morning, where's my mother? Yeah. I'll show you on Cash App. I know it ain't $2,000, but you can... I got homeboys that do Bitcoin. Do yeah, and the, You can sell your money. I mean, you can sell your Bitcoins. Whenever. Yeah, and the longest the longest it will make you like like wait to, for a Bitcoin transfer is like two to three business days. My shit like this. My yeah. instant. I just needed some extra loot. And so he it's says, like, he says, I had told you guys over the phone, there's usually, um, it's usually there for three months, mind you. Me nor Spencer remembered him saying that. He didn't. He never said that over the phone, but he makes sure to say it in a text, right? So that there's proof that he said that, but he didn't. Um, and obviously, that my mistake, I don't have proof of him not saying it. So that's just my word against his. We didn't know he was going to be mm-hmm. And so he's, I, he says, but I talked him down to one month. Because he says, I told you it's usually three, but I talked him down to one month. I can give you his number if you'd like. He handles all the money for our company. And then I said, as a friend, I know you have I know you have good money. Can I borrow a thousand? I need to pay this bill. I'm freaking out. I'm not on insurance. I, I said it's gonna be about two thousand three hundred dollars, like trying to make it seem like it's more than what I already gave him. I said, um, I know you just told us because he had told us over the phone, I said, I said, I know you just helped pay for people's groceries and stuff. He told us that he went to LA, cashed out sixty thousand dollars and paid for a hundred people's groceries. So I was just like, So why is this an issue? You know what, <laughs> what? I mean? <laughs> He paid for 100 people's groceries. He went to L.A., cashed out 60000 I'm not sure from where. He paid for 100 people's groceries. That's another thing. This guy is such a classic in all ways that scammers are. Scammers also love charities. They love to claim that they're either giving to charity or giving to random poor people. They're always doing these good deeds, and often you cannot verify they have done these good deeds. They tell you a story like, hey, I paid for 100 people's groceries. I don't know which hundred people. Maybe he just showed up at the grocery store today. Yeah, I'll pay for this guy's grocery, this guy's grocery, this guy's grocery. But whatever it is, he paid for a hundred people's groceries, but he doesn't show you who or show proof that it happened. Sometimes they will show proof it happened, but you won't see very much being spent. You'll maybe see evidence they paid for one person's groceries, and you'll see the messages from that person, uh, how much they appreciated it. It's, it's always like give a little to take a lot later. It's, it's all part of the scheme. So these, I've seen these type of things so many times in exactly this way. Didn't that Jacep um, guy use some kind of charity too? Yes. Jacep used the charity as well. Yeah, the scammers yeah, love... So many times, man. They so love the charity times. angle. They love the charity and giving and being generous to others angle. 
I, I knew without a scammer that whenever I was with them, that they were very generous to low-paid service employees. So they'd uh, go to McDonald's and they'd order something that was $11. And then the person behind the counter is handing them 9 bucks back. They go, no, 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 no. You keep that $9. That's for you. And they make sure I see that. So I think about how generous they are and what a good person they are and how much money they must have. No, just... I would immediately think something weird's going on. Well, obviously. That's, tips at McDonald's that, that's what I thought. I, I started to think this more and more of this person. This person didn't get me for anything, but they. Uh, it, it, I saw it with my own eyes. I saw this happen. So uh, this is all very common. I said, I can pay you back on the 21st. Is that okay? And he doesn't respond. So I said, hey, are you busy? So he says, um, I'm on set right now. I'll call you on my lunch. I said, okay, no problem. I can't really talk over the phone right now because I'm still in the hospital. Text me when you can. He's on set. This is a guy who hasn't acted since 2017. He's telling this girl in uh, 2020, 2021 that he's on set. Because I don't want to talk over the phone anymore with him. And he says, hey, I just got off set. Mind you, he text- He told me he was going to call me on his lunch. He I, Obviously, he never calls me because I told him don't call me. But then he doesn't text me until 11.14 p.m. That's not lunchtime, so, I mean, he's still lying. He says, hey, I just got off set. Yeah, I can help you out. Sorry, I've been super busy today. I didn't even get a lunch, really. Like, okay. I said, thank you so much. I appreciate your help. He says, my partner says you disputed the PayPal. And he says, our PayPal account is locked now. So then he sends me this screenshot. And I'll put that right here. Um, And he says, why'd you do that? And I didn't text him back. I'm like, I'm not explaining to you. I wanted time to think about how I'm going to respond to it. So then I sent him this big, long message. So um, I say, um, yeah, I'll put the screenshot. I'll read it with him. But I just said, I don't know what kind of person skims someone who's pregnant. I even consider you a friend. Not that I've ever opened up to you about my situation before, but Spencer's all I have. I said, okay, I'm going to stop it here. You. I'm not going to read this whole long diatribe. I, I see it printed in front of me. It's very long. And it's just, I, again, like you should be ashamed of yourself sort of thing. And you can and type that. There is one part of this story that I do believe, though. What is that? There's, there's one part of the story that I definitely believe. Yes. That his PayPal account got locked. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, PayPal's like, yes, finally we get to seize money that's justified for once. Oh, my gosh. We've been waiting for this. We've seized so many millions unfairly. We finally get to seize money from a real scammer. Ah, it feels good. Ah, it feels good to do the right thing. Anyway, uh, Kayla then also posted that she's since learned that Grayson ripped off others. Again, this is back in 2021, including one person for $8,000. Kayla posted as a comment on her own YouTube video, since this has been posted, Spencer has already received a DM, Spencer's the guy next to her, from someone saying he did this to them too. Stole 8000 from them. This is disgusting. If he has done this to you and your voice hasn't been heard, please feel free to contact us privately. A Hoosier A actually located Grayson's mom and wondered if uh, maybe she should be contacted and asked if she could have any influence on the situation. I actually said, no, don't bother, because I have a feeling his mom is probably sick of him. He probably squeezed his mom for all he could. And his mom is probably, you know what? I am so sorry I got you to this acting thing. Like, But no, no, go away. There's only so much I can take even for my own son. I'm just guessing this part, but 
I have to think that if you've got a major gambling problem and you're scamming strangers out of 1K, 2K, amounts like that, that you've probably milked your own mom for as much as you can. That's, that's my guess here. And even if he hasn't, I, you know, what can his mom do? He's an adult and you know, she can't put him on her knee and spank him. So I, I find it, you know, relatives there, unless they are participating in the scam or enabling it in some way, then there's no point to bother them. In fact, they probably have grief themselves from their scammer piece of shit relative. But uh, there's more recent news about Grayson here, and that reminded me that I forgot to cover this on radio back in June. So everything I've said so far is something I would have put on during a June show and just forgot. But now that you're caught up, let's give you the update which is from August 2022. A popular YouTuber named Ludwig, exactly as it sounds, Ludwig, fell victim to a scam of about $100,000. So this is much bigger than anything else we've talked about so far with Grayson. And he did a video called How I Got Scammed and Lost $100,000. So Ludwig is a huge YouTuber, 3.41 million subscribers. That Kayla I just played you, she had 120-something thousand. This guy has like 30 times that. He's got 3.41 million subscribers. This video has got to be real damaging to Grayson because this already has 1.5 million views. So Ludwig is not just someone with a ton of subscribers that nobody really watches anymore. YouTube kind of is a graveyard of formerly big personalities that just have fallen off. So even though they have a massive number of subscribers, very few like really watch their videos anymore. But that's not the case with Ludwig. He's an active YouTuber. As you see, he just posted this video five days ago on August 8th, and it has 1.5 million views. So this has got to be a killer for Grayson here. And again, the title of this video is How I Got Scammed and Lost $100,000. And this is about Grayson. And that reminded me, hey, I haven't covered him yet. So let's hear what Ludwig has to say. The title of this video is not clickbait. I wish it was, but it's something that actually happened to me. And I thought I wasn't going to talk about it on stream because it's just kind of embarrassing, especially because the amount of money I got scammed for is so high, over $100,000 of real money that I will never see again. But I'm going to talk about it for two reasons. One, it's wildly interesting. And two, and most importantly, I've talked about the guy who scammed me in different YouTube videos and on the yard. And it turns out that some of the people who have watched my channel have actually met this guy in Vegas and not only met him, but given him their money. Now, most of the stories I've heard aren't people who've gotten scammed, but I don't want to take a risk of having some random viewer of mine get scammed because a story I told about making a lot of money. So let me tell you a story about how I lost a lot of money and how I got scammed for over $100,000. Before you keep watching, please do me a favor. Do not try to contact this guy. Don't reach out to him. Do not harass him. It only reflects poorly on me. And at the end of this video, I'll tell you how I'm going to make sure he is never able to scam someone again. Okay, let me stop right there. You may wonder why he's doing that. If, if he got ripped off for over hundred k, why is he trying to protect the guy who ripped him off. Don't contact him. Don't, don't do anything about this yourself. Well, because Ludwig has money. Ludwig is a successful YouTuber who is making a lot of money. So first of all, the fact that he is putting this out there and already has 1.5 million views would put him in 
tremendous legal jeopardy. I don't mean criminally, but I mean civilly. Tremendous legal jeopardy if he were to be making a false allegation. So when you have someone like Ludwig putting it out there on his channel like this, you know he wouldn't be doing it unless this was true. I'm not saying this makes it 100% it's true, but it's pretty damn close, especially considering the other stories we've already heard about. But when someone who's a major YouTuber puts out a story like this with a lot to lose if they're lying and they could be sued for slander, you know that they probably can back it up. But, but why would he yeah, say... ironically, if, Druff, he might have made his money back from that video alone. That's a good point. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think of that. But yeah, 1.5 million views, that's got to get him some uh, decent money back. As long as he's got ads and sponsors and it's not demonetized, he probably can make some decent money from that. So the reason he's saying not to contact Grayson is not because he cares about Grayson or is worried about Grayson getting scared or threatened or maybe even hurt. He doesn't give a crap about that. The reason he's saying this is because he does not want Grayson to be able to claim that Ludwig is sicking his audience on him. So if one of Ludwig's huge fanboys goes, you know what, that Grayson guy is such a piece of shit. I'm going to go find him. I'm going to beat his ass and then... Grayson gets severely beaten, and this time for real. And then he sues Ludwig, saying that he made this video to get his followers riled up to go find him and beat him up. That's why Ludwig is putting this disclaimer at the beginning. Don't contact him. Don't do not do anything here, guys. That, that's why he's saying it. He's not mentioning well, violence. As well, Druff, I mean, in addition to a lawsuit, which is, you're absolutely right, that could potentially happen, it also... Uh, depending on what was said, could potentially be against YouTube rules because they do have rules about this. Um, and if he really is does have a successful money-making channel, he doesn't want to jeopardize that either. That's a very good so point as well. He doesn't want to get in trouble with YouTube either. Yeah. So he, he really doesn't care if you contact uh, Grayson, and he figures it's going to probably happen, given his following, but he wants to make it look like that he's not endorsing this. Let's go on. Am I understanding correctly? You actually had a good bet. The, the French yes. Open, that was a good bet, and you had some good tips on it. But you Correct. used that to rush me to send you all the crypto I had so you could make a bunch of bets for free. Correct. Now that's him talking to Grayson. He hasn't explained it yet, but he's showing him talking to Grayson on the cell phone, and he's putting it up to the microphone so we can hear Grayson say, correct, correct, correct. So let's hear how Ludwig explains this. So you scammed me. Yes, Ludwig, I scammed you. Why is that, why, why is that word so hard to say? Why, why is it taking in four months for you to say that? What's the summary for people who just joined? That guy scammed me out of about $50,000. Arguably $118,000, but depends on your point of view. How? Do I have to tell it again? All right, last time. Last time, and if Grayson doesn't pay me out today, we'll make it a fun YouTube video. <laughs> we'll tell it from the top, last time, YouTube video style, okay? By the way, he was doing this during a live stream. So what he was threatening is that if Grayson doesn't make this right, which I'm sure Grayson couldn't because Grayson must have been flat broke, that he will make it into a YouTube video. So this is the video he was threatening to make, and now he's including that live stream where he tells the story. Okay. And chat, you just have to just a lull W in pog and smiley face in chat like good old YouTube frogs. <laughs> but I'll tell you it from the start for real. There was a poker match that I put on a few months ago. It featured some amazing poker players and then also some huge creators like Mr. Beast and Ninja and XQC. So I That was the game we talked about where Phil Helmuth was in, by the way. Remember where, where Phil Helmuth uh, did that uh, stupid uh, deal where there's uh, 
but he was accused of angling, but he really wasn't. But then he forced a deal that really wasn't very equitable. Remember that whole thing? And remember, Helmuth was also like ridiculously tight, and all the YouTubers even noticed that like if Helmuth's betting, he's got to have it because he was being so tight. It was that same match he's talking about. But I did this poker event, and in the poker event, it was a $100,000 buy-in, which is insane. It's an insane amount of money. But surprisingly, against all odds, I won. And I won big. I won 300000 And the way they paid me out was half in cash and half through a check. By the way, it's not really, really shocking that he won because it was mainly him and other YouTubers. So he wasn't against the creme de la creme of high-stakes players. There was uh, Phil Helmuth there and Tom Dwan, but they just didn't run well. And Helmuth was just playing super tight for whatever reason. He just didn't bring enough of a bankroll there for reasons I still don't understand. Now, like a good boy, I immediately went to my bank and I cashed the checkout. So I put all the money back in my bank. But I've never held $100,000 before. And it's really fun to hold. And so when I was at the bank, I had the cash with me and I thought about putting it into my bank account. But I was like, you know what? I kind of want to just hold on to this for a little bit. And I kept it. And I really didn't do much with it. I only did like a few things that made me happy. Like I gave the people who cleaned my house like uh, $10,000. And I gave a restaurant that I really like $1,000 as a tip. Because like that, that would make me happy. They're really nice. But the rest of the money I just had lying around. Until my friend Jake, my childhood friend Jake, was getting married. And he was like, hey, I'm getting married. And I would love if you came out to Vegas to celebrate with me. And like, you know, I grew up with this guy. I lived with this guy. And I was like, yeah, Jake, absolutely. So I show up to Vegas. And right as I'm about to leave, I see the big stack of cash. And I'm like, I'll bring half of that. (laughs) Just half of that. Let me just bring half of that. I want to very, very clearly state, I usually never gamble that much money. Before that day, the most I had ever gambled with was $3,000. And I thought that was still insane. My heart still races when I have, you know, $100 on the line. But I brought a crazy amount of money. And I landed in Vegas a little before Jake and his friends did. And I sat down on a roulette table. And I decided to get a little crazy. I said, hey, I'm going to put $1,000 on black. If I win, it's a great weekend. It was red. And that was just the start of what this entire weekend was going to be. And I kept on losing. And it was, and it was bit by bit. It was very gradual. I was there for like a full weekend. And uh, I, gave, I gave Jake a, like as a wedding gift. I gave him like a, like a 5000 of it. But the other 45000 I was just losing. And the last day, I had $20,000. Interesting gambling story. How often do you hear a story like this that someone just tells that they show up in Vegas and gamble at pretty high stakes and just lose? Like usually it's like, yeah, I said, I'm going to just put this and if I hit black on my first bet, then it's going to be a nice weekend. I think what he was trying to imply is he's just going to stop and keep the money, which doesn't make a lot of sense because obviously Ludwig does well. So why would winning $1,000 make it a nice weekend in Vegas? I probably wouldn't even pay for the hotel. But whatever. Maybe he meant it'll be a nice weekend. He'll get off to a good start and then do well. But whatever it was, he admits he just sat down, lost the first hand, and just like kept losing. So he claimed he chunked off most of it. Let's hear what happens. And I went to a blackjack table and I had one goal, bring it all the way back to 50,000. And you know what I did? I brought it all the way back to 50,000 dimes. 
AKA $5,000. I lost $15,000 almost within like 30 minutes. It was actually crazy. I can't believe the things that I saw happened, but they were happening in front of me. And I felt a feeling in my chest that was, it, it, it was like someone twisted my heart. I felt so sad and demoralized. It was, it was bad. All right. Gambling addictions are not fun. It felt terrible. And so I moved over from this high roller room where they have really big bets to a pie gal table. Now, you don't need to know anything about the game of pie gal. The only thing you do need to know is that it's a game where you don't win a lot of money and you don't lose a lot of money. It's a game that you play to sit down, chill, get some free drinks in Las Vegas and talk and cheer up if you've lost money playing other games. And at the table, I meet this dude. You guys might have heard this story. I said it on a YouTube channel before. I said it on the main channel, but it's a different ending now. So I have 5,000 left, and we start talking. He's like, hey, my name's Grayson. I'm a voice actor. And he goes, eh. And he does a SpongeBob impression. And I was like, that was a 6 out of 10 impression, but I kind of believe it. And he's like, yeah. On the side, I'm also a professional gambler. That's funny. He was neither a voice actor nor a professional gambler, to my knowledge. From what I can see of his acting resume there's no voice work it's all regular acting and it all ended about five years ago so i think the voice acting is something maybe he tried to get into probably because his looks weren't cutting it anymore and probably didn't get any jobs so he has this fantasy that he's a voice actor when he probably isn't and that he is a professional gambler which yes he gambles a lot but looks like he is losing so that does not make him a professional gambler either and I'm like, huh, that's crazy. He's like, yeah, I have this algorithm that can beat the game, and I'm also a really avid sports better. And I'm like, cool, you know, that's, that's really interesting. And I tell him about, hey, I'm a YouTuber, and he's like, yeah, I think I might have seen you before. I'm like, yeah, I'm Ludwig, and I, and I brought a lot of money this time, and I ended up losing it all. And Grayson does a couple nice things. Like, for one, he says, well, hey, I can try to help you gamble and win some back. And for two, I can introduce you to a guy who's a host. This guy is basically meant to give you free things if you lose all your money gambling. And I'm like, okay, well, that sounds kind of good. I lost a lot of money. So I met this guy. And I was like, well, this guy's being really nice to me. And so we gamble and we gamble. And he ends up bringing my $5,000 all the way up to $15,000. And I was like, dang, this guy kind of knows what he's doing. So right before I left Las Vegas, I gave him $6,000 because that's how much I had at the very, very end. And I said, hey, I'm going to give this to you. Very trusting. I'm going to give you this $6,000. You do whatever you can to make this bigger in a week, in a month, whatever it is. That is a tremendous mistake. <laughs> Even with someone that's mostly honest, that's a tremendous mistake. to Just give them money to gamble with and then leave and hope they report the accurate amount they actually want. You have to really, really, really trust someone. Like if my mom gambled, which she doesn't, but if she gambled... I would give this to my mom and say, okay, go ahead and gamble with it and give me this percentage. But there's not many other people I would do this for. Even people I trust a whole lot. It's, uh, that's hard to just give someone money and say, give me half of what you want. And if you lose it, oh well. But especially not some stranger who thinks they're going to show you how to be a winning gambler. So that shows there's uh, a lot of uh, gullibility here on Ludwig's part. And he's a young guy, so I can kind of understand. And he didn't know the gambling world very well. What Grayson was doing there is pretty much a free roll. Because he says he's a professional gambler. He knows how to run it back up. 
then he shows Ludwig how to do it, and then if they lose, oh well, Grayson doesn't care if Ludwig lost more money, and if Ludwig gets lucky and runs it back up with Grayson's guidance, then it makes Grayson look like he's a genius gambler who can just effortlessly win. So that's why Ludwig left him $6,000 to hopefully run it up and get the remainder of his 35000 back that uh, he still was out for that weekend from gambling. And you can take a 30% cut of any of the money you make. He's like, all right, bet. And like a couple weeks pass, and the money goes up, and it goes down, and he's like, hey, there was a giant storm in Las Vegas, and they've shut down all the sports bets. But I think I have a lot of sports bets that can win. Can you send me some money on crypto? And I was like, kind of sus. But you've already been winning me a bit of money, so sure. And I send him about maybe $5,000 of crypto. And then he wins a bit. And I remember I even cashed out at one point. I was like, hey, can I cash out some of the money you've won? He's like, yeah, of course. And I cashed out $17,000. And I was like, god damn, that's not too bad. Like, that's a, that's a decent chunk of money that I just won. Now, you might wonder right there, how did Grayson do that? Ludwig goes to him and says, hey, you won money gambling for me with that 6000 and you've just won some on sports for me. So I want 17000 I don't know how much he was owed. I don't know how much uh, Grayson was still holding of his, but uh, at least I want 17000 sent to me. And Grayson's like, hell, okay, no problem, here it is, and actually sends it to him. So how did he do that, and why would he do that if he's a scammer? Well, because he had a live one. Because Ludwig was willing to send him more money after already leaving 6K with him. So whether Grayson had really won or not, as long as he had or is able to round up via scamming that 17000 then Ludwig would really trust him. And indeed he did, and that leads to the remainder of this sad story. Obviously this is not going to end well. So that is something scammers like to do. Sometimes they will pay you out initially to make it look like that the whole thing's legit. Because if right away he said to Ludwig, oh, yeah, I can't really send you the 17. Yeah, I'm up a lot of money gambling for you, but I can't send it for A, B, and C reasons. Well, then Ludwig is going to say, oh, crap, this guy ripped me off. I'm never sending him a penny again. If he sends him 17,000, then he can get him for much more later. And I started to trust this guy a bit. And then he gambles over the next couple weeks, some wins, some losses. And eventually, I get a call. I'm playing a Valorant game. I remember this very clearly. And it's from Grayson. He's very panicked. He's stressed out. Her name is Maria, and she's a tennis player. And she's she's like, you got it. How much money do you have? I'm like, okay, I'm in a Valorant game. I'm trying to clutch up. We got air coots in the building. I'm not trying to fuck around and lose this game. I'll call you back later. Before the game even ends, I get another call from him. He's desperate. And he's like, Dude, we have to do this right now. I'm like, okay, what, what is going on? And he's like, okay. The Women's French Open is happening right now. It's one of the biggest tennis tournaments in the world. The fourth best player in the world, Maria Sakari, just broke up with her boyfriend. He broke up with her. She's really sad, and she wants to leave the event. So she's going to throw the second round game. And I'm there with Aiden, and he's like, and I'm like, Okay, this all sounds kind of sus. And he's like, how much Bitcoin do you have? And I'm like, zero dollars. By the way, the term sus he keeps using, that means suspect. That's a a young person's term. This is kind of like an old audience we have of this show. So I I have to stop and explain to you guys what sus is, because I know like 
more than half of you are probably too old to know that term. Calwat, do you know what sus means? Or did you know? Yeah, of course. Oh, you do? Yeah, good. Maybe you're not as old as I think. Trader Ruski, if you're still with us, do you know sus? Had you heard of that before? Yes. Oh, yes, wow. Yes. So, all, wait, all three old guys know sus? We're all over 50. We all know sus? Wow. Okay. I'm feeling better. I feel like this generation's more with it than I thought. But I have $50,000 in Ethereum. He's like, well, I think this is a surefire bet. You should send as much money as you can. So I'm like, hmm. And I literally turn to Aiden. I say, I'm going to send him everything. And Aiden's like, what? And I was like, well, it's losing its value anyway, staying in Ethereum as a cryptocurrency, one. And two, it'd be kind of a hype story if I won. And if I lose, I think I'm okay with it. Maybe not the best choice, but it was my choice. And I sent him $50,000. And then I wait. The tennis match gets delayed two days. I'm stressed out. I think that maybe Maria will get over her boyfriend. Eventually, I wake up. The match happened at 6 a.m. Pacific because it happened in France. And I wake up to not only Maria Sakari losing, but losing 2-0. I immediately call Grace and I go, dude, do we win? He goes, yes. I made a $40,000 bet. You are owed $108,000. With the other $10,000 you sent, $118,000. I'm like, dude, this is fucking crazy. At the same time that I have won, crypto also crashes. Like all of crypto immediately halves in value. So not only did I make all this money, in a way, I won two times. Because if it had stayed in my crypto wallet, it would have gone from 50000 to like 20000 It was like the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me. And so I'm like, all right, well, Grayson, can I get paid out? And he's like, okay, well, hold your horses a bit. The guy who he made the bet with doesn't have the money. I was like, what? He's like, well, yeah, he didn't think we'd win, and he doesn't have that much liquid money on hand. It's normal. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't know what I'm doing. Sure, okay. He's like, yeah, it happens. We'll just wait a bit, and he'll pay us out. And I'm like, sure. Another week passes. I'm like, hey, Grayson, is the money ready? He's like, well, not yet, but I think it's getting closer. I'm like, okay. And then I go on a few trips. I think a couple weeks pass and I finally get a text and it's a Twitter thread and in the Twitter thread it talks about how this guy named Grayson scammed them out of a thousand dollars how they lent this guy a thousand dollars and then Grayson was like hey man I just got beat up I got mugged here's the picture of me getting mugged they stole everything from me my phone my wallet I have nothing left can you call me so I can explain it and the tweet thread continues, and it says, well, hey, here's the weird part. I saw Grayson later that day, and he had zero bruises on him at all. And they made a whole Twitter thing about it. Oh, see, I didn't know about that part. See, he's back to telling now the Rampage story. This is where they're intersecting now, because now, now we're up to June 2022 in the timeline. And I, what I didn't know is that... Later that same day, Grayson had no bruises, which means one of two things. Either Grayson just did, like, makeup bruises, which I guess is possible he was in the acting world. Maybe he learned how to do this makeup. Or it's possible that was an old picture of when he got bruised from something else. <laughs> he just presented it as a new picture. I mean, it could be super old, but maybe it was a picture from months ago, and he presented it as current. I didn't even think of that. that. 
That's interesting. So I guess that same day he was seen and didn't have bruises. So I call him because I got a bit nervous. The first thing I hear, boo-doo-doo. The number you're trying to reach is unavailable. Boo-doo-doo. And it's like a fucking movie scene. Time freezes and my phone falls out of my hand. And as it's falling, I rem- I'm remembering like, like dozens of conversations I've had with Cutie where she's like, I don't know if I trust this guy, babe. And I'm like, dude, it's going to be fine. And everyone's like, man, you sent him that much money? And I'm like, don't worry about it. And before it hits the floor, I come to the realization I've been scammed. I spend the next couple weeks trying to understand how I've gotten myself into such a dumb position where I've been scammed out of this, this insane amount of money. How I can overcome the embarrassment of having gone through this. What are my next steps? And here's a problem, by the way. Getting scammed is embarrassing. When you get scammed, you are getting scammed because someone took advantage of you because you were nice or because you were dumb. In this case, I was definitely both, maybe a bit more of the latter. And usually, you're so embarrassed, you do nothing about the scam. This happens to old people all the time. Now, obviously, this happened to me, so it's not exclusive to old people. What I did after I found out I got scammed is I spent two weeks trying to get over it, trying not to feel so bad about it, trying not to be embarrassed about it, and trying to be open and talking about it. What I never thought is, let me try to get this money back. Let me try to contact authorities. That was until my birthday came around. Now, I said Grayson did a couple nice things. One of the nice things that he did is that he linked me with one of the hosts at the Venetian. And this host was a guy whose entire job was to make people who gamble a lot of money have a good time. And one of the ways he does this is by writing down all of their birthdays and sending them a nice little text that says, happy birthday. And I got that exact text. And when I got that text, some gears started turning in my head. I was like, wait a second. He probably has Grayson's number. Yo, can you send me Grayson's number? Within 30 seconds, I have his new phone number and I call. Bring, 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 bring. And Grayson picks up and immediately he's kind of like nervous. He's not normally like that nervous of a guy, but he's like stammering a bit. He's like, yo, Ludwig, what's going on, man? I was like, where's my money? <laughs> it's like the Stewie Griffin. Where's my money? He's like, dude, dude I, I got an insane story for you. And he tells me bar for bar this exact story. Dude, it's Grayson. I got mugged. I, I, they stole fucking so much cash from me. They stole my phone. They stole my wallet. I can't pay you out now. I'm like, what, what does that have to do with anything? Just give me the money I'm owed and let's go uh, on our ways. He's like, no, man, you don't get it. Like, obviously, I'm not scamming you. Why would I be talking to you right now if I was scamming you? I was like, okay, then why can't you send me the money? He's like, well, the way it works is that you find someone that you're going to gamble with, right? Like, like, I'm just a broker. I'm not the guy who does the gambles. You have to go to like a sports betting website. And the way you talk to these sports betting websites is you talk to them like on Instagram. So I'm talking to this guy on Instagram, and then, but, but they stole my phone. And when they stole my phone, they logged in to my Instagram, changed the password, changed the recovery email, so now I can no longer log into my Instagram account. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, that's what happened. But at this point, I'm fed up. There's nothing that he can say that will make me believe him unless the money enters my account and then he says it. But I start asking questions. What's the email that it was before? Uh, well, it's like my name, Grayson. It starts with a G. I'm like, okay, great. Is it on Instagram? He's like, yeah. Well, hey, man, I don't trust you for shit. I think you scammed me. I wish you would just admit it, but you're not going to do that. He's like, no, I'm not. I, I, got, I got mugged. He's like, all right, well, I'm going to go. Hang up. I immediately go to Instagram.com. 
I type in his username and then I type in forgot password, send reset link. It pops up and it says email sent to. Now, if you've ever done a password reset, you might have experienced this. It'll show you the email, but only the first letter and the last letter in at whatever it is at. So I look at it. It says G, asterisk, 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 S at gmail.com. And I look at the thing he gave me and it matches up. G, blah, 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 S at gmail.com. Ain't no fucking Y. Ain't no fucking K. Ain't no fucking way he thinks I'm going to buy this horse shit bag of lies. That's a clever thing he did. I give him credit there. So he just picked a small portion of the story about the Instagram thing and about the password being reset, the email being reset, and said, oh, they changed it? Yeah, well, was it under before? He gave him, and then uh, he looked it up and it matched it, which proved it was not changed. Oops. And so that leads us to where we are today. The authorities are getting contacted. I'm talking to other people he scammed to get a whole report to make sure this guy never does that shit again. I'm also trying to get him banned from every casino in Vegas so he can't do it and even walk into the casino unless he can prove in the next two hours that he didn't do it. And we'll find out because we just talked to him on stream today and he said he has to go home to get to his crypto account to be able to send me the crypto. Now, remember, this is his live stream that we're listening to, and the video we were listening to at the beginning, the same video, was him saying he got scammed, didn't get the money, and that this is basically him playing a previous stream he did. So I assume that Ludwig's going to take us to the present in the final few minutes here. I haven't watched this thing yet either. I like to watch these things with you guys at the first, for the first time so I can react genuinely to what I hear. That's where we're at. So what happened? Well, I talked to Grayson on the phone a couple times since telling that story, and I got him to admit that he's scamming me. I also hired a private investigator, and I think I have enough information that I can go to the FBI and even get him locked up. But I'm not going to do that. Yet. Grayson agreed to self-ban him from every casino in Las Vegas. If you don't know, you can actually send a letter to the casino, and they will ban you if you ask to get banned. I guess it's some gambler's anonymous thing. Now, I think this is what happened. Grayson is a gambling addict. He oversold his ability to gamble to get funds to gamble with for free. He had an overconfidence in his ability. He thought he would win, pay back the person, and use their interest-free loan to keep some of the money. That plan works until it doesn't. And he was in a really bad spot one night after losing $90,000 gambling in blackjack. The same week, he found this really good tennis bet that was a surefire hit, and he hit me up in a panicked state to get me to put all my money in, which is exactly what I did. I gave him $56,000. Of the $56,000, he only bet fifteen. The other $41,000 he used for various other bets. Most of them failed. Maybe some won, but even those bets, he ended up gambling in blackjack anyway. So he was in a state where he had about $0 and no way to pay me my $108,000 that I was actually owed. I don't know how Ludwig knows all this. I mean, Grayson told him. Well, why would you believe Grayson at this point? It's very possible that he didn't bet anything on that tennis match. And that that was just an excuse, and maybe he just read something about that tennis player broke up with her boyfriend. It's like, oh, this is a good story for an inside scoop I have, and then tells him, and then just takes that money and does other stuff with it, and actually hopes it loses. Maybe that's it. I, I don't know. But you can't just trust Grayson's numbers. 
So he came up with some elaborate lie about how he got beat up, his phone stolen, and then Instagram account changed. And if he logged into his Instagram account, the money would magically be there. But it's a lie. The money is not there. It doesn't exist. Maybe he has some money somewhere, can pay back some of it, but he'll never be able to pay back all of it unless he gambles again, which I don't want him to do, or he gets a job and works for a couple years, which I also don't want to do. I don't want some guy to be working giving me 10% of their paycheck. So- why, why not? What? Wait, why don't you want that? I, I understand you might have money, Ludwig, but why would you not want him to get an honest job and then give you something like 10% of his paycheck? That's exactly the best case scenario where the guy gets on his feet and lives a responsible lifestyle and has a normal job and then sets aside some of it every month reliably to pay back his victims. Why, why would you not want that? It doesn't make any sense. So what do I do? I either put the guy in jail or I publicly shame him and get him to ban himself from all casinos. I'm going to this route. And maybe you're thinking that I'm a bit soft and maybe I am. But I don't know. I think a 23-year-old kid who fucked up and is fucking people over deserves to get what's coming for them, but also deserves the other 70 years of their life that they're going to live. And he's lucky that he fucked me over because I told him this to his face. The amount of money that he scammed me for, 100 k is the amount of money that people die for. It's the amount of money people died for in uncut gems. That's the whole point of the movie. But I'm a YouTuber. And thankfully, because you guys watch my videos... It is crazy to say, but I'm all right getting scammed out of $56,000 as long as he never does it again. And if he does, if you ever hear a story, if you ever interact with him and, and he scams you or, or, or you see him gambling, let me know because I have the information to send to the FBI. He promised he never would. And now, Grayson, it's your turn to hold to that promise. And that's how I got scammed for over $100,000. Thanks for watching, boys. See you later. How does he know... That Grayson banned himself from Vegas casinos. Is he taking his word for it? I hope not. <laughs> okay, I won't do anything as long as you ban yourself from Vegas casinos. Oh, okay, Ludwig. Okay, well, did you? Uh, yes. Okay, we're square. Have a nice life. <sighs> I mean, maybe he verified it in some way, but you can't just call up a Vegas casino and say, hey, is such and such person self-excluded? That is information they won't give you. Now, maybe he could ask this host and the host could do him a favor and let him know if Grayson self-banned because these hosts do have information to that and hosts will sometimes do things that technically they're not allowed to do, but they'll do anyway as long as it's unlikely they'll get in trouble for it. So if a host has... Ludwig is one of his players, and Ludwig will sometimes show up there with a lot of money and go off. The host wants to keep him happy, and if the host can keep him happy by letting him know if a scammer who ripped him off that actually met him in the casino and hooked him up with that host, if he can let him know if that guy really did self-exclude, he might do it. But I don't know if he really did it. I don't know if Ludwig's even attempting to find this out. So I don't agree with the way Ludwig is handling this, aside from calling him out with his huge following. That's great. I'm glad he's doing that. Because that is going to make it a lot tougher for Grayson to scam anybody. You think anyone else is going to come forward? I'm sure we're going to get more people. I can't imagine these are the only two people. No, of course not. Of course not. That's why like you, you can't believe any of these stories that, that 
Grayson tells of, oh, this happened, then that happened. I mean, forget the mugging thing, which we know is fake, but even how he bet that 50000 that was sent to him. He could have taken it all to the blackjack table. He, he could have even wanted to bet on that tennis match, but thought to himself, hey, let me run it up first. So this way, not only will I be betting Ludwig's money, I'll be betting my own money. And think of how much I can have after all this, after I take my cut of what Ludwig is going to win, and I take my own win here. Wow, I've just got to run this up so I will have my own money to bet. Let me take this to the blackjack table. Oh, no, I'm so unlucky. Oh, let me try to get it back. Oh, I'm still losing. Ah, oh, crap, I'm broke now. Oops. It could have been like that. He may not even have thought that much. He might have just degended off. Yeah, I may have just said, oh, sweet, 50K. Okay, let me take that to Blackjack. Yeah. Now, the yeah. one thing that's weird here is that this part is out of order in the video. I'm going to play it again where he actually called up Grayson. I was hoping he'd explain this phone call. I'll play it for you guys again. But instead, it's like kind of out of context at the beginning of the video at the one minute, five second mark. And then we don't get to hear it again. But I'm going to play it for you guys now. One again. Am I understanding correctly? You actually had a good bet. The, the French yes. Open, that was a good bet, and you had some good tips on it. But you Correct. used that to rush me to send you all the crypto I had so you could make a bunch of bets for free. Correct. So you scammed me. Yes, Ludwig, I scammed you. Why is that, why, why is that word so hard to say? Why, why is it taking four months for you to say that? I wish we could hear more of that conversation. But yeah, yes, Ludwig, I scammed you is pretty damning. <laughs> now, strangely enough... This recording probably could not be used as evidence in any way in California, aside from the possibility that he informed Grayson that he is recording it beforehand or broadcasting it. Because if the person on the other end is not aware that you are recording them in California, then you cannot use it as evidence in any way. That's known as the two-party consent rule. So I didn't hear the whole conversation, obviously. We only got this little piece here. But if he did not inform Grayson that he's being recorded, then they could not use this. If, if he sends this to the FBI, this will not be usable evidence. This can be something that will make the FBI more convinced that Grayson's really doing it. But they could not use this against Grayson in a legal fashion. As far as the possibility of Grayson being arrested for all of this, it's possible, but it's not as likely as you think. The fact that he's doing this serially will help, and the fact that there is a somewhat high-profile victim will help. But what ends up happening is that law enforcement doesn't like to get involved very much with gambling-related disputes. They don't like these disputes where someone says, oh, I gambled with this person, they didn't pay me, or I sent someone money to gamble for me, and they ended up taking it and gambling on something else. Because I do believe that Grayson probably really gambled the money. I think Grayson probably didn't keep it or store it away somewhere, or maybe he's used some of it to send other people. But I, I think most likely he did just degen that whole 50K off that night. So while that's not what was agreed... The bottom line is that Ludwig sent money to Grayson to gamble, and Grayson probably gambled it, just not the way he said he would. So when you start getting into these details, while you and I see it as a scam, while you and I see this as a criminal act, and while you and I would probably agree that Grayson should go to jail for this, unfortunately, law enforcement isn't that impressed with these type of stories.
they tend to see uh, gamblers disputing with one another about how they lost their money gambling. Yeah, we, we don't really care about this. That's unfortunately how it's seen. So I think Grayson can just keep doing this until enough of the word gets out about him. Or maybe he'll finally get in trouble with law enforcement. Maybe finally someone will really hurt him physically to where he'll not want to do this again. So far, that hasn't happened. And unless he really did ban himself from all Vegas casinos, which, of course, he can go to non-Vegas casinos. But unless he really banned himself, I would strongly believe this is going to continue happening and might still be happening. You may say, well... Now that Ludwig put it out there with his 1.5 million subscribers, now he's pretty much done, Grayson. But no, not necessarily, because most of Ludwig's subscribers are kids. I don't mean little kids, but it's mostly people who Grayson's not going to be aiming this at. Grayson likes to hang out at the casino and talk people into believing he's this expert gambler and to give him money for it. So most of those people are not going to be watching Ludwig. And probably won't know. So the more this is exposed, the better. And that's the type of thing this show does. So I'm sorry I didn't put this out here in June. Not that it would have prevented anything, but I just somehow let it slip by, even though I posted the thread on Poker Fraud Alert back in June. But I thought it was important to put out here at this point. And obviously he's moving to higher amounts scammed than low four figures, low to mid four figures. Now he's hitting people for six figures. I guess he'll do whatever he can. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number if you want to call into the show. I got texted by the 480 area code showing me that Grace and Hunter Goss's Twitter looks fine. It doesn't look uh, inaccessible. Of course, the story was Instagram, not Twitter. But I think that Ludwig already proved that nothing was inaccessible. That was just a lie. Taking a look at the chat room, I see that a person named Sate posted YouTubers make about two dollars to $3,000 for a video with advertisements and 1 million views. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's what he's claiming, that if you have a video and it gets a million views and you have it monetized, you'll get between 2 and 3K. Interesting. So that video that Ludwig posted earlier by those metrics would have made somewhere between 3K and $4,500 so far, which doesn't come anywhere close to 100000 but I guess it's better than nothing. If I had that type of channel, if I had a channel which was getting more than a million views every time I posted a video, I would be very tempted to just put up like tons of videos. Like I wouldn't put up crap, but I would be very tempted to just like anytime I could think about making a video to make a video. You don't want to ruin your brand and put up shit and drive people away. But at the same time, it's, it's hard not to make videos when you're getting paid a few thousand dollars each one. So moving on to something else shady, but of a very different sort. This one is actually not really about money. But there can be shady things that don't have to do with money. And this one has to do with sex. It's about the city of Las Vegas, just something that happened to the city of Las Vegas. So that's the reason I'm telling this. It has nothing to do with poker or gambling. But I thought it was amusing, kind of amusing and disturbing at the same time. So I decided I'd tell it out here. A Vegas property manager 
drew up a ridiculous contract called a sex contract to force a Section 8 tenant to have sex with him. So here's what happened. Alan Rothstein, and Alan is spelled with two L's, A-L-L-A-N, Alan Rothstein, who was a Vegas property manager and real estate agent. And he's had this career since the mid-70s. So as you can imagine, he's not a young guy. He's been involved in real estate since 1976. Now, I'm not a young guy, but I was four years old in 1976. So you can imagine how old Alan Rothstein must be. Well, he's even older than you might think. He's actually 81 presently, and he was 77 at the time of the alleged events I'm going to tell you about. So this guy, I don't know if he can still get it up at the age of 77, but he definitely still had a sex drive at 77 that made him do some pretty shitty things. A woman named Candy Torres, exactly as it sounds, Candy Torres had five kids and basically no money. And she was about to be homeless. But she qualified for Section 8 housing, which is a federal program where the government will pay people's rent. But in order to qualify for Section 8 housing, you have to apply for it, then get approved, and then you have to find a place that is going to take Section 8. Landlords are not required to take Section 8. Some do because they like the free money that the government's going to send. They know the tenant is going to pay their rent because uh, the government's paying it. But sometimes they don't want to take Section 8 tenants because the Section 8 money is not enough or they just don't want these type of tenants in the building because some of these Section 8 tenants tend to be more trouble on average than uh, non-Section 8 tenants. So it's up to the landlord if they want to take Section 8. This is not something that's required. So she needed to find a landlord who was going to accept Section 8. And she came into contact somehow with Alan Rothstein, who was the property manager for someone who owned some places to rent in Vegas. So there was a house that Candy Torres wanted to rent for her and her five kids. It was going to be a Section 8 rental and Rothstein said that they do Section 8 rentals. So, so far, so good. However, before allowing her access to the property in November 2018, Rothstein presented her with a sex contract. Now, here is the official name of the sex contract. This is actually the title on top of the, of the sex contract that she had to sign. And she did sign it, by the way. It is called Direct Consent for sexual intercourse and or fellatio or cunnilingus. (laughs) Can you imagine signing that document? You go to rent a house and the property manager presents you with a contract, direct consent for sexual intercourse and or fellatio or cunnilingus. I mean, it I guess sounds like the setup for a bad porno. <laughs> it really is. You know? And this guy was 77 years old. It wasn't even like a, a young, good-looking guy who was presenting her with it. And this, this is to have this stuff with him, by the way. This is not just a, about the sex she will have in the house, which, again, this guy wouldn't have the right to demand. But this is about doing this with him. This is a contract for consent for sexual intercourse and or fellatio or conolingus with him. I mean... Be 77. Can he uphold his end of the contract? That's a good question. <laughs> so then I really wanted to get a copy of this contract. It sounds hilarious. I mean, it's disturbing. I feel bad for Candy Torres here, but 
it, that sounds hilarious. I, I really, really, really wanted to read the entire contract out loud on the air. I, I contacted some people who might be able to get a copy of it for me. Unfortunately, uh, while I was told that maybe it can be obtained, uh, it was not given to me by the time of this show, which is sad. But I, I do have a few little passages because I guess uh, a TV station in Vegas got a hold of this and they read some of it on the air. So I'm going to read you the passages that they made public. And then we'll talk about it. And then we'll also talk about this guy, Rothstein, that I found out some things about and about this uh, lawsuit that's going on in court right now over this whole matter. So here's one of the passages. Tenant swears signing this contract not under influence of an incapacitating intoxicant, aphrodisiacs, or psychoactive substances, including but not limited to alcohol, drugs, so, okay, he's basically saying that she's signing that she's uh, of sound mind and not under the influence of anything, that she's signing this when she's not intoxicated in any way. Okay, that's fine. She's not on alcohol, not on drugs, but then it goes on. Oysters, bremomalonatide, I don't know what that is, truffles, sea cucumber, what? <laughs> so she, she's not high on oysters, truffles, or sea cucumber. What does he have against sea cucumber? Strawberries, strawberries, that's, that's, that's arguably the weirdest one. Uh, lobster, dark chocolate. <laughs> the guy's just senile or something, gross. <laughs> but, but then he goes back more on track. Cocaine, LSD, cannabis, or any mind-altering chemical or substance, nor have they been given the same by initiators, meaning that she wasn't on this, nor did he give any of this to her. So she's certifying that he didn't give her any strawberries to get high on before signing the contract. Here's another part. Tenant swears that she does not currently have a boyfriend slash girlfriend slash parent who is larger, meaner, and more physically aggressive, owns firearms, and or is more possessive than the initiator. <laughs> not bigger and meaner and has firearms so her parents have to be smaller and less aggressive than <laughs> he is and and also they can't own firearms and, and also she can't have a boyfriend or girlfriend who's larger and meaner so i guess she's got a girlfriend that can kick this guy's ass that's not good either so he's a 77 year old guy yeah how does right how's how's this certified like so her parents her boyfriend and girlfriend like none of them are stronger than this guy that's that's hard to sign about a 77 year old uh and then they can't own firearms and they're not more possessive she's got to swear that so then i went and took a look at this guy's website i found his website it's vegasrxrealty.com i'm not sure what the rx stands for but vegasrxrealty.com it's still up he can't practice anymore, as we'll explain in a little bit, but it is still up, that website. I'm going to click on it right now, and I really encourage you to go take a look at this website. It down. makes Poker Fraud Alert look incredibly modern. <laughs> you know what? It might be down. Oh, that's too bad. Maybe you've gone... Oh, no. Here we are. It's just slow. <laughs> still loading. This really looks like it was created in 1995. If someone told you this was created 27 years ago and never updated, you would believe it. Remember on MySpace? Not created 27 years ago, Druff. Created poorly. Yeah. Because people could still design back then. I mean, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, so we're still waiting for the other part to load here. Remember on MySpace when you would go on and then someone would have like some kind of awful music playing in the background and you'd be searching the entire page or how can I turn this off? It would just like blast music. And even worse, sometimes MySpace would have a few different 
embedded pieces of music at the same time on the same page that would be competing with each other and it would sound awful and then you just try to find the spaces to turn them off there. That was part of the reason MySpace completely fell apart. It's not doing right now because maybe it's slow. But when you come on there, it immediately plays the Phantom of the Opera for you. <laughs> In the back, I have no idea what the Phantom of the Opera has to do with his real estate services. The, the website's actually called Real Estate Services. VegasRxRealty.com and it plays this obnoxious music in the background for whatever reason we're hearing here. I went to the About Us page. It has a picture of him standing next to like a, a statue of a giant frog, and it says, Hi, it's Alan talking to his friend. <laughs> That's very professional. Very professional. Then there's just like a jumble of text everywhere all over this website. The About Us portion, the main portion... There's also different things you can click on. Home, sell your home. Your, your is spelled U-R. Sell, sell your home for 1% to 1.5%, meaning commission. Listings, more listings. Fees, resources, property management. Yeah, we know how he does there. About us, reports, list hub. I wonder if list hub is like the hub network. Services, links, dash reports, and maps. These are all different things you can click on here. It actually has a phone number. Maybe we'll, we'll try to call Alan. I know it's a bit late, but and he's kind of old, but maybe we'll try to call him for a comment in a second. He has his phone number right there. Cell and fax. He wrote, My real estate experience started in Chicago in 1976. I moved to Las Vegas in 1977 to be with my parents. I have lots of experience in construction. I built my home in Canyon Gate. I moved the A-frame, Welcome Center building, from Boulder Highway to 3967 East Desert Inn. Got the zoning changed to commercial, upgraded it, and sold it. That's important stuff for the About Us page. I built any and all auto parts office building at 755 Sunset Road. The list goes on. Nothing about sex contracts, though. I really do suggest you check out that website, though. It's hilarious. Okay, so a few things have happened since then. His real estate license was revoked in February of 2022. Remember, this happened in 2018. And then the legal proceedings all started in 2020. Apparently, she refused to honor the contract. She signed the contract. She would not have sexual relations with him. And I'd say this was about like eight or nine months in. I don't know why he took so long to collect on this. Maybe he couldn't get it up. And, and he finally got the blue pill to help him. But whatever it is, he, he tried to collect on this like eight or nine months in. And then he filed for eviction when she wouldn't honor the sex contract. Then pulled back the eviction for unknown reasons. But then when November came around a few months later, 2019, then he just said, well, I'm not renewing your lease. And there's nothing you can do about that because I'm not evicting you. I'm just not renewing it. So she actually left the property. Now, the owner, remember, he wasn't the owner. The owner was unaware of this the whole time. I don't know how he found out, but eventually he found out and he was pissed. So the owner is actually the one who made a complaint against him to the real estate division in Nevada and got the ball rolling with all this. And now she is also suing him for damages here for a fair housing violation. The real estate division not only revoked his license, but they also fined him $94,000 over the whole thing. Now, you might wonder, could she perhaps have made this up or exaggerated? The answer is no. She was definitely telling the truth. 
because he admitted during these hearings for the real estate division in Nevada that the contracts were real, that this sex contract was something he actually presented her and she signed. He actually said that all documents speak for themselves. So he never once asserted that any of this was falsified. So it was a pretty straightforward case. And I I think Calwatt might be right that he is somewhat senile. Because to make up a contract like that and then actually just go right in there and say, yeah, yeah, the document speaks for itself. Like, how could he not realize, especially with 46 years experience in the industry, that you can't do this? It's not like in 1976 you could do this. You could never do this. But now you especially can't do this. So he got fined 94000 It's not clear if he paid yet. And he's presently being sued for a fair housing violation. And looking at the document that was associated with the Real Estate Commission from February 24th, 2022, it says that he's been a, a broker, a real estate broker in Nevada since 2013. This was revoked. The owner of the property's name is uh, Kyle Puntney. And uh, Kyle Puntney is the one who made the complaint. The complaint by Kyle Puntney, the owner of the property, was made on April 23rd, 2020. And not only that, and I don't understand this part of it. I mean, this part may make the least sense in this whole crazy story. When they went to go check on the address that Alan Rothstein gave for Vegas RX Realty, it turned out to be an auto parts store that had nothing to do with him. (laughs) Now, remember, he did brag about building that same auto parts store, whatever that means, but it's not his. So I don't know why he listed that. It says in this document, an investigation by the division on April 30th, 2020 showed that and quote, any and all auto parts shop was located at that address and not the respondent's brokerage. So I don't know why he put a fake address down for his brokerage of some auto parts store that he helped get built. They took away his license for both uh, being a broker and a real estate agent. So he can no longer practice any form of a real estate in Nevada as of February 23rd, 2022. And as I said, he was fined 94K. But as I said, there's also a civil suit presently going on. And I have to imagine he's going to lose that. I don't know how much he's going to lose, but how how can you not lose here? (laughs) That's pretty obnoxious to tell a Section 8 single mom with five kids that she's got to sign a sex contract in order to move in. And he told her that she has to sign it in order to move in. Looks like the only saving grace for him is that he never did actually have sexual relations with her. Also, apparently, at one point when he was uh, trying to collect on it and she didn't want to have sex with him, he said that she can just give him a hand job and that would be a good start. (laughs) Now, had she said yes, like, could he really have gotten it up for it? I'm really wondering about this. Now, it's not the case that no 77-year-olds can get it up. There are 77-year-olds out there that can get it up without the help of medication. But there's also a whole lot that can't. (laughs) And you can have a sex drive. You can have a strong sex drive and just not be able to physically perform. So that might be his case. I don't know. Now, how much of this is senility and how much is this just 
someone who's a piece of shit and finally is getting called out for it. I don't know. But the TV station covering this claims that there are other victims. This is from KTNV, Channel 13, Las Vegas. I'm going to play the report about this. For sex in order to rent a home as part of an ongoing federal trial now. 13 Chief Investigator Darcy Spears has the bizarre story of a property manager who required his tenant to sign a sex contract and is now facing allegations of discrimination, harassment, and fraud. Darcy, what is this all about? Well, you guys, it's actually hard to fathom that someone would put something like this in writing. We've had to cover some of the words because we can't show them on TV, but here it is in black and white. It's so crazy, I didn't believe it until I saw it in the court record. This is Alan Rothstein, the man who wrote the sex contract. Court records show he forced a prospective tenant to sign it in November 2018 in order to rent this four-bedroom home on Wedgebrook Street near Las Vegas Boulevard and St. Rose Parkway. At the time, Rothstein was the property manager and also a real estate broker. He lost both licenses after a Nevada real estate division investigation. He now stands to lose a lot more if a federal judge finds him guilty. He's currently on trial for violations of the Fair Housing Act in this lawsuit filed by his former tenant. And the facts are unlike anything this experienced housing lawyer has ever seen. My reaction was you had to be putting me on, that nobody in their right mind would go to the trouble to draw up a contract like this. No one involved would talk to us as the trial is ongoing. We asked legal expert Bruce Flammy to analyze the case. Have you ever seen anything like this? No, not even on bar exams in law school. Nobody has ever put something like this together that I've ever seen. Although, in all candor, I think there's more of these out there. Sources close to the case tell 13 Investigates this is not the first time Rothstein has done this and there are other victims. Yeah, they don't go on to explain exactly how they know that and who the other victims are, but they say sources claim this, which doesn't surprise me. I don't think he just saw Candy Torres and is like, you know what? She's pretty hot. I think I'm going to drop a sex contract just for her. It's, it's probably not the first time. This is probably just the first time it has come to public attention. Anyway, we're going to try to call him now. Good evening. Oh, yeah. Hello. Is this uh, Alan? Yes. Yeah, Alan, uh, hey, I, I read some coverage about you on, in the news. And, uh, you know, I know people are being real hard on you about the whole thing, but I actually am a landlord myself here in Vegas, and I'm hoping you could maybe get a contract drawn up for me like that because there's a girl that's renting one of my units that's really hot and she won't give me the time of day. I wonder if maybe you could help me draw up one of your similar contracts. I think I can word it in a way where I won't get in the same trouble. Is there a way maybe I could pay you to do that for me? <laughs> he hung up on me. <laughs> I think he answers the phone, good evening. Well, that's too bad. I was hoping he'd go for it. See, I couldn't ask him to do any kind of real estate work because he can't do it anymore. But I thought, I thought maybe he'd get some side work drawing up a contract for me. No, the, the move rough would have to be you'd have to be a female calling up looking for a place to stay. <laughs> That's the problem. I couldn't have a hot enough female voice to get it going for me. Though I may, maybe I could pretend to be trans. Just be like Caitlyn Jenner who still has a man voice. Maybe he'd go for that. I don't know. I wish I could ask him, like, would, it, would he do the same thing 
with a passable trans girl or a non-passable trans girl even? If they say they're female and put on a dress, is that enough? Will there still be a sex contract or is this only for genetic females? See, these are questions that I wanted to have answers and he's not going to answer for me. Well, that's too bad. That's too bad. I, I hope to get more of a call. He answered the phone at least. We got that. All right. We're going to move on here. Talk about something a bit more serious. Predict it. I used predict it. I used predict it pretty much every major election. Predict it is, but may not be for much longer, a legal political betting site. But it is not based out of the U.S. And I always thought the whole thing was weird. What I thought was weird is the fact that it's legal. I mean, anyone could slap up a gambling site offshore or located in some other country and then serve U.S. gamblers. But this is one that is legal to where they don't have to worry about getting busted. And I always wondered, how are they able to do this? Why are they able to do this? Especially because they are not located in the United States. So Predicted is actually run by Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. And the fees are incredibly high. That's the big problem with Predicted, is that the fees are really high. The only thing that has no fees is to deposit. But when you withdraw, the fees are very high. And whenever you make a profitable transaction on there that makes you money, they take a pretty decent chunk of it. So I compare this to a really good poker game where the rake is crazily high and you wonder, can I win in this game? Well, for me, the answer was yes. And for a number of other people I know who follow politics well enough and don't let their biases get in the way. And that's what you've got to do. If you follow politics and you have a particular political side you prefer, like I obviously do. You guys know I'm a conservative. I always vote Republican. So does that mean I'm always betting on Republicans unpredicted? Of course not, unless I wanted to lose all my money. Sometimes I bet on Republicans. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I bet the opposite way from the way I would otherwise like to see the race go. So you have to be able to take your emotions out of it when you are making bets. You need to honestly assess the chances of the candidates you're betting on. And it's not even just who wins and loses. You can bet on the margin that they're going to win by. You can bet on a number of things related to politics there. Sometimes you're not even betting on people. Sometimes you're betting on like the number of House seats the Republicans are going to have after the election. Stuff like that. A lot of different political bets they offer there. Far more than any site I found anywhere on the web. Legal or not. They had a lot of different bets you could place. However, it was not like a regular sports book. Like, let's say you wanted to bet on the results of the 2020 presidential election. You can't just go on there and say, okay, $500 on Joe Biden, please. You, you couldn't do that. What you're actually doing is you are buying a share or multiple shares of whatever position that you want, whatever result you think that is going to happen you buy a share of that and the price is going to always be between one cent and 99 cents. And then if it comes true, that position will be worth a dollar. And if it does not come true, then after the result comes in, 
your position is going to be worth? Zero point zero. So obviously you're going to make or lose money on that. So let's say you buy something at 10 cents and then it ends up winning. Then all your shares you own will now be worth a dollar. So let's say you bought 100 shares of something at 10 cents. Well, you only paid $10 for it. And if it ends up winning, then it's worth a dollar. So now your 100 shares are worth $100. So that means you made $90. That means you won at 9 to 1 odds. Not 10 to 1 because your original bet is in there. But your 10 became 100, meaning you get back your original 10 plus another 90. So you basically won a plus 900 or 9 to 1 underdog there. So obviously you did very well on that. So that's how these work. Now, let's say you bought it at 90 cents. Well, then you didn't make very much because you paid $90 in the first place and now you have 100. So that's better, but you didn't make very much at all. So that was a big favorite bet. However, it gets more complicated when you look at the matter of the fees because they take some sort of, uh, I forgot what it is, but some sort of uh, fairly high rake out of each profitable transaction you have. So if you lose, they don't take anything, of course, because you've lost. But if you've won, I think they take like 10% or something way too high. And that comes out of it too. And then there's withdrawal fees. Remember, you can deposit all you want for free, but then you have to pay like a 5% withdrawal fee. So you also have to be careful not to load too much money on there because if you break even, you're going to end up losing on the withdrawal fees. So you don't want money that does nothing on there. Any money you put on there, you want to be betting with it. Otherwise, you're loading needless money that you're going to withdraw later and pay a 5% fee. You can offset this a little bit by doing it with a credit card that you get some kind of rewards with, whether it's cash back or miles or whatever it is, because you're not charged any kind of cash transaction fee or anything like that. It's just like a regular purchase. So I have a credit card that gets me 2% cash back. So at least that would help me some with the withdrawal fees because my deposit, I would get 2% back cash for my credit card. But still, I was paying a shitload of fees. So the question became, am I good enough at this political betting compared to everybody else to where I can overcome the fees and still make money? And the answer was yes. I ended up winning on that site. And I didn't get rich off of it, but uh, just about every election I bet on when I say every election, I mean every like election cycle, I came away with more money than I had before. So that was nice, but I paid a lot in fees, and sometimes I wouldn't do these big favorites because with all the fees, it just wasn't worth it. It just made it I make such little money from the whole thing that it was not worth tying up that money or depositing more to put on there because you can actually win yet still lose. Like, let's say you put on $100 to buy a position that's at $0.98 cents because you're so sure it's going to win, well, then it does win. So, okay, you've made 20 bucks, but then when you go to withdraw the whole thing, or not 20 bucks, you make uh, 2 bucks. If you made 20, it'd be fine, but you made 2 bucks. But then we, when you go to withdraw that 100 you end up paying 5%, so there goes 5 bucks. So you've actually lost money, and that's not even counting the fees that they're going to take out of the profit you've made. I think they take like 10% from the profit, not from the whole bet, but from the profit of the bet. 
So there are all kinds of these terrible fees on there. And you had to figure that in. For that reason, underdog bets tended to be a much better value on there. Well, actually, for that and other reasons. Another reason they were is that that's where people would sometimes overlook value that the bet definitely has. There's only so much value you can get on a favorite bet or even an even money bet. The best one I ever did on there was the primary in 2016. I got 11 to 1 on Ted Cruz being the nominee from Alaska for the Republican Party. And he was. He beat Trump in Alaska. Now, why did I pick Ted Cruz there? Was it because I love Ted Cruz? No, not really. Uh, It was because there was very little polling data. But from what I knew of Alaska politics, it didn't seem like that was the type of place where there would be tremendous support in the Republican Party for Trump. I kind of pictured that Alaska would be a place that kind of could go either way as far as who they're going to nominate. At that point, it was pretty much down to either Cruz or Trump. And I said, you know, really, I'm kind of 50-50 on this, of whether it's going to be Trump, who's currently the favorite, or Cruz, because I think they're kind of more likely to go for someone like him over there. So it was kind of 50-50 in my mind. I'm getting 11 to 1. Of course, that's a tremendously plus EV bet, provided that my analysis was right. Well, I was, and Cruz won fairly easily. So that was very nice. And the reason I thought that uh, this is such great value is because there's basically no polling over there, because it's such a small state and no one was really caring about it. So that's the type of thing where you can find value, where there's not a lot of polling. So even the sharp bettors there sometimes will overlook it because there's no data to look at as far as making your decisions. You have to kind of feel it out. So that's the type of thing I would look for there. That was one of my success stories. I've had fail stories too, where I bet on something and lose. And I also have stories where I'm very much leaning towards doing something and then talk myself out of it and then it easily wins. Like someone I could buy at six cents and don't and then they end up winning. I've had that a number of times as well. You definitely have to follow a lot of obscure political news to do well on that site. You really have to have all the data possible before you make any bets and you have to watch any recent developments that may affect the price or ones that maybe haven't affected the price yet, but will soon. So just because something was a good bet yesterday doesn't mean that today it's a good bet. So you really have to keep up on a lot if you're going to do it. So it's not something effortless. And if it is effortless, you're going to lose. So why am I telling you all this? Because this is stuff I've been doing for years. I've talked about it before on the site, but I think not in as much detail. But why am I telling you about Predict It? The reason I'm telling you about Predict It is because there's some recent news involving them, and unfortunately, they are pretty much done. Predicted is circling the drain. And that is because Predicted was informed by the CFTC, which is known as the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, that their no-action letter is about to be revoked. You might be wondering, what is a no-action letter and why does this matter? A no-action letter is essentially a promise from the government that while they are not certifying that what you're doing is legal, that they're also going to leave you alone. It's a promise to you that they're not going to bust you. 
and they can revoke it at any time. Now, they can't revoke it with no notice, so they can't just revoke it and say, okay, and now tomorrow we're coming down to arrest you. They, they can't do that. They're, when they revoke it, then they give you some time to shut down operations, and then at that point, if after that time passes you still don't shut down operations, then they can come arrest you or, or hit you with some kind of consequence. But the CFTC gave this no-action letter to Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, in 2014. And they promised that until they revoke this, that there will be no action, meaning no negative action, taken against them for offering these political bets. Now, why would the CFTC do that? Why would they give this exception to Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, not even located in the U.S., to run a gambling site when nobody else can? Because there is no other site that you can use, to my knowledge, that you could do legal political betting except for this. So why would they give this to a New Zealand university? Well, Victoria University of Wellington asked for it and gave reasons to the CFTC why it should be allowed. And they based this upon something from way back in 1993. This is the history of predicted that I was not aware of until I looked into it recently. All I knew before when I was using predicted all these years is that it was legal and it was affiliated with the university in New Zealand. So I I basically trusted they're not going to disappear with my money. Predicted was given its no action letter based upon a precedent set by a sort of similar system at the University of Iowa back in 1993. Now, you may wonder how they could have an internet betting site in 1993 when the World Wide Web was not even invented until 1993, and when it was, it was barely used. So who would have been on their betting? Well, it was not a website. It was actually electronic betting, and I'm not sure how they did it. I'm not sure the mechanism that was used to bet, but it was some sort of electronic betting done within the University of Iowa in 1993 and you had to be affiliated in some way with the university of iowa i'm not sure if you had to be faculty or staff or student i'm not sure what you had to be but you had to be affiliated with the university to make these bets that were connected to political events and each individual was allowed a maximum of 500 dollars per market on that university of iowa system meaning that every political bet offered no person could bet more than 500. Now, why was this allowed at all back in 93? Because Iowa made the case, University of Iowa made the case that this wasn't really something to make money gambling. This was research. Now, how was this research? Well, they claimed that while everybody has their own opinions about politics, that when there's actual money on the line, that you're more likely to see a better predictive model. When people actually have to put their hard-earned dollars on the line as far as the results of a political race, then they can take their heart out of it and they can use their brain. And that a bunch of people together will pretty much set an accurate price. And the research at University of Iowa using this method was an experiment to see if this would better predict the results of political races than other traditional prediction methods such as polls. So that was the point of this. 
And of course, they had to allow real money betting to establish it. And University of Iowa said, look, this is a closed system. It's going to take place within our own university. And it can't be more than 500 per market, blah, blah, blah. And the CFTC said, okay, fine, go ahead. And they allowed it. But they said, you're not a casino. This is not going to be a fundraiser for University of Iowa. This is going to be something that you guys can't make money on. So yes, you can charge fees related to the expenses of running it and any kind of processing of the payments and all of that, but you cannot make anything. This has to be nonprofit. The individual bettors can make things or lose things if they win or lose, but the university cannot make money from this, even though it involves real money betting. And University of Iowa said fine, and they did it. This is back in 93. On a side note, I think University of Iowa was trying some kind of cutting-edge stuff online back in that era. That same year, 1993, I became aware of a BBS, a bulletin board system, an internet bulletin board system that you could connect to and sign up with and, and use for free as long as you had access to the internet, which I did in 93 through the university I was going to, which was nowhere near Iowa. And it was called ISCA. I forgot what it stood for. I remember the acronym ISCA. And it was a giant social BBS system where people could chat with each other and there were bulletin boards to post on, kind of like a forum. Very, very big thing where most of the people on there were, were from University of Iowa, but there were a number of people also from outside universities, and even a few people who weren't in universities, that used it as well. Strangely enough, Benjamin's mom told me that she was on there as well. And I said, wow, how did you find out about it? And she said that she actually found out about it from me back in 1993 that I told her about it and she got on there, which I have no memory of doing. It's really strange because had I told her at the time, and we weren't dating at the time, we, we knew each other and we were friends in 93, but we were never dating. And I would have thought that if I told her about it, I would be looking for her on there and maybe messaging her on there or whatever. But I must have like, quickly told her and forgot I told her because I never made an attempt to find her there. I would have remembered that because I remember there weren't really people on there for my school because I was pretty far from Iowa. And had I even seen anyone from my school, I probably would have tried to chat with them and said, hey, how do you find this? Who are you? But anyway, she was on there too. So I wonder if University of Iowa was just kind of doing cutting edge stuff on the internet back then. But back to this story and how this has to do with predict it. University of Victoria Wellington wanted to do something similar 21 years later in 2014. They must have heard about this Iowa thing in some way, and they wanted to do their, do their own. However, they didn't want it to be a closed system this time. They wanted to open it up to the world to participate. And since they were going to be doing this about American politics, because that's what most people follow, New Zealand politics there's, it's much less extensive. It's a much smaller country. So they wanted to do this based upon American politics. They wanted to open this up to American betters, not just people affiliated with their New Zealand university. But that was not allowed back in 93. The CFTC said, no, 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 it's got to be University of Iowa people here. But they asked the CFTC in 2014 if they can open this up to everybody, at least everybody in the U.S., they also asked if the $500 limit could be updated to 850 
Now, why a weird number like 850 Well, $850 in 2014 was equivalent to $500 in 1993 due to 21 years of inflation. So that was 500 adjusted for inflation in 2014 dollars. So they said, if you authorize 500 in 1993, it would only make sense to authorize 850 in 2014 since they have the same value. So that's what they were asking for. Basically, the same system, but with overall more bets allowed, because there was a a hard limit on number of bets that could be done in Iowa, a much higher limit for number of bets allowed, open it up to outsiders, and change the maximum allowed per bet from 500 to 850. Well, the CFTC said yes. They said, yeah, okay, fine. Sounds good to us. You can do it. Here's your no action letter. Go ahead, run it. But there is an important caveat there that also existed in the Iowa system. The system was not to be for profit. This is the exact text from the no action letter. There will be no additional fees other than those necessary to cover the basic expenses of running the market, including the cost of credit card processing of deposits and withdrawals, fulfillment of the know your customer process, and all other associated regulatory compliance and operating costs. So basically they're saying, you don't have to lose money on this, but you can't make any. Charge whatever you need to, to break even. And that's all. That's the most you can charge in fees. When I read that researching this story this week, I was shocked because I always complained that the predicted fees are very high and they must be making bank because it was a very well-used site. It's a very busy site, predicted. And I thought, wow, this has got to be a huge fundraiser for University of Victoria Wellington. That's really why I wasn't understanding why the U.S. government would allow this. If you're going to allow it, why not have it be a U.S.-based university so at least this money stays in the country? Why are they letting this money flow out to New Zealand? Why are they the only place that can do this? Well, it's because they weren't supposed to make money. This is supposed to be something that they're just covering their expenses. Well, I didn't believe that. I just read it this week. But when I read it this week, I didn't believe that they were making zero money. I think they were probably playing with the books to show that they were making zero money. But it's hard for me to believe they were making zero money given the absurd fees that were being charged here. It's just too much. Like the withdrawal fee being 5%. I don't think they have a 5% withdrawal expense. It really would surprise me if that were the case. Now, maybe they can say the combined expense of deposits and withdrawals is 5%, but I still don't really believe that. And then what about the like 10% fee they were charging on any profit you make? What's that paying for? They could say, well, you know, we got to pay for the staff and the know your customer process, but it just seemed like they're taking in way more money than they need to spend on this stuff. I have a feeling they were making some good cash here. Remember, this is supposed to be educational. That's why the CFTC allowed it. That's why they allowed it in 93 for University of Iowa. That's why they allowed it in 2014 for this updated and open to everyone version at University of Victoria, Wellington. Because it's educational, because it's a way to study predictive modeling for elections. But I don't think that's what this is really about. I think University of Victoria, Wellington had two purposes here. One is to maybe study this a little bit, but second, to raise some nice money from the school, from 
people in the U.S. who just love gambling. So I have a feeling that this is what got them into hot water. Well, something got them into hot water because on August 4th, 2022, about eight years after being authorized to operate with this no-action letter, the CFTC has withdrawn the no-action letter from University of Victoria, Wellington. That has killed Predicted's legalized status, but they have a grace period of approximately six months. So at the moment, it is still legal to bet on there. At the moment, you can still deposit. At the moment, you can still make new accounts. At the moment, you can still withdraw. And at the moment, it is all as legal as it was for the past eight years. However, in February 2023, unless something changes between now and then, it will not be. I found out about this because Predicted itself admitted it. They put up a notice on their site that this is happening. CFTC has their own press release about it, dated August 4th, 2022. Remember, that's the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. It is a government agency. It says the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's Division of Market Oversight, known as DMO, today announced it is withdrawing CFTC letter number 14-130 effective immediately. When DMO issued the letter on October 29th, 2014, it took a no-action position with respect to the operation of a not-for-profit market for certain event contracts and the offering of such contracts to U.S. persons by Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, without registration as a designated contract market, foreign board of trade, or swap execution facility, and without registration of its operators. Let me stop right here. What they're basically saying is not only are they withdrawing this no-action letter, but that when they granted it, they granted it for a not-for-profit operation, and that basically they were treating it as something that was not trading, even though it technically was trading, because something I left out that's very important here is that unlike traditional betting, you can bail out at any time at the existing price. So let's say I bet on tomorrow's game with the St. Louis Cardinals and whoever they're playing. Let's say I bet on the Cardinals and I bet $130 to win 100, which would be a minus 130 bet, meaning I bet 130 to win a profit of 100. There's only two outcomes that can come from that. Either the Cardinals will win and I'll make $100 or the Cardinals will lose and I will lose $130. I can't decide in the seventh inning, you know what, I'm going to bail out of this bet, and I'll get some of my money back. You can't do that. Now, you can sort of do that by betting back against yourself, against your original bet, through like live betting on a different site, or I guess even the same site, but still then you're going to lose house juice the both ways, so that's not really the best practice to do. But you can't just say, I'm going to sell out my position and cancel my bet. It's a bet that's going to have an outcome either way, and you're stuck with it once you've made it. With Predict It, since you're buying shares, you can sell your shares off at any time. So if you buy a share of a position, something you think is going to happen politically in an election, and you buy it at, say, 16 cents, and then it goes up to 32 cents, and you go, you know what? I still have my doubts whether this is going to really win. So rather than wait for it to lose and go to zero, I'm just going to sell it right now. So you can go sell it for the 32 cents 
and basically make 100% profit minus the fees they take out, and then that's it. So even if it ultimately loses, at that point, you're out of it. It doesn't matter. Then if it goes on to win, you'll you'll regret it because you could have made three times as much, but uh, you can bail out at any time. And sometimes it's actually smart to bail out near the end, where like let's say something goes up to like 92 cents that you got for 30, but you could see many scenarios where it can get screwed and ultimately lose. You may want to bail out and take the 92% payout rather than wait for 100 and maybe get screwed. So that's part of the strategy there too, is bailing out at the right time. Sometimes you don't bail out at all. Sometimes you do bail out saying, okay, I think this is worth bailing out at this point. I think it's overvalued at the moment, what it's currently trading for. So the CFTC is saying that, yes, this could be seen as a trading market, which would need registration as a designated contract market or swap execution facility or even a foreign board of trade since this is occupied, this is being offered by a foreign country that we're not going to make you do any of that. We could. We could hit you for all this stuff. We could say you have to register as a designated contract market and then maybe not allow you to or a foreign board of trade or a swap execution facility. But we're not going to do all that. We're, we're just going to leave you alone. We're just going to pretend this isn't happening. But at any point, we can revoke this. Remember that. That's basically the letter they got on October 29, 2014. They went on to write, DMO, remember the Department the Division of Market Oversight, DMO, has determined that Victoria University has not operated its market in compliance with the terms of the letter and as a result has withdrawn it. Uh-oh. As stated in the withdrawal letter issued today, to the extent that Victoria University is operating any contract market in a matter consistent with each of the terms and conditions provided in CFTC letter 14-130, which is what they were originally given to be able to operate back in 2014, all related and remaining listed contracts and positions comprising all associated open interest in such markets should be closed out and or liquidated no later than 11.59 p.m. Eastern on February 15th, 2023. Well, well, well. That is basically saying that they are going to be shut down after February 15th. That people who have existing bets that will resolve before the end of February 15th at 8.59 p.m. Pacific, 11.59 p.m. Eastern, that they can still process those as normal, but they can't offer any new bets, and any bet at, at any bet that ends after February 15th, they also cannot offer. Now, I don't know what they can do about bets that people currently have that resolve after February 15th, like bets on the 2024 presidential election. And I don't know how many of those exist, but basically everything has to be done by February 15th or the problems will start for the University of Victoria in Wellington. Now, this is a letter that was sent withdrawing the no action letter from 2014. This was addressed to Dr. Margaret Highland, PhD, who is the vice provost of the uh, University of Wellington, Victoria. Dear Dr. Highland, as you're aware, on October 29, 2014, the Division of Market Oversight, DMO, issued 
Letter 14-130, granting the request of University of Wellington, New Zealand, Victoria, that the division not recommend enforcement action, no action relief, against the university in connection with its operation of an online not-for-profit event contract market in the U.S. for educational and research purposes without registration of a designated contract market, swap execution facility, or foreign board of trade, and without registration of its operators subject to terms outlined in the letter. According to the terms of the letter, DMO granted the relief based upon the representations of the university that the proposed event contract market would, one, be small-scale and not-for-profit, two, be operated for academic and research purposes only, three, be overseen by faculty at the university without receipt of separate compensation, meaning that anyone at the university who is working on this cannot get extra salary for working on this. This has to be part of their duties they're already paid for. And number four, offer event contracts consisting of two submarkets for binary option contracts concerning political election outcomes and economic indicators, meaning this is all you can bet on politics and it has to be done in this uh, share format where ultimately each share is worth $1 or zero. Five, be limited to 5,000 traders per contract with an $850 investment limit per participant in any contract. Six, not offer brokerage services or charge commissions to participants. Seven, use utilize a third-party service provider to perform know-your-customer due diligence on participants. Eight, only charge those fees necessary to cover the fulfillment of the KYC process, meaning know-your-customer regulatory compliance and basic expenses to operate the proposed event contract market. And nine, Limit advertising to media outlets where there is a high likelihood of reaching those interested in the subject matter of its event contracts, provided that such advertising prominently discloses that the platform is unregulated, experimental, and being operated for academic purposes, meaning they can't put out ads saying, gamble on politics today, make big money. It's, it's got to just be, look, this is experimental, this is for education purposes, it's unregulated, but go ahead and do it if you want. The university has not operated its market in compliance with the terms of that letter. As a result, letter 14-130 is hereby withdrawn and as such is not available for the listing or operation of any new or related contracts. To the extent that the university is operating a contract market as of the date of this letter, in a manner consistent with each of the terms and conditions provided in letter 14-130, all of those related and remaining listed contracts and positions compromising all associated open interests in such markets shall be closed and or liquidated no later than 11.59 p.m. Eastern on February 15th, 2023. Should you have any questions, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, whatever. Give some contact info of people at the CFTC, which I won't bother to read you. So, it still did not say what they did wrong, which is interesting. The letter I am reading you was provided in that press release from the CFTC. This is not top secret stuff, nor did I have to contact any lawyers to get me these things or anything like that. This this was right out there on the web for anyone who wants to find it, but it still does not say what they did, but it does list the nine things they agreed to, and it's saying that it hasn't operated with these within these terms. So at least one of these nine things was violated, and I really think it has to do with the profit portion of it. I think that the CFTC realized that they were made into chumps, and that a foreign university has been making bank off of U.S. political betters and pretending that these fees are what's necessary to operate. <laughs> I don't know what took eight years to discover this. I discovered this as soon as I used Predicted for the first time many years ago. 
I didn't know that they had to be nonprofit, but had someone told me, oh, you know, predicted as nonprofit, they don't make a penny from this, my response would have been, <laughs> like, seriously, that would have been my response. But I guess the CFTC took eight years to wake up and realize this. I, I hope that's what they realize. I, I hope that's not just some ticky-tack violation that they think they found. But it doesn't seem like it because they're not offering them a chance to correct it. Notice they're not saying, if you don't fix such and such by this date, then we're going to take away the new action letter. It's like, no, guys, it's done. We gave you a chance. You fucked up. You're gone. Predict it's over. You have six months to finish out these contracts you've already sold. And you better liquidate everything by then, otherwise we're coming after you. That, that's basically what that letter says. So there's no chance for rehabilitation of predicted. Predicted is done. Now, what does predicted have to say about this? Well, predicted is claiming they did nothing wrong, of course. They're also not stating what they're accused of. But here is their notice that they have on their own website. Notice to traders, August 4th, 2022. The staff of the CFTC has withdrawn the no-action letter issued to Victoria University of Wellington. Here's what you need to know. The security of trader funds will not be affected by this action, meaning that this isn't like full tilt where you can't get your money. We intend to continue operating existing markets for trading through February 15th, 2023, unless they resolve sooner under their respective markets. In light of this decision, we are halting the addition of new markets. Well, not in light of this decision. Uh, they were told they have to. It's not like they're, yeah, you know, we think we should stop new markets. No, they were told they can't offer new markets. That's it. They, they can resolve what's there. They cannot offer anything new. No determination has been made on how markets with end dates after February 15th will be settled. That is a big problem. Hopefully none of you have anything tied up resolving after February 15th. Predict it will continue to accept deposits and new signups, which I think is unethical. Predict it will continue to honor all withdrawal requests. Well, of course, yeah, they need to do that. Predict it maintains that all open markets are within the terms of the no action letter. We know that our predicted community is incredibly strong and committed to this project. If you want to respectfully comment on this action, you can submit your comments to the CFTC here, and they give a link. Now, if you click on that link, then it brings you to a page where you just have to enter your comments to the CFTC. You also have to log in there, which is a pain in the ass. It's something called AristotleActionCenter.com. I don't even know what that thing is. It's not even like an official CFTC site. I believe it will actually submit your comments. Of course, Predict It wants people to be outraged and to send angry letters to the CFTC about this. But the bottom line is, I don't think it's going to change anything. And I don't think most people commenting even understand what they're commenting on. I'd be very surprised if this is not about the profit situation. It's got to be about the profit situation. What else could it be? Maybe it's because they got too big. Remember, this was not supposed to be a major site. This is supposed to be something that is taking up to 5,000 bets on each market and then closes. I never understood why they would close some markets, but I do now. Because once they take 5,000 bets, they have to close. It's possible they took more than that, and we're violating it that way. Maybe the CFTC just looked at it and goes, you know, this is just way too big. There's way too many people using this. It's become like a full-blown gambling site that people know to go to to gamble on politics. And no, that's not what we intended here. The CFTC probably realized that the whole research element is bullshit, or mostly bullshit. And as they cover for what's really going on, and that it's gambling in the University of Victoria 
Wellington is making money from it. That really looks like that to me as a user of Predicted who used it pretty heavily during election seasons. I'm not using it like every day, but whenever elections are coming around, I'm using it. I was planning to heavily use it in the November 2022 midterm elections, which now I'm not. And in fact, this is really going to hurt them because they're not going to be able to offer a lot of markets they would have otherwise offered. Otherwise, you would have like almost every race there you could have bet on. I mean, you would have had a ton of stuff to bet on in the midterms. And now you won't. Whatever's not there yet won't be there. The CFTC could change its mind, either from public comment or from predict it, convincing them they didn't do anything wrong. But I don't think after eight years that CFTC is just coming to them with this and not giving them a chance to correct it with information they don't know to be correct. I think they realize this is all a sham. A sham meaning not a scam, not where people are being cheated, but to where it became something it was not supposed to be. They thought this would be like a little bit bigger version of what the University of Iowa did, allowing outsiders being the main difference, but not that it was going to become like a big political betting site that is making money for the university when they're pretending it's not. So someone there at the CFTC said, okay, the jig is up. I don't know if they figured this out on their own, or if maybe someone complained if they lost money there. I'll also tell you that occasionally I have bet more than 850 bucks on a market, but not intentionally. I count on the system to stop me when I get to more than 850. And you may ask, well, how could I not know what I'm betting? Well, because you're buying shares, you're not entering money. So you're saying, give me this many shares. And and sometimes I'll put in this bet and that bet. And I think I'm putting bets on top of bets. And then sometimes you're betting on opposing things in the same market. I won't get into the whole thing, but sometimes it's hard to keep track of what you have invested in, in each market until you go look it up. So I'll just keep hammering until it tells me you can't do more than 850. But sometimes when it's all said and done, I have had more than 850 on the line. So while this was not intentional, this was also a violation of what they agreed to. But I think something like that, they would be allowed to modify because you couldn't just show up there and just outright bet more than 850, then it would stop you. So even if this was somehow happening due to a glitch in the system, which it must have been that, like, I don't think this is intentional. That's the type of thing they get a letter saying, hey, we've noticed this, please fix the issue. But here they're just being told, no, guys, it's done. It's over. You screwed up. So rest in peace, predict it. If you have money there, do you have to withdraw right now? No, I I don't think they're going to cheat anybody. I do think it's a good idea not to wait until the very last minute. Otherwise, it may be very slow. There's the small chance that maybe they won't pay you. It's, it's really one of these things where it's better to take the money out, whatever you're not going to use. So since they can't add any markets at the moment, and they probably won't be able to for the rest of their existence, I would browse what's available and make sure you're only betting on things that resolve before February 15th. So look at what's available. If any of these things appeal to you, then maybe keep some money on there for buying into those markets. But if you see the existing markets and nothing there looks like what you'd want to bet on, then there's no point you have money still there because they're not adding anything further. So then you might as well hit the withdraw button, get everything off, and that'll be that. Some people complained about this. Some people said that this is the CFTC overreaching. The CFTC is shutting down something good and fun, and why do they have to do this Everybody was enjoying Predict It. Why ruin it? 
Well, I can understand those thoughts, but you got to look at it another way. It's unfair that the University of Victoria Wellington gets to be the only one that really does this. This really should be something that an American company or university does. It shouldn't be done out of New Zealand. They shouldn't have the exclusive right to do this. And if the whole argument was, oh, this is for research and education purposes and we're not making any money, I don't believe it. I don't believe that was ever the case. I don't believe this even started as what was supposed to be just a research project. I think they knew the whole way that this shit was going to make money, and it did. I don't know that for a fact, but I would be shocked if it didn't. I bet if I could see an honest, and I mean honest, audit of their books, of expenses, I mean, I mean real expenses, versus expenditures, I bet they made bank. They shouldn't be allowed to continue doing that if that wasn't part of the agreement. Now, I do think the CFTC should maybe allow this from an American company. I think this is a nice model. I like this model, aside from the fees being too high. But aside from these crappy fees, I think this model was kind of cool. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Not only did I make money, it was fun. It made election season, which I follow anyway because I enjoy politics, it made it more fun. And it also provided me an intellectual challenge that often was where I had to moderate my own feelings about politics, where I had to bet on and sometimes root for people in the other party because it would benefit me. And sometimes I had mixed feelings where I really didn't want the Democrat to win a particular race, but I thought they were going to, and I thought unpredicted they were undervalued. And then it became an internal battle. Do I want the Democrat to win when I'm a Republican? Or do I want the Republican to win and cost me money? Hmm. Which side do you think I came down on eventually? What did I ultimately root for? Fattening my wallet? Or my preferred candidate to win? I think you know. Usually. Sometimes, if it was a major enough race, no. And sometimes I would even think, look, if this person wins, it could also affect me financially more than whatever I'm going to win here. So I could win here, but then lose later because of changes in tax laws and things like that. So that was the other reason to not always root to win in my position. But I separated myself because the truth is whatever I think and hope doesn't affect the race at all. I can only affect the race by catching by casting one vote. That's all I can do. Maybe I can affect it a little bit more by stating my opinion on my forum or my show on, or on Twitter, but I'm not going to make any kind of major or even minor impact on any political race, and I know it. So if I think something's a positive EV bet, then I will place a positive EV bet and not worry about whether I would otherwise be rooting for it or not. But it was interesting, like deciding on these things and really having to put aside my own biases that I have towards the Republican candidates. And I did it well. I didn't always win, but overall I won. And overall I clearly won. So I'm going to miss it. It was fun. But, you know, I understand. I understand why the government did this. Do I wish the government did this? No. But I understand it. If something was agreed to and the agreement was violated, then that's the way it goes. 
In fact, if I were in charge, if it were up to me, I would say, yeah, take it away from Predict It and give such a thing to an American university or company and allow them to make money. Don't just make it be nonprofit. Allow them to make money. Maybe allow a university to use this for fundraising. That's a nice way to raise some funds. People can gamble on politics, have fun, and then a university benefits from it. That helps society, right? But not a New Zealand university. If it's going to be all Americans on there, why should New Zealand be making this money? I mean, nothing against New Zealand. I I visited New Zealand back in the mid-90s. It was a very nice place. I'd like to go back sometime. It's very, very far. Otherwise, I probably would have gone back by now. It's an interesting place. And one day, I'd like to go back there, despite the very long travel time to get there. But I don't think they should be making the money in something like this. I think it should be staying domestically. So that's the end. Pretty soon for Predict It. Moving on. Three poker players who are from Los Angeles were arrested over a very dumb cheating scheme they came up with involving dog-earing cards in Las Vegas casinos. And let me just say, it didn't work out for them. It temporarily worked out in that they did win money from this scheme. But it was one of these things where it was pretty much destined that they were going to get caught and then not only face criminal charges, but also have to return the money. So they end up on the ass end of the whole thing in every way. Three guys who are of Armenian descent, and in fact, I think they may have been born in Armenia, but uh, currently uh, live in the Los Angeles area. I haven't heard of any of them, but uh, two of them have substantial results in tournaments, poker tournaments, most of which were in the L.A. area. There's a decent chance I played with some of these guys before and just don't remember them. They're all like middle-aged-looking Armenian guys. And there's a lot of Armenian guys who play poker in the L.A. area. I mean, a ton of them. So, yeah, you tend to forget them unless you know them really well. And they're all, well, not all, but mostly around the same age group. They're all like kind of middle-aged or older middle-aged. So, you see middle-aged Armenian guys, unless you play with them a lot, you kind of forget who's who. The three who were arrested here were Pogos Smitian, Vahan Sudzian, and Givorg Avagian. Whenever you see Y-A-N at the end of a last name, it's usually someone Armenian, especially if they're from... Southern California, and especially especially if they're from Glendale, California, which I think these guys are from Glendale. Glendale is like tons of Armenians. I remember I was playing a commerce and a regular in the Limit Hold'em game, an Armenian woman who was there like all the time back then. She was talking about traffic and how she has to leave at such and such time in the morning to avoid traffic. And I said, yeah, I have to imagine from here to Glendale, the traffic is fairly heavy. And she ba- said back to me, wait a minute, are you assuming I live in Glendale because I'm Armenian? I said, well, yes. And she said, well, that's that's not nice to be doing. I said, well, are you from Glendale? She said, well, yes, but you shouldn't assume. <laughs> I believe these guys are from Glendale as well. They're definitely from the L.A. area. And they were arrested 
over something they did in uh, 2021. I'm not sure why this was made public now, and I'm not sure why the third of these three guys, the one who was uh, not agreeing to a plea bargain, I'm not sure why he was officially arrested just this month. Not sure what took 13 months here, but that's the way it was. But anyway, this all occurred in early July of 2021. The casino manager at Paris, Caesar's property, you know, where the World Series of Poker takes place, but wasn't taking place yet last year, contacted the Nevada Gaming Control Board on the 4th of July of 2021 and reported that these three were, quote, actively bending cards during their gameplay. Investigators wrote in court documents related to the situation, card bending is a method of cheating where a player bends the corners of playing cards one way or the other based on their values. This enables a player to know what value the dealer's whole cards are based upon the way it lays on the table game. So they're basically dog-earing cards, and they're bending it a certain way to indicate you know, what was a 10, what was a low card, whatever. So this casino manager at Paris told investigators that he was bending all face cards and aces to gain an advantage during their gameplay. Now, was this blackjack? Actually, no. They were playing the table games Let It Ride and Mississippi Stud. Now, those are usually not games you can play with positive expectation, but if you're cheating, yeah, sure. So they definitely were playing positive expectation with the card bending because they could modify their decisions based upon the cards that they saw were going to come out and they did win money at Paris. They won $126,000 combined. And I guess what happened was uh, they were reviewing video of their previous play at the table and then detained them. Then they were able to get a hold of the decks that were used during those games, which was, I guess the same day. And they found that all face cards and aces on both decks were bent either, bent either inward or outward in relation to the front side of the playing card, meaning that uh, the part that you couldn't see anything, you know, the, back, the, the card that uh, didn't have anything about the pseudo rank, you know, I guess it would really be the back side of the playing card, that uh, the bend was either inward like... Uh, you couldn't see the edge of it or outward where you see the edge sticking out uh, based upon what they were. Now, what's so stupid about this is this isn't subtle. Like, how do they expect this isn't going to be seen and caught? That must have been what made the casino staff become suspicious of this because when every card is bent like this, or every, every face and ace is bent like this, how, how do they explain this? They're not going to go, oh, well, that's funny. Every 10 and ace in the deck is bent in a funny way? Hmm. Wow, I guess the dealer's just handling these cards a little bit too roughly. No, I mean, obviously that's being done on purpose by the players. It was not just Paris that was hit, though. The win, a day later, contacted the Nevada Gaming Control Board and said that they were also victimized by these three, but they were not hit for as much money. These three cashed out $19,000 as a result of the cheating scheme over there. Now, at that point, uh, they went to the hotel room at the Wynn where Pogos Sumitian was staying. But by that point, uh, he had left the room. They were detained at the time. So that's what makes me wonder why they were arrested much later. But they were detained. 
And in fact, uh, Pogo Sumitian said that he was having chest pain while he was detained and needed medical assistance. And they actually brought him to the hospital and they examined him and apparently it was just an anxiety attack, which I don't think was faked. I think that he probably was freaking out because he knew the jig was up and he's going to get in trouble. I mean, it's a moronic scheme, but the idiot thought he was going to get away with it. So when you're realizing that now they've caught you and that there's going to be consequences for this, you can understand why these guys were uh, getting nervous. So Pogo Sumitian was uh, brought to the hospital, but everything was fine and he was released. So two of them ended up uh, doing plea bargains. But Pogos Sumitian was the one who did not do plea bargains, so they are charging him, and that's what was just announced. Before that, this had not come out yet, and that's why we're discussing this for the first time. Pogos Sumitian faces charges of committing fraudulent acts in a gaming establishment, cheating a gambling establishment, and cheating at gaming. And the police arrested him just earlier this week on Monday. Vahan Sudjian and Givorg Avagian took plea deals on charges of conspiracy to commit a crime, and they were arrested previously. So I'm not sure why Pogus was the last one. It's possible that they gave them all a chance to agree to a plea bargain before officially arresting them, and that Pogos was the one who said, no, I'm going to take my chances in court. So two of them who agreed to the plea bargain were arrested then, and then immediately entered their plea, and Pogos would not, and they probably just arrested him now, and they're charging him with a lot more. That was a dumb scheme. That was stupid. That was pretty stupid. If you're going to come up with a scheme to cheat the casinos, you, number one, have to have an exit strategy, and number two, it has to be something likely to succeed, and this was highly unlikely to succeed. And what surprises me is that while this scheme was moronic, obviously these guys aren't morons because I see that at least two of them have success in poker. So Pogo Sumitian has 420000 in caches. That's not his profit. That's his total caches, including all the buy-ins. The best live cash he ever had was thirty k. So he's never won a huge tournament, and most of the tournaments he enters tend to be... Uh, three-figure buy-ins, but he has played as recently as April 2022, because he cashed then. So he was still playing after this all happened. And he also got a circuit cash, a World Series circuit cash on March 13th. His Hendon Mob results go back many years, as far back as 1997, where he played at the LA Poker Open in Gardena, California, at a $55 limit hold'em. He also has played events as high as 10K buy-ins, such as the California State Poker Championship main event in 2004, where he finished 8th for 22K. That was a uh, 10K buy-in. But most of his buy-ins tended to be smaller, with a few events mostly further in the past, were 5 or 10K buy-ins, sometimes 1K, 2K, he did enter and cash in an $1,100 WBT event in Los Angeles in February of 2020, right before all the COVID shutdowns. He finished 13th in that one for 2K and, I guess, profited uh, 
$900. So this guy is not like a high roller or anything, but he does play a lot of L.A. area tournaments and even continues to do so after this whole incident in July of last year. So he has 420 k total of uh, Hinden Mob recorded caches, and Vahan Sojian is actually uh, twice as successful in caches. He has uh, 851000 in live caches overall, which isn't too far from what I have. I have uh, just a hair under a million dollars worth of caches, and he has eight fifty. His best live cache is 168000 and he does have uh, some World Series caches. He got uh, 130th place at uh, $1,500 No Limit Hold'em Six-Handed back in 2019. In 2014, he got 233rd in the $1,500 No Limit Millionaire Maker. And uh, he also has some circuit caches, and his caches date back to 2007. So these are both L.A. area veterans who've played mostly in L.A. venues, by commerce, but occasionally go to Vegas and uh, play as well at the World Series of Poker or other events. And apparently they have this uh, brilliant scheme to dog-ear cards. And here they are, arrested. They have agreed to pay back the money that was illegally won here. That is the two who did their plea bargain. And I have to imagine that Pogo Sumitian, when he likely loses his criminal case, will be sentenced to that restitution as well. So they're going to walk away from this poorer and with a criminal record. Very, very dumb. There's some people that say, hey, I don't care if someone cheats the casino because the casino is not an individual and the casinos are constantly looking to manipulate people into losing all their money. And I understand those arguments. I I don't think that... uh, that still justifies actual cheating of casinos. You guys know that I do support advantage play, where using your own head, if by the rules and legalities of the game, that you can give yourself an edge and not be playing at a disadvantage and win money that way, I think that's great. That's something that everybody who can do should have the right to do. And if they do that, I don't think they should get in any trouble or be harassed in any way. So I'm very supportive of the advantage play community. But as far as direct cheating, that's a different story. And this was just dumb. I have to say, I don't look down on this the same way I would cheating individuals. So if these guys scammed individuals in poker, or the gambling community, or anyone else for over $100,000, I would be looking at them in a much more negative light than a failed casino cheating scheme. Here, I'm just kind of looking at it like, boy, these guys were stupid. (laughs) Like, how do you have $850,000 worth of poker caches and not be wise enough to not try to pull something like this? Like, you think you'd be street smart enough about the way casinos operate to not attempt something as idiotic as this. But apparently not. The third guy, Givorg Avagian, has only $583 in caches. I also can't find a picture of him, but I do have a picture of the other two. And yeah, they just look like middle-aged Armenian guys. This Pogos guy looks like the older of the two, but neither of them are young. If I had to guess, I would say that this uh, Vahan Sojian is probably a little younger than me, 
And this uh, Pogo Sumitian is uh, a little older than me, just from the pictures I'm seeing here. But it does not list their ages, nor do I really care. Moving on, once again, it is time for a highly requested segment. Mojave Desert and Las Vegas History. 10,000 crickets died for your sins to make that intro. Remember that. Remember the sacrifice that goes into making this show. This is Mojave Desert and Las Vegas History. This is a segment we do every so often, but hey, what do you know? Back-to-back weeks here where we talk about one particular subject per segment having to do with either Mojave Desert or Las Vegas and some kind of historical aspect of either and sometimes how it connects to today. And once again, just like last week, we are going to bridge a historical story with something that is happening this week. And that's the best. That's why I was reminded of this particular topic, because it's very timely. And it involves a news story you've probably been hearing about if you have been following Las Vegas in the last few weeks, or if you live in Las Vegas. Or if you live in Las Vegas, there's a number of people we have listened to the show who are actually living in Las Vegas. I have had some people ask me, why do you do this segment? What is the point of Las Vegas history and Mojave Desert history if you are an L.A. guy? Well, I lived in Vegas for eight years. I still go to Vegas a lot. And this show has a big connection with Las Vegas. The World Series of Poker takes place in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is the gambling center of the world. And Mojave Desert is an area you drive through if you're going to go to Vegas from L.A. or San Diego. And I find it interesting. And I know a lot of you are also interested in that area of the country and learning more about it. So that's why I do this segment. Anyway, this week, we're going to talk about floods. Yes, I'm sure you've seen in the news about all the flooding in Las Vegas because there have been a lot of monsoon rains recently in Las Vegas. These big, heavy, fast-approaching summer rainstorms that pound the city of Las Vegas, that bust through ceilings to where you see torrential downpours of water into casinos. You see videos of flooded streets and parking lots. And we've had this already a number of times in the month of August, as well as late July of 2022. Now, this isn't doing a whole lot to fix the drought situation, because overall, the amount of water that is falling is not nearly enough to overcome the whole situation with not having enough water in the southwestern U.S. Remember, we're not just talking about enough water for Vegas. We're talking about the entire southwestern U.S. that is getting water from Lake Mead. So that's not really helping very much. It doesn't hurt. It helps a little bit, especially because when there is rain, then there's less water needed to be taken from Lake Mead 
to surrounding agricultural areas because the rainwater is replacing water that would have to come from Lake Mead. But still, it's really not making a big dent into that problem. So in case you think that's what we're going to talk about, we are not. This is not going to be really about Lake Mead at all. It's going to be actually about the city of Las Vegas and a myth regarding the city of Las Vegas because a lot of people don't understand those pictures and videos they see of the flooding in Vegas that occurs when there is some kind of quick and massive downpour that comes to the city. I'm sure you've seen the pictures of the parking structure, which looks like a river with how much water's flowing through. And all you can imagine is, wow, I'm glad I'm not in there. I'm glad my car's not in there. Wow, that sucks for those who parked in there. I'm sure you think that when you look at that. And I'm sure you're wondering when the parking structure is going to wash away, there's going to be some kind of death or major damage from this. You might also wonder, why are they not fixing this? How can we keep seeing the same thing happen over and over? Why are they so stupid in Las Vegas to keep allowing this flooding of the parking structures to happen? So I'm going to explain all that here and you're going to understand better. But to understand this, you must, of course, first understand the history, because this is Las Vegas history, and the segment's called Mojave Desert and Las Vegas History. We have to go back to 1959. In 1959, a hotel came up called the Flamingo Capri, and you may think this is about the Flamingo, the one built by Bugsy Siegel. You may think it's about the same flamingo that you currently see standing in Las Vegas on the corner of Flamingo Road and Las Vegas Boulevard. No, that's not the same flamingo. The Flamingo Capri was next to the flamingo that currently exists and the one that you know. Was it owned by the same people? No. And why was it called Flamingo Capri? Because it was owned by Bill Capri. And he wanted to have his name on it. He was actually a co-owner, but it was named after him. So the Flamingo Capri was right next to the existing Flamingo, which later became the Flamingo Hilton and then just Flamingo. And it was not affiliated with the Flamingo. They actually got permission to use the name. And they also had a contract to use the Flamingo's room service waitstaff. They also were allowed to use a replica of the Flamingo's champagne tower, which was famous at the time. So they had some kind of agreement with one another. I don't know what money exchanged hands to do this, why Flamingo would have allowed another Flamingo-named hotel right next door. And this, this was a 180-room motel, so it wasn't as big as the Flamingo even back then. It wasn't tiny, and it was right next to it. So you would think if it's not the same ownership, it's crazy they'd allow this, but that's the way it went. So the Flamingo Capri, different ownership, not affiliated, but they had some kind of cooperation. The Flamingo Capri claimed they had a Venetian canal through the hotel. Now, you might wonder, is this the same canal that you see at the existing Venetian hotel? Is that the same canal? No. The canal in the Venetian is completely man-made and a gimmick for the Venetian hotel. 
the Flamengo Capri was not in the location of the existing Venetian. That is all the way at Spring Mountain Road further to the north, and that was called the Sands at the time. The Flamengo Capri was closer to Flamingo Road. In fact, it is actually in the exact spot of the existing Link, the Link Hotel, also known previously as the Quad and Imperial Palace. The canal actually was a drainage ditch, and it had to be there. This was not a feature of the hotel. They pretended it was a feature, but it was not a feature. It was actually a drainage ditch that ran next to the Flamingo Capri, and it was there to prevent the area from flooding. The owners of the Flamingo Capri creatively called it the Venetian Canal and tried to dress it up as if you're next to a canal. Twelve years later, a man named Ralph Engelstad bought the Flamingo Capri. It was only a motel. There was no casino attached to it. And Ralph Engelstad decided that he was going to expand it. So he removed a number of motel rooms and built new ones. Then he added a 350-room tower in 1977. The original motel was 180 rooms. So after removing some of those, he then added a tower with 350 more rooms. Then he decided to completely destroy the remainder of the Flamingo Capri Motel. And the tower was the only thing left. And that was the Imperial Palace. And that's what remained the Imperial Palace through 2005. Ralph Engelstad actually had some controversy over the years because he had a fascination with Nazi memorabilia. So some people said that Ralph Engelstad was a Nazi and was sympathetic to Nazism, that he wasn't just having a uh, historical fascination with it, that he actually liked Nazis, and that's why he collected a lot of Nazi memorabilia. In fact, the Nazi memorabilia was stored in a private room in the Imperial Palace that he called his war room. So this was not something open to the public, but he did have it there, and people that he knew personally and liked, he would bring into his, quote, war room so they could look at all his Nazi memorabilia. For a while, this was kept a secret. But then the word got out, and he decided to sell it. And he wrote an apology letter to the Jewish Federation of Las Vegas. He wrote, I now feel what I have done, what I can, and apologize for what I cannot do. Also, it was found in the Imperial Palace somewhere, a printing plate that was used to make bumper that was used to make bumper stickers that read Hitler was right. So it kind of looks like this guy was an after the fact Nazi sympathizer and that the apology to the Jewish Federation was not really sincere and more just to do away with the bad publicity as much as he could. He was born in nineteen thirty. So he was only a boy during World War II. When World War II ended, he was only 15. So this is not anyone who actively participated in World War II or even was an adult at any time during it. He obviously remembered it, but he developed the fascination with it probably later on in life. So probably not a very good guy, this Ralph Engelstad. 
but he was the one who built the Imperial Palace. The Imperial Palace was actually the first place that I ever counted cards in uh, 2000 when I learned how to do that. That was the first place I went to do it because I heard the games were good and there wasn't a lot of heat from the pit. And I won, and I was proud of myself. And I got comps, and I stayed there. And I had some people asking, like, why is a Jew staying in the Imperial Palace after this whole thing? And they told me about the story. At the time, Engelstad was still alive. He died in 2002. I'm talking about the year 2000 right now. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm beating him. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm staying there on a comp and eating comp food and counting cards in their blackjack game and winning. So I'm not doing this guy any favors. Anyway, back to this story. Harris Entertainment, which presently is Caesars, because they merged right around the time that they bought the Imperial Palace. Harris Entertainment bought it in 2005. That's also when that merger occurred. It remained Imperial Palace for seven more years as a Caesars property until they renamed it to The Quad in 2012. Then they uh, named it The Link, and that's how it currently stands. It should not be confused with the Link shopping and recreation area that uh, they have that observation wheel, the high roller, and stuff like that. That is separate from the Link Hotel, but they are named the same thing as part of branding. But it really is just the Imperial Palace. It's been renovated, but it's the same hotel. But what does this have to do with flooding? Sounds like we're getting off topic, right? Well, no, we're not. We're staying on topic. So let's get back to that Venetian Canal that was supposedly part of the Flamingo Capri as a feature, but was really just a drainage ditch that was dressed up to look nicer. Let's get back to that. This canal was necessary in order to prevent flooding. And it was really called the Flamingo Wash. Even though it was advertised as a Venetian canal, it had a name called the Flamingo Wash that the city gave it. And it was a branch of the Las Vegas Wash, which ran for 12 miles and fed most of the Las Vegas Valley's overflow stormwater into Lake Mead. The Flamingo Wash actually collects rainfall from as far away as the Spring Mountains, where uh, Mount Charleston is located, as far as 60 miles away. In 1975, you may have seen pictures of this, July 3rd, 1975, one of those summer monsoon storms hit Las Vegas, similar to the ones that We've been seeing in the last few weeks, but even worse. And it triggered a flash flood that overflowed the Flamingo Wash. And what happened was that the overflow then destroyed the Caesars Palace parking lot and damaged cars and other property nearby to the tune of about $25 million in today's money. And some of the cars that were damaged by this massive flood, which dragged a lot of uh, mud and debris into the Caesars lot, dragged some cars miles away. I mean, the whole thing was a disaster. You may have seen some pictures of this. If you haven't, Google July 3rd, 1975, Las Vegas flood. You'll see some pretty ugly looking pictures. So they realized in 75, after that happened, that they have to do something to prevent this from happening again, because it was just a matter of time until another big monsoon storm would come in and do the same thing. And they couldn't let this happen again. 
So what they did is they made tunnels underneath I-15 and also made tunnels under Caesars Palace and Las Vegas Boulevard. And these tunnels were going to be essentially uh, giant storm drains that would make the flooding much less. However, there was one issue. This is where we get back to the Imperial Palace. Imperial Palace was under construction then. Remember, Imperial Palace opened with its new tower in 1977. This was 1975. So they were already building the Imperial Palace, and they had already built the foundation of both the tower and the parking structure where one of these tunnels emptied. So that was a big problem. The only way to fix this would have been to keep digging underground to get under the Imperial Palace and uh, put the tunnel there. But this would have messed up the foundation and it just wasn't feasible to do. And it was determined that the only way to continue that tunnel underground would be to wreck what they had built of the Imperial Palace and the parking structure and build the tunnel there and then redo it from that point. So they had to figure out how to fix this problem because they had to do something to continue these tunnels. They couldn't just abandon that project, the city. But at the same time, the Imperial Palace is right there. So what, what something had to give. So Ralph Engelstad's engineers came up with a weird solution. They said, what if the garage could actually be a form of a storm drain? People said, what? They said, yeah, 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 just just hear us out. That whenever flooding would occur, that what will happen is the water, the rushing storm water, will come up from the underground tunnel into the parking garage and then will flow through the first floor of the parking garage and then it'll end up in a duct that's behind the ramp of the parking garage and it'll bring it back underground. So instead of building a tunnel under the foundation and messing it up of the Imperial Palace, why don't we just let the water flow through the garage and then go back into the tunnel after it passes the Imperial Palace? Why don't we do that? Not only that, because these storms don't come very often, this isn't going to disrupt very much. So the visitors that come to the Imperial Palace aren't going to go, oh, wow, this parking lot's actually a storm drain. Just... Let people be blissfully unaware of this because it's not going to happen very often. Well, I don't know why they didn't think about the problem you still have, about what what about when it does happen. What do you do then? It's going to ruin things. Well, sure enough, in 1983, they had one of those big monsoon storms again, and an eight-foot wall of water gushed through the garage, swept away 10 cars and put mud all over the ground in 20 rooms on the first floor, as well as got mud all over the casino. And uh, about 500 people who were in the casino at the time panicked when they saw this giant wall of water came come in. And while uh, none of them were injured, they had to run out of there in a panic. So that was not a good situation. So they realized that this was a bit flawed. In fact, as recently as 2004... Two men had to be rescued by firefighters after their car that was in the Imperial Palace garage stalled in flood water 
when they were trying to get out. And then much more recently, in 2017, they had to rescue six people in that garage when the floodwater was going through. However, what they've gotten better at doing, this problem is not completely gone, as you might guess, because this happened in 2017, that six people got uh, trapped there with the floodwater rushing by. But they have since modified the Imperial Palace enough to where really when there is a flood, it's just going to flow through the parking structure. And what they've gotten a lot better with over the years is predicting the weather. In the southwestern U.S., it's pretty easy to predict the weather. There are some areas of the country where it is not as easy to predict the weather, where sometimes the actual weather that shows up can be very, very different from what is forecasted. I noticed this when I went to Vancouver Island on my trip in July and early August and ran into a heat wave that was not previously predicted. I also had the same thing in Seattle, in a different way, where partly cloudy skies were predicted and instead a huge storm blanketed the entire Seattle area. This was seven years ago, back in 2015. So sometimes from one day to the next, the weather can be very different than predicted in the Pacific Northwest. But the Southwest is different. So in Las Vegas, in Los Angeles, and I can tell you from living in both of these areas, it is usually very accurate when you see today's weather forecasts as far as 10 days out. If you, look, if you live in one of these areas, take a look. Take a look at the forecast for 10 days from now and then observe the actual weather 10 days from now. You'll be shocked at how close they get it. Like even the temperature, they're really close. They're really good now at predicting that. These areas are pretty predictable regarding the weather that they can see 10 days ahead. So between being able to keep the flood to the parking lot and being able to predict when a flood might occur, because now they can see the weather very accurately and they can see when one of these monsoon storms might be coming, the garage is closed to the public and nobody is allowed to park on the first floor and anyone who doesn't remove their car from the first floor will have it removed to where there are no cars on the first floor and nobody can get in the first floor for the day or days that the flood is predicted. Once the floodwaters recede, then it's back to business as usual. When this does occur, the worst that happens usually is they have to just prevent from taking their car out until the floodwaters recede. So at worst, people have to wait a few hours to remove their car, which, by the way, is a good reason not to park in the Link parking lot. You can park in nearby parking lots like the Harris lot, which does not flood. So I would not suggest ever parking in the Link parking lot. And in fact, I have thought about this when I have visited the Link. I don't go there very often, but when I go there, I do think, you know what? I don't think I want to park here in this lot because if a flood comes, then I'm going to be stuck here. Nothing's going to happen to my car because I'm not going to park on the first floor, but who wants to get stuck? So you should keep this in mind. Now, you might wonder why they do this at all. Why not just uh, come up with a different solution at this point rather than the parking lot of the link getting flooded and having to close it every time a possible monsoon storm is coming? Unfortunately, the Clark County Regional Flood Control District determined that it was impossible to install 
any kind of better flood control without weakening the foundation of the Imperial Palace, the exact same problem they had in the late 70s. Even with 2010 technology, they just were afraid to mess with the foundation of the Imperial Palace, which you especially don't want to mess that up because, you know, what if the hotel collapsed or something or cracked? That's the last thing you want. So they're like, you know what? We'll just let the garage keep flooding. Now, there was possibly an end to the whole problem in a different way back in 05. Back when Harris acquired Imperial Palace, Gary Loveman, who was then chairman of Harris, he told investors that they might implode the Imperial Palace and they were going to do that uh, massive expansion. They were going to make a mega property and that was going to be part of it. I've talked about that before on this show. The mega property would have stretched from the current Cromwell all the way down to current Harris. So they were going to wreck everything in that area. That was the plan. They're going to wreck what was then uh, Bill's Gambling Hall, which was previously the Barbary Coast that they bought from Coast Casinos. They were going to wreck that. They were going to wreck O'Shea's, which they bought for that purpose. They were going to wreck the Imperial Palace. They were going to wreck Harris. They were going to wreck the Flamingo. And then they were going to put up a giant resort that was going to become the Caesars flagship property. And this was planned to be done in 2008 or 2009. But what happened in 2008? Not related to floods, but what happened economically in 2008? Oh, yes, the big real estate and banking crash. So that put an end to that whole thing. They decided they are not going to make this mega property And everything they had acquired in preparation for that just stood on its own. So that is actually why the Cromwell is the Cromwell. Because they bought it originally from Coast Casinos in order to make this mega property that stretched all the way to the corner on Flamingo Road. But now they weren't going to anymore. But they temporarily named it to Bill's Gambling Hall, expecting they're going to wreck it. They didn't really do anything with bills and it was an old crappy property and they really were not going to put any money into it expecting to destroy it. But when they realized they were not going to destroy it, then they had to do something with it. So they ended up uh, really, really renovating it and changed it into something very different, which is presently the Cromwell. O'Shea's did get wrecked to make that Link shopping area and that got integrated into a nearby property with the O'Shea's name, but the O'Shea's casino itself is gone. Imperial Palace became the Quad and then the Link. And Harris stayed and Flamingo stayed. So they have that whole area, which they got so they could build that mega resort. And it ended up not happening. But had they done this, had they done this and then wrecked the Imperial Palace, they were not going to build a parking structure where the flood channel was anymore. What they would have done is they would have left this this whole uh, flood tunnel as it was and then finally been able to continue that tunnel between where it ends and where it begins again because they wouldn't have had to worry about the foundation of the Imperial Palace, which was no longer there. But since they didn't do that, since the Imperial Palace still exists as the link, then... They could not 
fix any of that. Whenever a big monsoon storm or any kind of other storm that is large comes to the Vegas area, the very first phone call from the Clark County Regional Flood Control District goes to the link. And they say, close your garage and get the cars out of the first floor. Every single time. But they're pretty good at this. That's why you are not hearing of stories where these raging floodwaters that you keep seeing on TV and in YouTube videos, you're not seeing stories of that carrying cars away or killing people, huh? That's because they're prepared and they know it's coming. Because remember, the flooding that's taking place on the first floor of the link parking structure is designed to flood. It's supposed to happen. Now, that doesn't stop the media from putting up these misleading videos. So you hear about flooding in Vegas and you see, and they often don't say where this is, but you see water rushing through at a high rate of speed, some parking structure. And you go, oh my God, that looks awful. looks like a raging river that's inside a parking structure. The the poor people who have cars there, the poor people who are there, Wow. And you think, wow, I can imagine what damage that's causing. I first looked into this when I kept seeing over and over the Imperial Palace was the one featured in these reports. And they never explained it. They never went very far to explain why this was happening and why this wasn't a huge deal. They'd show it and we're supposed to be shocked by it. But we never really hear about what the result was of this tremendous floodwater just destroying what appears the Imperial Palace or Link parking structure. And I'm like, you know, this almost seems like they know what's going to happen and it's not a big deal. And sure enough, it's not. It was designed to do this. When the flooding happened in late July of this year, there were 10 YouTube videos that showed the floodwaters rushing through and seven of those 10 videos featured the link garage but did not explain the context they just showed it look at this flood look at how scary seven out of ten flood videos from the floods two weeks ago showed the parking garage of the link without explaining that it's supposed to flood so while it's not smart to park there it isn't a huge deal that the flooding is happening when i mention vegas storm drains you probably think about something else because there have been reports over the years and videos over the years of people living in the vegas storm drains and yes there are and were people living in these storm drains in these tunnels that were built and uh, people quickly realize that this is uh place you can go live if you're homeless now i don't think it's the best choice of a place to go live because number one is dangerous because if you're in there when a flood comes it can kill you but number two you got to think it's a very depressing existence and there's frequently groundwater just sitting in there that's got to be very unhealthy i've seen pictures of the place it looks horrible i mean yeah they'll they'll put uh little crates up as almost like as blocks to put their stuff on so their stuff isn't getting wet but still imagine imagine where you live you're having to walk around in uh, inches of water 
and you're indoors in a in a tunnel. That just seems terrible. But you've probably seen these documentaries about the tunnel people. Well, a lot of these tunnel people enter right there outside of the Link and Harris in the back where the self-parking is. In fact, you will drive by it. If you exit the Harris or Link parking structure and then you drive towards Flamingo Road, if you look to your left as you're driving towards Flamingo Road, you will see the storm drain right there. You'll see the exactly the path where this water goes. And that is where a number of people who live in these tunnels enter them. In fact, we had someone as a guest on this show who said that they lived in the tunnels exactly there. And that was Amanda Stinchcomb. If you remember, we had her on this show twice. And the second time she came on, she told us about a lot of the issues she faced in life and a lot of the hard times she faced since she had last been on here. And one of them was with her uh, then-boyfriend, not at the time she was talking to us, but the boyfriend she had at the time of the story. And she was telling us that at one point they went to go live in the storm drains, and they were entering the storm drains from right behind where the link is. So that's exactly where some of these people enter. It's an easy place to access. You can look right down, you can look right down there and see where they're getting in. I've always had a curiosity, like... If I know it's like really, really dry and there's no chance like a storm's coming, like I've I've had like a curiosity, like, oh, I wonder if I should walk down there and look in, but these people down there are on drugs. I have to imagine they're not the safest people to be around. So while it would be interesting, like if I could be guaranteed nothing would happen to me, like nobody would attack me, I would actually go down there and take a look, but I'm not curious enough to go down there and risk whatever might happen, so I don't, but it's always like a passing thought when I pass by when I'm driving behind those two structures, if I'm visiting Harris or the link and parking over there. So that's something else there. And that's the reason those tunnels exist is because those were built in order to prevent a recurrence of what happened in 1975. So in case you're wondering how far those tunnels go back and why they were there, They go back to the mid-70s, and they're there because of the tremendous damage that happened, especially at Caesar's Palace, in 1975. What is interesting is that while Las Vegas gets these tremendous thunderstorms, these monsoon storms in the summer, the same thing does not happen to Los Angeles, which is only 300 miles away. Los Angeles barely gets any precipitation at all between the months of May and September, from May 1st through September 30th. Sometimes there is absolutely zero precipitation that falls, even in a non-drought year. And when there is precipitation, often it's very, very little. And what you don't see very much in the LA area is a big summer storm. You'll sometimes see a little bit of rain that shows up maybe for 15, 20 minutes, but that's about it. Occasionally, it'll be different. There were a few years ago that there was more than an inch of rain that fell in July in Los Angeles, but that's very unusual. And even with these repeated summer storms in Las Vegas, it has not hit Los Angeles. Los Angeles has remained dry. Some areas a little bit northeast of Los Angeles have gotten some rain and some very heavy rain, but that just doesn't seem to happen to L.A., It's a different climate. L.A. is one of the driest places 
on Earth during those months from May 1st through September 30th. There, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find many other places on the entire planet that get less average rain in that time span as the L.A. area. And that's because they don't get the summer monsoon storms like uh, places like Vegas do. Vegas does pick up more precipitation in the winter than it does in the summer, but the winter doesn't have these type of storms. The winter has more traditional rainstorms that come in and rain for some period of time that adds up to more rain, but doesn't come down so rapidly to create this terrible flooding. Overall, Vegas does still have much less rain in the average year than Los Angeles. But if you're going to see one of these storms, it's very likely to have occurred in July or August and pretty unlikely to occur in the winter, even though the winter overall gets more rain. So this is one of these things that was improvising. Vegas was not really expecting to have a parking garage serve as a makeshift storm canal but they really had no other choice because there would be floodwaters that would come from these monsoon storms. These tunnels were built to carry that water away, but the tunnel couldn't continue through the Imperial Palace that was under construction, so they really didn't have very many choices of what to do. So this really is the best option, as weird as it is. So next time you see that footage of a flooded parking garage in Vegas, look carefully. You'll notice it's the Link Garage, and you'll know that even though it looks scary, it's no big deal. I hope you enjoyed this segment of Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. I don't know when the next one will be, but every time I find something that is worthy of such a segment, I will do it on here, because I know a lot of you actually enjoy this stuff, and I enjoy these topics. Like, who would really think about a parking lot in Vegas, a strip hotel actually being a storm canal? But it is. Let's get back to some scams. So we have another sports betting scam to talk about. Not Grayson's sports scam, but uh, one that's even much greater in damages. Because the Grayson sports scam with this guy Ludwig was like 100K. Now, they had only one victim, but still only 100K. The one we're going to talk about here was substantially bigger. In fact, it was way bigger. It ended up netting $100 billion. No, but it's substantially more than $1 million. An $8.5 million scam was perpetrated, allegedly, by a man from Las Vegas, and this is something I hadn't heard about before. We've talked about similar scams, but this is one that is new to me and was recently reported in media. In a 13-count federal indictment from the Northern District of Ohio, it was said that 49-year-old Matthew Turnipseed, yes, this guy's name actually was Turnipseed, (laughs) <laughs> and I guess he was victimizing people who just fell off the turnip truck. He was charged with 
defrauding 72 investors in Ohio and elsewhere out of more than $8.5 million through a Ponzi scheme, which involved various sports betting businesses. Where have we heard this before? From the DOJ in the Northern District of Ohio, they put out a press release on August 11th. They said, Matthew J. Turnipseed, 49, of Las Vegas, Nevada, was charged today in a 13-count indictment with defrauding approximately 72 investors in the Northern District of Ohio and elsewhere out of more than $8.5 million through a Ponzi scheme that promised investors double-digit profits achieved through various sports wagering businesses, double-digit meaning percentage. The defendant was officially charged with 12 counts of wire fraud and one count of mail fraud. According to the indictment, from March 2015 through May 2021, the defendant induced victims to invest money in companies that he owned, namely Edgewise LLC, Moneyline Analytics, Moneyline Analytics Dublin Branch, that is Dublin, Ohio, not uh, Dublin, Ireland, and another company incorporated by Turnipseed by falsely claiming that investor funds would be used to make sophisticated sports wagers according to an algorithm that generated double-digit returns. Maybe I should set up one of these things. I've actually won six Major League Baseball bets in a row. I have. I've posted them on Poker Fraud Alert in the Flying Stupidity Wagering thread. Maybe I should start up uh, my own analytics and get suckers to invest $8.5 million in it. Hmm. According to the indictment, none of these companies ever generated the promised profits. What a shock. And instead, the defendant used the investor money to maintain the business, seek new sources of funds, pay off earlier investors, and fund personal expenses. The indictment alleges that the defendant provided victim investors with operating agreements in which he claimed that all the money invested will be used exclusively to place bets on sporting events and that the defendant would not be paid any compensation for placing the wagers, but would retain a percentage of the winning profits. I don't know why these guys don't just really use the money to bet and just hope they luck into winning. I guess because they're just losing betters and they have to try to justify to investors they made a good investment. But none of these guys are even just like free rolling. They always end up like stealing the money in other ways. It may be to cover up the fact that it's not winning. To perpetuate the scheme, the defendant is accused of periodically emailing fraudulent financial statements to victims purporting to show substantial gains on their investments and employing an accounting firm to generate IRS forms based on fraudulent figures provided to the firm by the defendant. Mm, Clever. So he actually was having reputable accounting firms send the victims statements of how much money they were making. And they're like, "Okay, well, I trust that firm. That's a real firm. I can Google them. I can see they're big. I've heard of this firm, and they're sending me these statements. So, okay, got to be real. Except the problem was they were just taking the numbers that Turnipseed was giving them. It was not up to them to verify these numbers. They were just doing accounting. The indictment alleges that the defendant's sports wagers never generated the promised profits for investors, and the information provided to the accounting firm was fraudulent. It is alleged that if a victim sought to withdraw some or all of their investments, the defendant used money from other victims' contributions to cover the withdrawal. In addition, it is also alleged that the defendant used investor funds to finance his personal expenses, including family vacations to Disneyland and Hawaii, spot treatments, lease payments on multiple vehicles, and country club membership dues. An indictment is only a charge, not evidence of guilt, blah, 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 blah. They always put that at the end, and that's pretty much the end of the information on this. We've seen this story a lot of times where some 
guy claims he has a winning system and you can invest and it's proven to win whatever percent. It's just guaranteed money for you. It's guaranteed. Just give this guy your money to bet with and he'll give you 20% back more of what you invested because his system's so good. It's like printing money. 72 people fell for this, mostly in Ohio. That's why the Northern District of Ohio was investigating this rather than in the Nevada area. The way the Department of Justice works is they have the U.S. Attorney's Office of whichever district the crime is being committed in, wherever the victims live, basically, does the investigation. And the way the jurisdiction is established is either if a victim comes forward from one of those areas or if they find someone who is victimized and is willing to tell their story. So since most of these people were victimized in Ohio, this guy must have some connection to Ohio in the past. That's who investigated here. And this guy was in Las Vegas, and I'm sure that was part of the whole scam that, hey, I'm in Vegas, I'm placing these bets. It's hard to explain how he's placing these bets from Ohio unless he claims he's doing it on offshore sites. I'm sure he said he's hanging around at the casinos all day and just placing sports bets for them while they effortlessly sit there and do nothing and make double-digit returns on what they invest with him. And then he was sending them fake statements showing how he's killing it. And of course, he stole some of the money to go to Disneyland and go to Hawaii and go to the spa and rent a bunch of vehicles and join a country club. (laughs) These guys can never even live like a normal lifestyle either. Like, I'm not the member of a country club. I don't have like tons of vehicles and I don't go to the spa. I haven't been to Hawaii in seven years. I'd like to go back soon. I just haven't been there in seven years. Actually, I haven't been to Disneyland in about seven years. I'm not even that far from there. This guy's living better than I am, and he was a scammer. Mm. Whenever somebody is claiming that they are killing it in sports and they just need you to invest, it's just about 100% a scam. In fact, most people who are selling you picks are probably not winning at anywhere near the rate they claim or may not be winning at all. That's not to say all sports touts are scammers or are lying. There are some who sell picks simply because they don't want the variance of actually betting on them, and they prefer the easy money of just selling their picks without actually placing any bets, even if their betting advice is pretty good. This is basically variance control. But that's not the case with most of them. Most of them are failed sports bettors, and this is the way that they either keep themselves in action or support themselves, or both, is by selling picks that have never really won in the first place. It actually takes a long time to know if you are a positive expectation sports better. And in addition, it can change as conditions of these games will change. So they can change a certain rule or the way the sport is played can change, such as in basketball where they're taking more three-point shots than they used to, or in baseball when people are hitting more home runs than they used to and striking out more than they used to. When when aspects of the game change like that, then the betting strategy has to change along with it, and using an old betting strategy is not going to cut it. Then you're going to lose. So you have to consistently evolve 
your sports betting strategy for it to be successful, and even then it's still very hard. And I know this because I do it. And I'm really doing it more for fun than trying to make a living at it. But it's tough. I can tell you it's tough. And I'm constantly having to modify strategy to attempt to win at these picks. And from what I've found, I'm better at betting baseball than I am the NBA. That's, that's where my betting has been both on the NBA and on baseball. And I find baseball, it's easier for me to turn a profit. But even there, it can be tough. Like I got off to a tough start this season and only recently have I been doing better. So it's hard. And most of these people who are placing these sports bets, they don't know what they're doing. And the touts that are selling them these picks are often not doing it with any kind of level of sophistication. They are either just guessing or they are using just very simplistic methods to determine who they're betting on. Like You'd be surprised how simplistic a lot of these sports touts really are. You'd like to picture that they're doing all kinds of advanced uh, analytics and uh, research before making these picks, but they're not. They just pull it out of their ass. So anyone who's soliciting investments in any kind of fund for sports betting is almost surely a scammer. Keep that in mind. Here's a story which is disturbing. It had a somewhat happy ending, but still a disturbing story. A man was arrested for leaving a puppy in his car in the Bellagio parking structure on a very hot day, as every day pretty much is in Vegas in the summer. And had the dog been in there much longer, the dog likely would have died. The Bellagio parking structure is indoors, but it heats up like an oven during the summer, as you might imagine. It's still better than parking your car outside in the direct sunlight, but you do not want to leave any people or animals in the car when you go out and do something unless the people you're leaving there have the ability to get up and leave the car if they're uncomfortable. So if you want to leave your wife or your girlfriend in there, uh, presumably she will know to get out of the car if it's too hot, but you don't want to leave a kid in there. You don't want to leave a dog in there. Very, very big mistake. Even for a short time, it can get very hot in these cars when they're not running even in an indoor structure because the structure itself is so hot. So the guy who did this is a 50-year-old man from Corona Del Mar, California, which is kind of by San Diego. His name is Raul Carbajal, and he left a puppy in his car in the Bellagio, and he actually taped the dog's mouth shut because he didn't want the dog barking while in the car. I don't think he was worried so much about uh, people finding the dogs in there, but maybe he was. Maybe he was trying to cover up people seeing the dog in there and breaking his window. Or if he was just trying to prevent a disturbance in the lot and getting the car towed or having security complain about this. But he put tape over the dog's mouth so it couldn't bark and left the dog in the car while he gambled in the Bellagio for two hours. 
and a casino security guard was alerted that there was a dog in a car at about 3 p.m. This was in uh, mid-July when this occurred. And the puppy had no food and no water in the car. The car was not running. The tape over the dog's mouth was black electrical tape. Surprisingly, the security guard and the uh, then responding officers that were called by the security guard did not smash the window. They actually entered the car by climbing in via a sunroof they were able to get open. And uh, they took the dog out and then gave the dog cold water to drink and then put the dog in an air-conditioned vehicle. They brought a thermometer into the vehicle, and the thermometer read 107.8 degrees. It was uh, actually on the top floor, so I guess it was in the sun. Yeah. So the Bellagio parking structure is three floors that are indoors and one floor that is outdoors. And I won't park on the top floor unless I get there at night. At night, it doesn't matter so much because there's no sun beating down on the car. So as long as I know I'm not going to still be there when the sun comes up, then I will park on the top floor if there's nothing else available. But I will not park on the top floor during the day because it's just brutally hot to have the sun beating down. So that's pretty bad. I'm surprised it was just 108 degrees inside the car. I'm surprised it wasn't more, especially at uh, 3 p.m. The puppy did not die. It was breathing heavily when it was in the car. It's not known what they did with the puppy. It was a Siberian Husky. From the investigation, it was found that uh, Raul Carbajal parked the car at 1.13 p.m. He then returned to the car at 3.10 p.m., which happened to be a very short time after the complaint call was made about it. So conveniently, he walked right up to the car as they uh, had just gotten into it to get the dog out. So it was easy to find the guy who had done this and he was arrested. He was charged with suspicion of willful or malicious torture of a dog. And he was given a court date. He had a gaming ticket with him. He had a cash out ticket that he hadn't cashed out yet. So how much did he make? Did he win big in the casino in those two hours? I mean, he carried out a gaming ticket. So how much did he have with him? He had a gaming ticket for 75 cents. <laughs> now, it's possible this was one of those Superman 3 situations because I believe the Bellagio is one of these casinos that when you put your gaming ticket in, it will pay you and then spit out a different ticket worth less than under a dollar that you're supposed to bring to the cage to get the rest of it, which almost nobody does and throws away, and then the casino keeps. So he may have just kept it for next time he comes back to the casino. So as much as I'd like to believe this guy walked away with only 75 cents, he probably had more, which is why he had a ticket for 75 cents. It is kind of funny. He had a 75-cent ticket on him. But again, that probably was the remainder of what he had actually cashed out. So I don't know if he won or lost. But anyway, yeah, he was uh, criminally charged for this. The hearing was on July 26th. I don't know what happened to him since then. A little more recently, on August 4th, a dog was seen in a parked car on Las Vegas Boulevard when it was 108 degrees outside and the dog was panting and struggling to breathe. This had nothing to do with this other guy. This is a different situation. And 
a Las Vegas police officer got the dog out of the car and placed the dog in an air-conditioned police car. And for some reason, they only gave a citation to the dog's owner. Maybe the dog hadn't been in there for that long, or maybe they didn't know how long the dog was in there. Here they were able to determine that the dog was in the car in the Bellagio for two hours. Maybe if someone just left the dog in the car for a few minutes, they could only cite them. Also, two pugs were removed from a car at Walmart in July. One of them actually had to be put down, unfortunately. It was injured from the heat. I don't know what happened to the owner there, but Vegas police removed uh, those two pugs. One survived, one did not. I have to imagine there's probably an arrest there. In June, a woman left her dog in an SUV at the Wild Wild West Casino and then did it again in front of a Goodwill store on another hot day. When the police officer arrived, the dog was panting and barking and was in distress and had no water. And in that case, the officer broke the SUV's window to get the dog. Again, I don't know if the woman was arrested. You should not leave dogs or animals in the car if you are... Or you shouldn't leave dogs, animals, or uh, kids, that is, in the car at any time during the summer unless you're really there for a super short time. I think even then you can get cited. But I'm talking about anything more than five minutes don't do because the temperature can go up in the car very quickly. It's better to just bring the animal or the kid or whatever with you into wherever you're going or leave them at home rather than take them on a hot day. It said that after 30 minutes, if the car is sitting out in the sun, the pet could either die or have irreversible damage to it. It's not a good idea. Now, there are some fanatics who will take this whole concept too far as far as uh, rescuing kids or animals. A number of years ago, when my son was, I believe, three years old, and this was not in Las Vegas, this was in L.A., this was... uh, in the fall and it was on a cool day and it was also almost at sunset so it was like 5:30 at some time in the fall which is right near sunset it was 69 degrees outside the sun was not overhead or anywhere near overhead as i said it was about to set and i drove to the post office and benjamin was sleeping when i got there so my choices were to wake benjamin up and bring in groggy and maybe crying Benjamin into the post office or just go in there for five minutes and lock the car with the alarm and uh, I was going to be right there I could hear if the alarm went off I could sprint right out I mean it's very very close to where I parked and also he was strapped into a seat so if someone wanted to try to kidnap him they wouldn't be able to get him out of all the straps by the time I would get out there also it was a good area so I, I didn't feel like I was taking any risk leaving him there for literally five minutes and Of course, it was not going to get hot in that car because it was 69 degrees outside and the sun was not overhead and it was only getting cooler because we were about to get to sunset. So I went in and I did come out five minutes later, exactly as I had planned. And I see two women about to break my car's window. They were just about to do it. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, you can't leave a a kid in the car like this. I said, it was only for five minutes. They said, yeah, but do you know how much a car can heat up? I said, 
It's under 70 degrees and the sun is about to set. How much going to heat up in five minutes? Oh, you have no idea how hot it gets in there. You know, you, and they tried to cite all this bullshit to me. And I said, no, there's no chance that this car is hot after five minutes with the sun about to set and it being in the 60s outside. There's no way. And they insisted to me that it's got to be really hot in there and that they would have been justified breaking my window and they were just about to and I should be ashamed of myself. And I said, I bet it is actually cooler in there than it is outside right now. And they said, no, there's no chance of that. I said, really? So I opened the car. I said, feel it. And they put their hands in. They go, oh, wow, it is cool in there. Well, um, we're going to (laughs) go. And they walked away. They gave me a whole long lecture about it. It's got to be blazing hot in there. And they, they put their hands in and it was actually cooler than it was outside. Idiots. So when they say don't leave a child or an animal in a car, they don't mean don't leave the child or animal in there for five minutes when it's 69 degrees and the sun's about to set. That's not what they mean. When I brought this up on Facebook, one of my Facebook friends said he disagreed with me and that it's never safe to leave a kid in the car. And he wasn't even talking about like kidnapping or anything. He was saying from what about you know heat purposes? What if you know what if you have a heart attack and faint or die? No one will know the kid's in there. That it's taking too big of a risk, and that you should just never do this. And I said, okay, so your position is that I should never leave my son in the car because what if I had a heart attack or died? that he could just be stuck in there for a long time and no one would rescue him, right? The guy said, yes. I said, okay. Well, then by that logic, shouldn't I never have him in the car? Because if I had a heart attack while driving, we would probably both die or he would get severely injured. So shouldn't I just never drive because at any time I could have a heart attack? (laughs) He didn't know what to say back to that. So it is not dangerous to leave your kid there for a few minutes if the weather is cool. But I mean legitimately cool, and I mean if the sun is not overhead. It is true that if the sun is overhead and is beating down on the car, even if it's like 75 outside, it can get hot in the car very fast. Not in five minutes, but in like 20 minutes, the car could get very hot in 75-degree weather with the sun right overhead. Not in 69-degree weather with the sun about to set, but with 75 with the sun right overhead, yes. But I will say that you should not break windows of cars where you see a kid or a dog inside until you're really sure they're in danger. Now, if it looks like the kid or the dog is like really, really in bad shape from this, then yes, do it. But if you just see a dog sitting there or a kid sitting there and it isn't that hot outside and you don't know how long the person's been gone, then don't break windows. That's an asshole thing to do. Like, really, those two women were really just like a hair away from breaking my window. They were considering it. They they even told me they were just about to do it. And they were so sure it was blazing hot in there. But I'm not excusing anything that I described here in this story about the guy at the Bellagio and the rest of these, because there's a difference between fall in L.A. when the sun's about to set and the hot summer in Las Vegas. But I was always very careful never to leave Benjamin in the car on any hot day. I would I would never do that. The only reason I left him in there is because it was cool and the sun was about to set. But if it was you know, during the summer or hot spring day or whatever and the sun's beating down, even if it's for five minutes, I would take him in with me. 
Because you know, forget the danger. Even if I know I'm only going to be there for five minutes, it gets uncomfortable. You've probably noticed that yourself. If you sit in a car by yourself with the AC off and the windows rolled up and the sun's beating down, even on like a 75-degree day, it'll start to feel hot and uncomfortable. So you know, why do that to a kid or a dog? Even if they're not going to be in danger, even if you're coming back before anything could happen to them, you shouldn't ever leave them in the car if it's going to be uncomfortable. You just shouldn't. Right, let's throw a call on here. Caller, you're on the air. Child killer. All right, thank you. I don't think I'm a child killer. I, my son is still alive, and he's almost 12 years old. It's the only child I've had, so I know every kid I had is still alive. Unless there was a kid I, I don't know I have, and then died somehow while not in my care. I guess that's possible. All right, so let's talk about another mugging at a casino of someone flaunting their money story. We cover these on this show every so often as well, and people never learn. At the Seminole Hard Rock, a gambler won $53,000 earlier this summer, and then he was followed back to his hotel and robbed after he publicly flaunted what he had won. And the suspects got away with about 10K. So prior to this robbery, and this is according to the Tampa Bay Times, the man was taking pictures with his cash that he had just won. And this occurred on June 14th. And at about uh, 12.40 a.m., the three suspects who committed the robbery showed up at the casino in a red Alfa Romeo car. So you'd think they wouldn't need to rob this guy if they can afford an Alfa Romeo, but I guess they did. Two of the three suspects have been identified, but they have not named the men yet, and they have not even stated whether they've been arrested yet. It's possible these guys are all at large, and for whatever reason, they don't want to tip them off that they're being looked for. But uh, according to a search warrant... Surveillance footage in the casino shows these three guys watching this guy cash out at the cage. And then the gambler, quote, made it obvious of his earning in sight of the three suspects. And then he left the casino and these three guys followed him. Now, the gambler left in a taxi and went to his hotel where he was staying. He wasn't staying at the Hard Rock and the three suspects then followed the taxi for about 20 minutes. And when the gambler got to his hotel, which is the Barrymore Hotel in Tampa, the gambler walked out of the taxi with a paper bag with the cash inside. So he went into the lobby of the Barrymore Hotel in Tampa, and these guys pulled up with their Alfa Romeo, and one of these three guys got out, and followed him. And then one of them grabbed this guy's paper bag and ran out of the lobby. Well, this gambler, having just won his 53K, wasn't going to tolerate that. So he chased the guy and tackled him right outside the front door of the Barrymore Hotel. And they were wrestling on the ground. So then the other guys in the Alfa Romeo realized that this isn't going as planned. So the Alfa Romeo pulled up and one man jumped out of the rear passenger side door and pushed the gambler off the suspect and then ran back to the car. 
and the guy who had uh, grabbed the paper bag of cash ran away down the sidewalk. Then the gambler was collecting his belongings off the ground and going back in the hotel, and it's not clear if he still had his paper bag of, of cash, but once he's inside the hotel, the suspect who had initially uh, tried to grab his bag or did grab his bag in the hotel picked up the guy's jacket that was still on the floor and $10,000 that had fallen out of the bag on the ground. Oops. You think you would check that after the bag got grabbed and you fight with a guy and get the bag back, you think you would uh, notice that something's missing from the bag. You think you'd check around and nothing fell out. But the suspect realized something fell out, so he not only took the guy's jacket, presumably, to go through it, but also to uh, he also took the $10,000 that had uh, fallen on the ground. And uh, traffic cameras nearby captured the Alfa Romeo going towards uh, West Tampa. But again, there's no reports of any arrests. Supposedly they know who two of the three guys are, but maybe they haven't found him yet. This is yet another lesson that you don't flaunt your winnings. And also, if you're walking out with your winnings in any way, in a paper bag or anything else, you have to make sure you're not being followed. And if you are, then walk right back in and tell security you're being followed. And don't just assume that if you successfully get into your vehicle or a taxi, you're going to be safe, because look what happened to this guy. You have to make sure you're not being followed in a vehicle. And if you suspect you are, you could go to the nearest police station and you can call them on the way there and say, hey, I'm being followed and I have money with me. I just went in the casino. Can you uh, please send an officer out? And I guarantee if you pull into a, a, a police station parking lot, the, no one's going to be dumb enough to follow you into that lot if they see what you're pulling into, which they probably will. They'll quickly go away at that point. Now, you may not be that close to a police station, but you definitely should not stop the car or go anywhere that's a dead end or anywhere that they could trap you. And if you think you might be followed at the moment, but you're not sure, number one, don't go to where you're ultimately going to end up. Don't go to your house. Don't go to your hotel. Just uh, keep driving around and start making various random turns and watch if there's any cars that are making these turns with you. And in fact, even if there aren't, you should then make various other random turns to where even if they try to predict where you're going next, they won't be able to. You need to basically make yourself hard to find from anyone who loses visual sight of you. And even if you do lose whoever you think might be following you and you pull back into your house or the hotel you're going to, you should still be careful because maybe they do know where you're going and are waiting for you there anyway. And don't be afraid to do this. Don't think you're being paranoid. Believe it or not, aggressive drivers, ones who tend to speed or go faster than the typical speed limit or, or put uh, effort into not missing lights and squeezing through yellows before they turn red, these type of drivers are harder to follow and much more difficult to hit with uh, follow-home sort of robberies because when you are driving like this 
if somebody behind you is also driving like this to keep up with you, it becomes pretty obvious. If you are a slower average driver, you're much easier to follow. But even if you are a slower average driver, as I said, if you notice that someone seems to be going the same way as you are, then just start going different directions and see what they do. And if it's clear you're being followed, then definitely try to find a police station, look up on your smartphone, call up the police and uh, tell them what's going on. And they, they can even send a car that's nearby to intercept the person following you. Don't just think, oh, you know, I'm not going to worry about this. I'm gonna, just going to go home and I'm sure it'll be fine. Because It may not be. There's a, it's a good chance someone may have seen that you won money. I once had a situation in Compton. Yes, that Compton. There's a poker room there called the Crystal Park Casino. And I went there once and only once. It does not have high or middle stakes games, so it never really appealed to me. And even if I wanted to play low stakes, there were safer casinos than the Crystal Park. But I went there once because a friend was hosting a $40 tournament there, and I just went there as a favor to him and played as well. This was back in 07. I ended up winning the tournament. In fact, it was very frustrating because I was running very badly at high-stakes games and tournaments in 07, in the first half of 07, and this was the one time I was not running bad. I was really lucky at this tournament. Not only were the players not good there, but I was also getting very lucky. Like, for example, I'd get it all in with somebody who had aces when I had fours and I did this because they didn't have a big stack and then I'd flop a four like this just kept happening where I I either was barely ahead of people or I'm coolering people or I'm bad beating people so I won that tournament and I won 2k which was nice from a $40 buy-in 2k is not nothing but as they paid me my 2k I looked outside the tournament room and I saw some scary looking dudes waiting outside the tournament room looking at me. And I thought, oh, crap. These guys are either going to try to mug me or hit me up for money or both. So when I walked out of the tournament room, sure enough, separately, two different guys came up to me and asked if I could loan them some money. So I politely told them no. And then thought, okay, how do I get out of here without these guys following me? So I kind of milled around the area until these guys went away. And I kind of kept my eye on where they were. So I made sure they weren't waiting by the door. And I made sure that they really weren't in sight of me very well anymore. And then I did it. I did my brisk walk down the hallway. Now, fortunately, the Crystal Park had or still has a long hallway leading towards the door. It might be intentional. But what was good about this long hallway is I could get way ahead of anyone following me. If I do see someone following me closely, I just wouldn't leave the property. But it's uh, nice to have that where nobody can be right behind me without me noticing that it's this long hallway where there's nowhere to hide. So I can look back when I'm just at the door and see if there's uh, anyone that goes way back in that hallway. And if there isn't, then I'm there with a huge head start. So my plan was to walk briskly down that hallway and check every so often behind me if there's anyone following me. And if there's nobody else behind me for that entire hallway, then walk very briskly to my car and get in it and lock the door and get the hell out of there. But I knew I already had a big head start at that point. So I did, and nobody followed me down the hallway. And I left, and I quickly looked outside the doors, made sure there's nobody waiting for me there, and there wasn't. And I walked briskly to my car 
And I hopped in and locked the doors and got out of there. And I'm telling you, as soon as I got out of that lot, I was relieved. Nobody ever threatened me, but they were definitely waiting for the winner of that tournament. It wasn't aimed at me personally, but it was aimed at the winner of that tournament. And they were planning to hit the winner of that tournament up for money. Fortunately, these guys looked kind of scary, but they were not criminals, at least uh, not in this situation. They only planned to ask me for money. And then I said no, and that was that. But uh, who knew? I mean, like, I, I knew that people were waiting for me as the winner, which was not a good sign. So I got myself straight out of Compton, and that was that. What's up? Tell them where you're from. Straight out of Compton. I was not someone who was normally intimidated by Compton, even with its reputation from 1980s rap songs. I actually worked in Compton in the 1990s. I would go out and eat lunch in Compton in the 1990s. A lot of people were scared to do this. They would go eat at the cafeteria that was on the campus of where I worked. Oh, no, you don't want to go out to this area, they'd tell me. I said, ah, it's during the day, whatever. And I, I went out a bunch of times. Nothing ever happened to me, and it was fine. Because during the day, it's fine. Just at night, which this was at, at the Crystal Park, that's a different matter. Especially when people knew I had $2,000 cash on me. and I was going to be walking out the door soon. So wasn't comfortable, but I got out of there. I want to talk now about the FBI and a seizure that took place in Beverly Hills. And this doesn't have anything to do with poker or gambling. But it's something that bothers me, and it's, again, under the whole banner of civil forfeiture. And there's a lawsuit involving this, and even if this is something that would never affect you, it should bother you. Because the government is always looking to take your stuff and keep it when you've done nothing wrong. It's legalized theft. This isn't a case where they're taking things that are likely involved in a crime. They're taking things with no evidence that any of this stuff is involved in a crime, and then they make you prove your innocence, which runs counter to the way the criminal justice system is supposed to work in the United States. Civil forfeiture began in, I believe, 1983, And the father of civil forfeiture is someone who is very familiar to all of you, and that is our current president, Joe Biden. Now, to Biden's credit, the civil forfeiture that he envisioned is not the one we see today. Civil forfeiture was part of the 80s drug war, and civil forfeiture was meant to be able to seize large amounts of cash and other assets from well-known drug dealers without actually catching them in the act of selling drugs for money. So therefore, while the drug dealers would often be very careful to make their deals where no cops were present, that if these dealers were caught with large sums of cash or assets that they couldn't explain, the government could just seize them and say, okay, prove you didn't get these illegally. And of course they couldn't because they got it from dealing drugs. That was the purpose of this, and it did help law enforcement cripple some of these drug operations without having to catch them in the act. So that was the original intent, but unfortunately, it got perverted over the years to just become legalized theft. And we've discussed that before in the show, and there are jurisdictions out on the highway where they stop 
out-of-state cars with the purpose of stealing any cash they have on them under the banner of suspected drug use or suspected drug dealing. And they know that the money they're stealing is not connected to drugs. In fact, sometimes they'll place themselves on highways near casinos where people will be leaving with money they want in the casino and they take it from you anyway and they say, well, if you want it back, file the appropriate paperwork with the government and or sue us. And that obviously costs money and time and trouble to do. And the whole thing is just being done to steal from people in order to fund cities and police departments, which are cash-strapped. So it is legalized theft. It's very bad. This one's a little bit different, but it falls under the same banner. The FBI was focused upon a private safe deposit box business in Beverly Hills. This business was called U.S. Private Vaults. And you could open safe deposit boxes there without giving any personal information. Whereas if you try to open one at a bank or at a casino, they are required by law to collect your personal information and even your social security number and then provide this to the IRS to let them know that you have such a box. So these boxes are exempt from that. And I'm not not sure of the legal mechanism that allows this, but they are exempt from that in some way. And for that reason, people like these. And people use them for various purposes. Sometimes they do store money or other assets that they obtained illegally. Sometimes they are doing it to hide assets from a spouse that they're about to divorce. There's various purposes. There's other people who just don't want the government or the IRS knowing that they have these assets. They don't want to be taxed on it, whatever. So I won't say that everybody who uses these businesses is a salt-of-the-earth citizen who's obeying all the laws. But still, if this business is allowed to exist, which it is, then the FBI should not be seizing the content of these boxes unless they have a legitimate reason for it. However, the FBI believed that U.S. private vaults in Beverly Hills was often being used by criminals and they decided to closely examine this business and see who was visiting it and kind of try to figure out who its customers were. In fact, they called it a honeypot to target customers. They didn't do this with permission of ownership, but they were just surveilling the business for several years and watching who's coming and going and trying to figure out who they might want to investigate. Well, they did this from 2015 through 2020, and it didn't work out very well. They said that this approach was, quote, not effective, and it wasn't yielding in any kind of uh, meaningful evidence or even any kind of meaningful leads as to who should be investigated and who shouldn't and what they might be doing. So they decided they're going to shift their strategy into one that's more aggressive rather than hiding and watching who's visiting there. How about just they find out for sure, as much as they can, who owns each of these boxes? Now, the business owners were not going to give up this info. and In fact, in some cases, they didn't have this info. 
Remember, you were not required to give this info to the business owners. So the FBI applied for a search and seizure warrant against U.S. Private Vault and its owners. And the warrants essentially gave them the right to seize some of the property temporarily at this business only for the purposes of inventorying all the boxes in order to figure out who owned each one as much as they could. The FBI promised that the warrant would authorize the seizure of the nests of the boxes themselves, not their contents, and that agents would, quote, pry no further than necessary to determine ownership. So they were not going to seize the contents of these boxes. And as soon as they got any information from any of these boxes who owned the box, like let's say there is a document in there that has a name on it that's clearly the box owner, then they would stop searching that particular box. They'd get what they were looking for. So they'd go through each box and they would search in the box only to see if they can figure out a name attached to it and then stop there, not look any further. They promised that in the warrant. Well, that's not what the real plan was. That was what they said in order to get the search warrant. That was what they promised as far as what they were looking for regarding the warrant. However, that was not the plan. They had already formulated plans to use civil forfeiture against any property that was in these boxes. So basically, they just took everything through civil forfeiture against every asset in every customer's box that was thought to be worth $5,000 or more. So they went through every single box and they said, okay, is the stuff in this box worth 5K or more? If the answer is yes, take it all and seize it via civil forfeiture. If it's less than 5,000, then no. Why 5,000? Well, 5,000 is the FBI's minimum monetary threshold for forfeitures. So they figured that this is not worth taking these assets if they're not going to net 5,000 or more. The FBI has kind of like by policy that that's what they're going to take minimum 5,000. If it's less than 5,000, it's not worth the trouble of having to fight back of those who are trying to claim their property. You know, they, they don't want to expend a lot of resources trying to keep the stuff if it's worth less than 5K. So that's what they went through every box to determine. Not who owned it. I mean, that too, but they went through every single box and if the stuff in the box was worth more than 5K, they took it. And in order to get it back, you'd have to sue them for its return. Keep in mind that None of these people were accused of any crime nor suspected of any crime. They just went through every box and took everything, provided that everything was worth 5K in a particular box. So you can imagine, probably with most of these boxes having stuff worth more than 5K total, they probably confiscated the contents, the entire contents of most of the boxes at U.S. private vaults. And that was not what was the intention of this warrant as stated in court. So they just blatantly violated the search warrant. The search warrant did not say they could do this. The search warrant said they just had to inventory these boxes to figure out who owned them if possible. 
They claimed in court that they simply wanted to identify who the owners of these boxes were so then they could further investigate if any of these people were engaging in crime. They were not supposed to take the stuff in there. The Institute of Justice, IJ.org, which does great work, it's uh, a nonprofit that gives free legal assistance to those who are victims of civil forfeiture or other government overreaches. So when they hear about cases like these, they will pick which ones that they feel deserve free legal representation. And not only do they get legal representation, but they also get good representation because Institute of Justice has lawyers that specialize in these sorts of cases. So if you are a victim of civil forfeiture, you may want to go to Institute of Justice, which you can find at ij.org, and ask them if they can help you. I'm not guaranteeing they will, but they might. And if you like what they do, you can donate to them. I have actually donated to them at Institute of Justice, but this is not an advertisement for them. I'm just saying that they do good work, they've had success, and they help out people who deserve help. So Institute of Justice is involved here in suing the government over this matter. Institute of Justice Senior Attorney Robert Johnson said the burden should always be on the government to prove wrongdoing before it can take somebody's property. The government here just assumed that everything in the boxes worth more than $5,000 was somehow connected to crime. That is a perfect example of how civil forfeiture takes the presumption of innocence and turns it on its head. That's true. The FBI went into U.S. private vaults in March of 2021. They ignored the seizure warrants command that it does not authorize a criminal search or seizure of the contents of the boxes. Under the warrant, the agents were only supposed to inspect the contents of the boxes, not search for any potential violations of law, simply to identify the owners and then stop there. The FBI, however, created custom forms that asked agents to look for information the government could use in pursuing forfeitures. One document asked agents to note things such as how the cash is bundled, if it had a strong odor, or if there seemed to be drug residue. Another instructed that cash over 5K should be sniffed by a canine unit. The big problem with that is that most $100 bills have drug residue of some sort on it because tiny bits of drug residue will stay on these bills for a very long time. And bills circulate so much, it's, it's very hard to have a stack of bills without drug residue on them. So I guarantee if you have thousands of dollars in uh, hundreds right now, I guarantee a drug-sniffing dog would find drug residue on it, even if you have never done drugs in your life and never been around drugs in your life. So they had that dog right there on site in order to note if the dog found drug residue on this cash, and then it could be used later on in showing that they could forfeit that money and the people couldn't get it back. Very dirty. Under the warrant's terms, if they found any information, even on top of a closed box that identified the box holder's name, they had to stop. And there were some boxes where the box holder's name was taped right on top. However, they still opened every single box 
and in fact took pictures of stuff in the box, including some people put password lists in the boxes. Some people, uh, in addition to valuables, restoring sensitive passwords that they felt was only safe there. They didn't want to leave it in their house in case someone broke in. So they took pictures of that. They took pictures of wills that people had. And they took pictures of personal notes and other sensitive documents that the FBI had no business looking at or taking pictures of. And now the FBI and maybe other agencies have copies of these records in their databases. And any agents at any time can look this up and analyze it about them. It's a big violation of privacy for people that didn't do anything wrong. The actual administrative forfeiture proceedings against these box holders took place two months later in May of 2021. Over $80 million of cash and tens of millions of dollars more in gold, silver, and other jewelry was confiscated. So over $100 million was confiscated from those boxes from a total of hundreds of customers. Ouch. In May of 2021... Institute of Justice got involved and sued the government on behalf of several of the box holders and also a broader class of people that had later come to the FBI and said, this is our property, even though we didn't have our name on it. Early on, the court barred some of the government's forfeiture proceedings, saying that the government should have told them what they thought they violated, and since they did not, that they violated these customers' due process. However, the FBI and other agencies still have the records of what was in those boxes, including any sensitive documents they took pictures of, and they will not destroy those. Jenny Pearsons, one of the plaintiffs in the suit who had a box there, said, For months the FBI held on to our precious metals and treated me and my husband like criminals. If we had not fought back, we could have lost a significant part of our life savings forever. Our lawsuit can't turn the clock back and keep our rights from being violated. But we want to make sure the government never does this again to anyone else and doesn't hold on to the records and photos of our private possessions. Now, maybe you're saying, what are these people worried about? If they didn't do anything wrong, if they're not committing crimes, why are they so worried about the FBI taking pictures of their stuff? Well, first of all, it's none of the FBI's business to see their personal stuff. The FBI does not need to have a list of your passwords or access to your will or other sensitive documents that you've stored there or any pictures you've stored there. Why should they have that if you haven't done anything wrong, if you're not suspected of any wrongdoing, just because you have a box at that place? Also, who knows if it's going to stay in the right hands? What if this is breached in some way? What if there's a hacking and this stuff lands in the hands of the hackers who then sell it to others? The bottom line is this is a giant violation of privacy. And you can't just say, well, the police or the FBI can violate your privacy whenever they feel like it because, hey, if you're doing nothing wrong, what are you worried about? That's not how it works. That's not how law enforcement or the presumption of innocence is supposed to work in the United States. And this is something that you should agree with, whether you are on the left, on the right, in the center, Whatever. This is basic principle behind the criminal justice system in the United States 
And it's been this way from long, long before any of us were born. And this should not be turned on its ear because the government wants to abuse its power to steal from people and steal under the banner of, well, probably a lot of this was illegally obtained anyway. So if we happen to steal from people who are innocent, oh, well, that's the way it goes. That has been the attitude regarding civil forfeiture for decades now. And they just don't care as long as they end up with more money, as long as they end up with more data they can analyze to try to find crimes, which they had no evidence were occurring, or maybe look at later if they ever suspect you sometime down the line, then they're happy. And if they happen to violate people's privacy who haven't done anything wrong or steal their money when the money was all legitimately obtained, well, tough luck on those people. Oh, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. So that is why I believe in what Institutes of Justice is doing and why these stories are so disturbing and why it's very important to keep the government in check from this type of overreach. Now, do I believe that every customer of U.S. private vaults was a great person who was innocent? No. There's probably some real scumbags who have stuff there that was stolen or money that was earned through illegal means, including drug dealing. There are probably people who stored things there that were stolen. There's probably criminals who use that business who deserve to be in prison and currently aren't. But that does not mean that they should violate everyone's privacy and steal everyone's stuff in an effort to get these criminals. You can't just sweep everyone up and punish everybody to try to get the few who are actually breaking the law. That's not ever how it works. The whole point of a search warrant is to search when there is a reasonable belief, a reasonable belief that a crime has been committed by a specific individual or business, not a big group of individuals who have no affiliation with one another that you just go through everything and see what you can find. That's not what search warrants are for. That's not what this warrant was for. Pretty bad story. Finally, WSOP.com has added, in a way, two major states to their site that can all play together. As you probably know, WSOP.com has an agreement where New Jersey, Nevada, and Delaware residents can all play together on the same WSOB.com with the same player pool. However, even though there are WSOB.com versions in Pennsylvania and Michigan, these are fenced off from this other three-state co-op. So Pennsylvania players cannot play against Nevada players. Michigan players cannot play against Nevada players. Pennsylvania and Michigan players can only play against those in their own state. I have said many times for these legally for these legalized online poker sites to be successful in the long and even short run they will need a number of states sharing the player pool to where they're all cooperating to where everybody can play together. The state by state crap's not going to work because the population simply is not big enough. Maybe a huge state like California could do it, but 
even states as big as Pennsylvania or Michigan are simply not going to have enough people to have an active site. And indeed, they don't. So the more states that are together, the better. And we're not even close to having enough states all with the same player pool to where these legalized sites are any good. That's why they're so dead, to be honest. To give you some numbers, WSOP for Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware combined averaged 280 cash players per day. That's not very much. WSOP Michigan averages 65 cash players per day. WSOP Pennsylvania averages 70 cash players per day. This is pathetic. Now, how do you compare this to the rest of the world? Well, GG Poker, which is the leading poker site now by far, they're crushing poker stars now. They're doing a great job. They have an average cash player pool of 6,600 people playing at once and a peak of about 8,400. Poker Stars has an average of about 3,900 with a peak of about 5,800. And even ones like Bovada have about 1,100 people that's estimated to be on playing cash at the same time. Chico Poker, which Bet Online is part of, has about half that, 525. The Winning Poker Network, which is ACR basically, uh, has about 400 average. So that's all blowing away what WSOB has. Even uh, their co-op of Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware has an average of 280, which is still smaller than ACR, for example. So if you added Pennsylvania and Michigan, you would be adding 140 players and they'd be up to 420 per day average, which still isn't wonderful. But I think also as there's more and more players, it exponentially increases because people will log in and they'll see more games going. And rather than just closing the software when the game they want to play isn't going, they'll sit down and play. So action makes more action on these sites. That's how the ones that are increasing grow so quickly and the ones that are dying die so quickly. So bottom line is they really need to merge more player pools. Well, this is finally happening a little bit, but I have to stress a little bit. WSOP.com is going to allow Pennsylvania and Michigan players to join some tournaments this fall that are taking place in the Nevada, New Jersey, Delaware market. That's a start. These people can't play cash together, but at least it's, it's kind of going in the right direction. So here's what's happening. There is an event coming up in September. September 10th is when it begins, and it runs through October 18th. And this is some kind of series they're having, and they're going to allow... Michigan and Pennsylvania players to join some of these events that run in this uh, six-week period. I'm not sure how they're deciding which ones are for all of the states and which ones are just for Nevada, New Jersey, Delaware players, but there are some that are going to be open to anyone 
with a WSOP.com account provided they're in one of the states where you can play legally, where WSOP.com has a presence. So hopefully this is the beginning of what is eventually going to be full cooperation and a full merging of all of these state versions of WSOP.com and then hopefully future states that WSOP.com joins will also allow this as well. Pennsylvania has not joined any kind of a multi-state gaming compact and Michigan just did so very recently. The problem with not having these compacts or having unsolved regulatory differences between the states is that you can't have players together under different rules. So remember, every state has its own regulation regarding gambling. And if there's certain regulations which contradict one another, then you can't have these players at the same table because then you have to figure out which regulation they're playing under and it has to be uniform among all players in a tournament. So I have to imagine the tournaments that are not allowed for this uh, full player pool are probably ones that have these regulatory differences for whatever reason. Maybe it's certain games that aren't allowed yet. Maybe it's certain buy-ins. Who knows? But it's, it's something to where they can't do it. Because believe me, they'd like to do it. They'd like to allow it for everything. It's not WSB.com making this decision. It's based upon what is legal at the moment. So what they're hoping here is that Pennsylvania will eventually come up with something that will allow this. I'm not even sure how they're able to do this without such a compact, but somehow they're doing it on a limited basis. And so hopefully between that and the one that uh, Michigan just did recently, which was in April, that they can have a full merging of all the WSOP sites and we'll have a bigger pool. Maybe somewhere way down the line, we will have a a nice pool of players in WSOP.com and that can become the dominant site for U.S. players. Or at least some site will be able to do it. Maybe it'll be Poker Stars, maybe it'll be GG Poker, maybe it'll be WSOP, whatever. We'll have some site where a lot of games run and it's a lot of people from the U.S. from different states. California is attempting to finally get legalized online gambling, and there's two competing propositions that people are going to be voting on this fall. I already know which one I'm going to vote for, but I'll do a further analysis when we get closer to Election Day. I I don't want to do a big analysis of these propositions right now in August, and then you guys won't remember when we get to November. But sometime in the future, I'll do that, and I'll tell you which way I'm voting and why. And it's not political, by the way. It has nothing to do with Republican or Democrat. It's which one I feel is better for the poker player and for the sports better and all that. But hopefully, California can eventually join all this, and that would be a huge boost if there's ever a WSP California that can join in with the rest of these. California has about one-eighth to one-ninth of the U.S. population. About 40 million people in California. So that's huge. So you get California, you get Texas maybe one day, you get Florida, which is more likely than Texas. There's some big states coming aboard there, and then you can really have a nice player pool. Right now, the way it is, there's just not enough people. 
But it's a start. It's a start that they're finally having some cooperation here as much as they can legally. As I said, the sites want to. It's a matter of the law allowing it and the regulations not competing with one another. All right, that's all I've got. I don't know who won the free roll. Whoever it was, congratulations. I'll find out soon enough when they claim their money. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We should be back next week. I can't see why we wouldn't. Probably again on Saturday. Maybe, maybe not. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert to find out when the next show is. Well, I feel better that I got to finally talk about Grayson Hunter Goss and his naughty ways. Boy, that guy sounds like a real piece of work. I don't know how I let that slip by all this time. Like, not from the forum, but the show. But I guess the biggest story involving him and this Ludwig guy just happened recently, so I don't feel as bad. And predicted. Wow, that's that's going to be gone soon. Get your money off there. If you're done with it, get your money off now. Don't, don't wait till February, because who knows? Yeah, we had a lot of Las Vegas news this time. It's too bad Brandon didn't stick around, because I know he likes the stuff. He likes the Las Vegas stories. We had a lot of things, though. We had that pervert 81-year-old property manager with a sex contract. We had the link and the parking lot flooding and all that in Mojave Desert, Las Vegas history. We had the guy based out of Las Vegas with a sports betting handicapping scheme. The puppy in Bellagio in the garage. And we had a lot of Vegas stories. Even the Grace and Goss story was about Vegas, if you think about it. If you ever want to bring a story to me, you can always text me, 775-372-8355. If you just want to text a link for me to look at. I always like when people bring stories to me. That's somewhat how I get all this together for the show. I research myself, but sometimes I miss things. I love when people bring things to me. So thank you to the audience who has brought stories to me. And if you've texted me a story and I've covered it here, there is some chance that it's because of you it's being covered. That is all. Thank you to everybody who donated tonight. Rest in peace, Robert Gray. Shalom.